All right. Everybody ready? Okay. Welcome to the. Oh, you might want to mute. Oh. Because we, we have our speakers here. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I'm not unmuted. I am muted. I hear it over here. Yep. It's off. That, that worked. Okay. Are we better? Oh, good. Okay. Um, apologies, everyone. Welcome to the Tuesday, June 21st, 2022 City Commission meeting. Uh, first thing, we will have an executive session. When we return, we'll give you the, the um, explanation of our meetings. Is there any motions? Move to recess into an executive session for approximately 30 minutes to discuss employer-employee negoti negotiations pursuant to KSA 754319, subsection B3. The justification for the executive session is to keep employer-employee negotiation negotiation matters confidential at this time. The city commission will resume its regular meeting in the city commission room at approximately 5.36 p.m. after the executive session is concluded. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. We're good. Nope, oh, I'm missing one. That's probably okay now. Uh, we have nothing to report, uh, but we will uh, just rest here until 545 so that anyone else uh, in the public that doesn't understand executive sessions won't miss anything. So we'll just pause here till 545. Carry on. Carry on. Ready. Okay. Welcome back, everyone, to the June 21st, 2022 City Commission meeting. Um, we had previously had an executive session. We had nothing to report. So now we're returning to our regular meeting. Um, the first thing we like to do is let Porter O'Neill give us some ground rules for um, how we will comport ourselves. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. I just have a few housekeeping items for the Zoom meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mayor Shipley. Thank you, Porter. Um, next, um, Sherry will um, explain to us um, how the public comment portions work. When the mayor calls for in-person public comment, individuals attending here in the room should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Please remember to state your name before speaking. 
Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name before speaking. All comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just gonna pause for one second. Mr. Cadu. Hey, um, there is some uh, mechanism for people who can't hear very well. Is there someone who could help him use that? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It, it's it, it, that system is not working. It doesn't work. Um, then I recommend uh, you sit on this side because you can hear better. Okay, thank you. Sorry, everyone. I apologize. Um, just want to make sure people can access us. Um, uh, let's go to approving the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. And I do believe a commissioner is interested in that. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I would like to have stricken from tonight's agenda under regular agenda items, item number two, which is to receive the 2022 financial budget update slash report from Explore Lawrence. Um, my rationale is looking at the other brevity points of the agenda and um, seeing that we recently had the unmistakable identity presentation um, and there was an opportunity for us to hear from some of the other partners in the unmistakable identity team. And I really would like, I feel like Tonight's presentation um, from Ms. Onspach would be more germane to at, to be be given at a different time, um, and to allow the other entities of the unmistakable identity team, i.e., Watkins, Theodore Lawrence, and some of our other groups, to be able to do the presentation of the same level at a different time. So I'm asking to remove item number two under H, regular uh, regular agenda items to be stricken. Um, in the interest of moving along, um, I agree. Um, it does make sense for them to um, uh, give the report along with other people um, uh, of similar situations um, as opposed to giving them either extra time or putting them on the spot more either way you look at it. Um, so uh, I'm comfortable with that. Uh, any motions? Um. I move the strike item number two. Sorry. Just a question. Uh, I'm caught off guard here. Did you <laughs> know this is coming? I mean, I guess you're on the board. Are you on the? I am. So I did know it was coming. I didn't know what the presentation, after looking at the presentation and in culmination with the presentation we had from, the abbreviated presentation we had from Derek with the unmistakable identity, I do remember at a meet, I do believe it was either our March or April meeting, one of the items I had asked for was that the, the groups in the unmistakable identity team come back and do a work session, work session with us to give us an update. Because I do remember this time last year, um, more importantly in May, those same groups came before the city commission and gave an economic overview of where they were um, financially um, in their space. And so my thought process was is that they gave that presentation last year. We're in a transition this year and there's been several um, there's been several changes and updates with that group and so I wanted that same group to come back in front of us to do an update 
as things started to mature, it sounded like that presentation was going to be given during the unmistakable identity outcome presentation. That presentation was abbreviated, and I was hoping that there would be some additional information provided to us, somehow, maybe a one-page update document to give us a high-level overview of those groups. Since we did not get received that information, I would like for us to still give those groups the opportunity to share with us how things have what updates and things, uh, uh, situation items have changed in that last year and to give them the space to do that, whether that's at, on another agenda item, um, another agenda time or during our special meeting, whatever it may be. But I would like to, since I believe what Ms. Ongspach's um, presentation is going to be, is very germane to information we would probably want to hear from the other groups. And so this gives everyone in the Unmistakable Identity team an opportunity to come back in front of us and present and share lessons learned, things that have passed since that last year, since they came before the commission and, and presented. Okay, that makes sense. Uh... But I think Commissioner Lawson was the one who asked for this. Are you okay with putting yeah, it to another time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sounds like. So again, a motion. I move to strike agenda under H, regular agenda items, item number two, from the um, from the agenda. Um. Do I hear a second? <laughs> Second. Okay. Okay. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Uh, all those opposed? Uh, that passes five to zero. Um, so then we still need to approve our agenda. Right? Yeah. Just because we struck something doesn't mean we did we don't right, still need to approve it. I can reframe my motion to say <laughs> move to approve like with the so all right, move to approve the agenda as changed. As changed. Okay. Second. First and second. All those in favor? Okay. Aye. Opposed? Uh, passes five to zero. Great. Let's move to recognitions and proclamations. Um, this will be a presentation of Lawrence Police Department Citizens Distinguished Service Award to Spencer Lewis. All right, Madam Mayor, we're up. We are here to recognize Spencer Lewis. Uh, Spencer's a young man uh, during the night of the High V shooting. He uh, was working at the 23rd Street Brewery, which is right across the parking lot. He uh, ran, as soon as he heard the shots, he ran across the parking lot. About halfway to when he got to the first victim, he started taking his shirt off, got there, started applying pressure with his own shirt. And after he kind of got some help working on that person, he went over to try and stabilize the other person. And uh, so we want to recognize him for his exemplary service to our community. And so we've got an award that uh, I believe the mayor is going to read for you, Spencer. And this is Spencer. Hi, Spencer. Thank you. Do you have anything you want to say? Um, no pressure. <laughs> no. You've already done enough. <laughs> um, no, I just thought that, you know, I should help. Um, and I mean, if that situation was presented in front of me again, I would do the same thing. And I just thought that's what needed to be done to help. So. Very good. Thank you so much. Okay. 
On Tuesday, May 18th, 2022, at 2141 hours, officers with the Lawrence Police Department were dispatched to the Hy-Vee located at 3504 Clinton Parkway in reference to a shooting. Upon arrival, officers located two victims and several witnesses standing nearby. Throughout the investigation, it was learned Spencer Lewis, who was working at the 23rd Street Bray at the time of the incident, ran to render aid to the victims without concern for his personal safety. Once on scene, Mr. Lewis was able to remain calm, render aid, and take notes of his surroundings for investigators. He was also able to guide another witness through triage of each victim's injuries for 911 purposes while still being at risk of becoming a victim himself. It is for this quick response and selfless actions that we present the Lawrence Police Department Citizens Distinguished Service Award this 21st day of June 2022. Thank you. Also, Madam Mayor, if I might, uh, Spencer's boss from the brewery is here and he wanted to say a couple of words as well. Uh, Matt Llewellyn from 23rd Street Brewery. And just on behalf of the brewery, I cannot tell you how proud we are of Spencer and what he did that night. Um, it just kind of gets gives me goosebumps and chills to realize and see the film the actual film of what happened it's an incredible feat of bravery and we are so proud to have him working with us and and look forward to helping him throughout his future and whatever he decides to do and uh we're gonna we're gonna give we'll reward you a little monetarily as well okay buddy okay. but uh anyway just congratulations to this well-deserving young man thank you So we also have some uh, Lawrence Police Department swag for you, so we'll give you that. And also, I'm going to be talking to Chief Fagan because Spencer's decided he wants to be a paramedic. So uh, he oh, wow. got yeah. in his calling. So we're going to be working on that and see if we can make that happen as well. Excellent. So, thank, thank you so, you so much, much, Spencer. Congratulations. Um, our next item is the consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Are there any items that commissioners would like to remove from the consent agenda? I have one, Mayor. What you uh, got? Item D8A, the, the pedestrian plan. Oh, really? And just, I thought I was going to be the one that pulled that. <laughs> okay, D8A. We'll let everybody get a little settled here. Are there uh, any items that the public would like to remove from the consent agenda? Any other items that members of the public in the room here would like to remove from consent? And let's check online. Is there Are there any items uh, that any of the members online or the Zoom would like to remove from our consent agenda? 
Uh, there's no more items to pull, Mayor. Okay. Wait, actually, let me see. Oh, oh I can answer. Okay. We're all right? Yeah, that's it, Mayor. Okay. Uh, do I, um, well, do I have any motions? Move to accept the consent agenda with the exceptions of D7A and D8A. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 All those opposed? Passes five to zero. All right, that brings us to D7A, the DARE Center. Hi, this is Chris Flowers. Um, last week, I I pushed for y'all to give the DARE Center 10 years instead of five years for their SUP. And one of the reasons that staff gave is because they didn't give an annual report for all three years. I would argue that they did give the, I mean, they. my understanding is because of COVID that it resulted in just the final one. Um, and I guess 21, I think. But um, I was going to bring up again the the wine the wine tasting place on Pennsylvania. They got the staff recommended them 10 years, and they didn't submit a single. Um, what I forget what it's called. Um, the annual report. So why is it fair that there has to give three three annual reports and the the wine tasting establish, establishment that's considered to be a bar slash lounge doesn't have to give a single annual report before it gets its 10 years. Um, and also, I don't know if you all look through the, the DARE's annual report, but um, like when it comes to calls to the police in the three years, there was only one call there for a fight. Um, the, the top, the top um, calls by the police were adult welfare check, request to speak to an officer and follow up to an investigation. And I think those three calls, that's more... Um, like calls for the homeless. It's not like calls against them. I don't think like if you are homeless, when, if you're having some kind of a, med a medical emergency or need to talk to an officer, I think the dare would be the type of place you might go to. I mean, isn't that where they go to use the phone? Um, and I just, I think it's kind of BS that we are holding dare to higher standards. I think than what we requested of the, the wine tasting place that's classified to be a bar lounge over on Pennsylvania. So, and I just like to point, it's not really costing the city to, to um, extend there's SUP time, like the years they get, it's, it's just providing, it's giving them more leeway and bringing down ops, like the barriers. And I think that's what we should be doing as a city. I mean, that's just from a libertarian point of view, um, breaking down barriers for nonprofits to serve the city is something we should be striving to do. Thank you. Nope. I want to echo what uh, Chris just said, because what we're seeing is that more budget money is going into the things that harm the community rather than the things that help them help the community. And we already have a lacking 
mental health on the street. I've been having people let me know that they call for mental health assistance. And the next thing you know, somebody's criminally charged. Um, we need to have resources. And this is one of those resources. So it's not costing the city any money. Is there any reason why we can't do it? I, I, I just, if it doesn't cost any money to the city, and it's ready to go. Let's just continue it. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any further comment on this item in the room? Is it the speakers outside? Okay. We we unfortunately have a um, antiquated audio system. So what you're hearing is the reverberation from the television outside. We can reduce the volume to some degree. Um, so I'll take care of that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, any other comments in the room on this item, the DARE Center? Uh, let's make sure there's no one online on Zoom who would like to comment on this item. Thank you, Michael Fatoud. There are no comments, Mayor. Okay, let's bring it back to the commission. Any comments or discussion? Nope. I'm fine with the way it is written right now. I'm fine. Um, any uh, motions, therefore? I move to adopt on second and final reading ordinance number 9917. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? Passes five to zero. Uh, the next item was DAA. Ms. Commissioner, I'm sorry, Vice Mayor. Yes, I just had a, a quick, um, first of all, I think it's a great plan. Um, appreciate all the work that staff has put into this. I did have a question about the brick sidewalk program and I got, um, I've had some folks ask me about it. And what I noticed in the plan was just essentially that a committee has been formed in 2019, but there's no information as to what the um, status is of that committee or what the plan is for getting that, um, that work done. So I was hoping staff could help me understand Understand that better. This is Jessica Morton, your transportation planning manager. We're responsible for the pedestrian plan, but I'm gonna, I can try to answer that. But if you want some additional information, I would need to call on either Melinda uh, Harger or David Cronin to help answer that. Um, that was the information that was provided to us when we started this planning process to scope the work that we intended to include in this process, that there was an ongoing BRIC committee. Um, it's my understanding that with staffing changes, that's still a work item on a list, but it has not, it's not actively um, being worked on due to staffing. So if there's more details you want in regard to that, hopefully either Dave or Melinda can provide additional specification. Yeah, I'd like to get an idea of when that committee is going to start meeting and actually um, putting together a plan for the brick sidewalks. And if we don't have an answer now, <laughs> we could, if the staff could get that information, I don't need it right this second. That's just what I was going to say. I see Melinda yeah. logging on. Or up and on. She, she wants to talk. Okay. Well, we can do that. We don't need it right now. Okay. 
uh, well, uh, I would love to be uh, included on that information when it's sent out, um, especially since I know in some areas um, there, um, even that are being addressed right now that are partially brick and partially concrete. And how does that play out as yeah. staff tries to enforce yeah. that? Um, so I would, I would love to hear that information also. Okay. Um, that's all I had. That's all you had. Um, any comments from uh, the room on the pedestrian plan? Uh, anyone online wanting to comment on the pedestrian plan? There's no public comment. Okay, thank you. Um, I was going to try to avoid pulling this. Um, as you know, it has the word sidewalks in it. Um, and I did not vote to approve it at um, MPO. I abstained. I abstained because of my stance on sidewalks. Um, it, the group that worked on this um, were fantastic, but they also were not particularly provided with information about how sidewalks are financed or not financed. Um, and so while I appreciate the diplomacy of some of the language of it, I really do, um, for, you know, continue to implement the sidewalk improvement program and evolve as needed. I appreciate that. Um, it is still not strong enough. I, as you all know, um, cannot, um, uh, countenance the idea that some people get free sidewalks and some people don't so um with that uh, unless there's any other con conversation i'll entertain a motion i'll make a motion uh, approve the lawrence pedestrian plan and resolution number 7432 second i have a first and a second all those in favor aye, aye. all those opposed aye that passes four to one No, no, I got to get back. Uh, that brings us to our public comment. The public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. My name is Dr. Justin Spies, and I'm running as a Republican for Douglas County uh, District 1 Commissioner, and the seat is currently held by Democrat Patrick Kelly. I'm known around here for starting a protest in July 2021 against the school mask mandates. I did this because I believe then and still believe today that masking children is child abuse and involves serious negative consequences, and therefore it needed to be stopped. No one listened. Current District 1 Commissioner Patrick Kelly is a USD 497 school district administrator, and he, he makes $122,813 a year, which is an increase from his 2020 salary of $109,938. The school district continues to be in a massive budget crisis right now that has led to an increase in teacher and staff resignations. In fact, LJ World ran an article on the 19th on the 141 teachers and other certified staff who have resigned from the USD 497 school district, which is an increase by more than two and a half times since the 2019-2020 school year. Additionally, in order to cut costs, the school district plans for one third of elementary classes to be multi-grade next year. What do you all think out there? You all out there. Do you think that understaffed and overcrowded classrooms are going to turn out well or not? 
not well for the education and development of our students, your kids. But keep cashing them checks, Patrick. Keep cashing them checks. Another Douglas County Commissioner Democrat, Dr. Shannon Portillo, recently announced she's leaving her elected seat on the commission less than 18 months into her four-year term for a more prestigious, prestigious job in academia. I look at her resignation as a third scalp to collect since I started my child mass mandate protest last July. First, Douglas County Health Department Director Thomas Marcelino couldn't handle the pressure I put on him, so he resigned. Then USD 497 Superintendent Anthony Lewis couldn't handle the pressure I put on him, so he applied for a new job in his hometown in Alabama, but didn't get the job. But now we all know that he don't want to be here now and would leave if he could. And now Commissioner Portillo resigned for selfish reasons having to do with money and greed, of course, but also because she can't handle the pressure I put on her. I got three of you in less than a year, and I'm coming for all the rest of you. Don't forget to vote yes on August 2nd to keep baby murder illegal because, well, it's baby murder, and therefore it's wrong. And it don't get any simpler than that. <clears throat> and if you support baby murder, then they can get you to support anything. I mean, think about it. Is there anything worse than baby murder? Anything worse than killing a baby during a, during an abortion, what is essentially a turkey baster is stuck into the baby's head, through his skull, into his brain. Now, keep in mind here that the baby is still alive, just chilling in the womb, fully alive, fully human up to this point. And once a turkey baster is in the baby's skull, the doctor turns on the suction and the baby's brain is sucked out from its head. Another way abortion is done is we have the baby in the womb who, again, is just he's fully alive, fully human, just chilling in the womb. And the doctor uses forceps to rip each each of the baby's limbs off one at a time. So the baby's arms and legs are ripped from its body while it's alive. And so if you'll support that, there's nothing you won't support. This dehumanization of life has led to a genocide of hundreds of millions of babies being killed. If you will de dehumanize a baby by claiming it's not even a human and then support killing it, then imagine what they can get you to think and do to anyone. Imagine what they can get you to think and do to the people you already don't like, like politician or political opponents or people you disagree with. They can get you to dislike people tomorrow who you like today. And the evil powers that be know this all about you, baby murderers. Keep that in mind. And just remember, there's no such thing as safe abortion since it's, it always Thank results you. in the murder of an innocent baby. Don't let them fool you. If murder is involved, it's not safe. Hi, my name is Sue Herrick. This evening, I'm here to talk about the terms of something called the Fogan effect. This may be new to many of you. Please look it up. It's spelled F-O-E-G-E-N. Read the details after hearing about it from me. It's a particular and unique interest to us because it involves research done by Dr. Zacharias Fogan, a, a doctor in Germany who used Kansas and its 105 counties as the basis for his study. As I lay this out for you, as I give you the big picture, think about how the decisions made by this body here tonight by following county guidelines are responsible for the terrible outcomes shown in this study. At the end, ask yourself what lies ahead for you. The study, now called the Fogan effect after Dr. Fogan's research, shows how masks cause hyper-condensed particles caught by the masks to be re-inhaled and introduced deeper into the respiratory tract. Here in Kansas, 84 of our 105 counties refused to enforce mask mandates. Counties and cities that enforced the mandates, such as Douglas County and Lawrence, had a 52% increase in the deaths from COVID. That number again is 52%. This city, per your orders, was one of the cities in a county falling into the higher mortality. Not only did you kill businesses here, you killed people. 
Another doctor, Aaron Cariarty, if I'm pronouncing his name right, made this statement. Once you get infected, if you're wearing a mask, this study suggests that your chance of having a bad outcome of dying from COVID was higher. And that probably had to do with rebreathing virus from these condensed droplets that had a lot of particle density in them. Prolonged mask usage having a negative consequence has largely been ignored by researchers until recently. A recent peer-reviewed study in Europe suggests that the universal use of masks may have had harmful, unintended consequences. In the weeks ahead, before the next election cycle, all of us need to shake the wool off our eyes. The city of Lawrence, Douglas County commissioners, and the state of Kansas officials were in lockstep to mask citizens of Lawrence. Never again. Our eyes are open. Next time, look for candidates like Dr. Spees, courageous people who stand and protect instead of people like all of you who go along to get along. People like you who are too weak to lead. We've had enough. My name is Joe Herrick. I'd like to start with the uh, quote from Thomas Jefferson. There is no justification for taking away individuals' liberty in the guise of public safety, end quote. As citizens, rather than subjects, the government is to serve us, not the other way around. Amendments 5 and 14 of the U.S. Constitution states, no person shall be deprived of their life, liberty, or property without due process. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines liberty as a state of condition of a people who act or speak freely and a power to choose and do what they want to. It is a state of exemption from control of others. Liberty, in other words, is the freedom to say no. Individual liberties may not be overridden by government dictates without due process present. The Constitution does not begin with we the lawyers or we the judges or we the politicians. The ionic words are we the people. So therefore, the ultimate jurisdiction belongs to those who voted you into office. Mandates are connected to no legislative process. U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 1. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress in the United States, which shall consist of Senate and House representatives. Legislative power is the power to make law, modify law, and repeal law. This power belongs to the legislative departments of government, and those powers are vested in those bodies. Vested means those powers are irrevocable and cannot be given away or transferred for any reason. Therefore, mandates have no power of law because it is illegal for the legislature to give the governor or health agency the power to legislate. Since mandates are not law, and since they violate the rule of law, not abiding by mandates is not a violation of the law nor a violation of the Constitution. Adhering to unlawful mandates may place you at risk of being prosecuted for enforcing illegal mandates. 
Finally, the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause calls for all Americans to be treated equally. Therefore, there is a general question for everyone. Why were the masked and the unmasked, the vaccinated and unvaccinated treated differently? Are we experiencing a new form of discrimination? Think critically. Recognize why you Time. sit there and who your true voice of America is. Thank we you. the people. Any other public comment? In the last couple of weeks, I've gotten pretty angry with this process because I sit and listen to police officers lie about the way they conduct the process. I've shown you guys how that process has been misconstrued and misapplied. On the way here this evening, I watched officers stop a young man on the street, a minor, without his parents there. And it took me asking him or telling him, ask the officer if you're being detained. Ask the officer if you're being detained. Two years ago, I would have been manhandled by the cops for that. They know better than to screw around with me now. So they didn't say a word. And this young man asked the officer if he was being detained eventually. And the officer kind of, well, uh, you know, I want to, want to, wouldn't answer. My point with this is that the officers know that we don't know our rights. Out of all the people in this room, I bet there's half that don't know the extent of their rights when they encounter police. And that's a problem because the police exploit that. And it gets deeper with the, what the changes that they're wanting you to make to the laws. The police are going to make their changes regardless, apparently. I, I understand you guys have no purview over that. So the chief is going to sign off on that. And they're going to take away wording that prevents officers from violating constitutional law. We've already seen in the last couple of weeks that these officers do violate constitutional law on a regular basis. It's habitual. It's a common practice to threaten charges to get people to comply with illegal wishes. They're, he didn't want me following him, so he decided to threaten a charge. It's not appropriate. We have a lot of people in this community that have mental health needs. And when officers show up and they behave like that, somebody gets a criminal charge. And it's not right. Now, there's something new that I was made aware of this week, 988. I don't see any heads shaking. There's a new thing coming, 988. Now, I hesitate because this one is one that I think is being misconstrued to the public already. I've had a couple of people reach out to me and tell me that this is supposedly something where instead of calling 911, they call 988 and mental health people actually respond like the police. Now, I look this up. And it links back to the Suicide Prevention Center. So if somebody in this city or this county is selling this as some kind of mental health to the community, I want you guys to stop that lie right now. Because that it doesn't appear to be what this is. It appears to be a hotline connected back to the Suicide Prevention Center. So if, I, there's somebody at the county that was saying some things. Have a good night. Hello, 
Um, so I want to speak a bit to what we, we heard a few minutes ago um, about this so-called Fogan effect, because um, I had never heard of it. And I was interested, you know, to see, see what it was, what it was all about. Um, and so this Fogan effect is, was found in this, uh, what's called an ecological study, which is usually where they look at whole populations and aggregate data. Um, and the problem with this kind of study is they're incredibly susceptible um, to confounding factors. Um, it's why it's only one of two studies um, that have been performed that have found this kind of link compared to an entire body of medical evidence that kind of proves the efficacy of, of masks. Um, so I just kind of wanted to, to point out this is a complete outlier study. Um, I think mask mandates have been proven to have um, very helpful effects in, in communities around the country. Um, just wanted to share bit about what I learned so that the community isn't misled, uh, as it were. Thank you. Any other public comment? Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. I just want to, um, I didn't really come to make public comment, but I just remembered hearing about the police that um, this past, like, well, the past month or so, I've been seeing a lot of campus cops. I mean, more so than I remember in, in recent years. And I've seen them being, pulling people over, but um, like, one place I saw and pulled over was in front of the, I think it's U.S. Bank across from Title Max Loan on 23rd Street. And I don't know where the driver made his infraction at, but I don't, I don't know why campus cops should be pulling people over on 23rd. Now, I've heard that they can pull people over when it's adjacent to campus property, but I don't see what's adjacent at 23rd. And also, um, last week, I was west of Lawrence Avenue, and I'm heading out towards Crossgate on Clinton Parkway. And I had, okay, I, I kind of of made a questionable move while I was driving. And then I noticed this campus cop, he kind of speeds up and then he kind of maneuvers himself also. And then he starts following me. And then he's like following me kind of close, like not just like not the normal way po police do, but the way police do before they pull you over. And he's following me and he follows me all the way down to the roundabout by Hyvee um, gas. And then he just goes all the way through the roundabout and up and back and goes back the way we, ca we came. So I'm just wondering what's up with that. I mean, this wasn't Lawrence police. This was a campus cop. Are campus cops getting involved in um, like do city police work? And it did say, I looked through like the statute or whatever, it did say they can with cooperation, I think, from the city police. So I'm just wondering if there's something going on that we don't know about. Thank you. Any other comments? General public comment? I just have a point of order, Madam Mayor. Would this be the proper time to talk about the May 17th letter of commitment with KDOT about the Wakarusa Drive extension. It's on the CIP. Yeah, but it's separate. We won't be talking about it separately. Right. We put, Mayor, we did put all the public comment regarding that on the CIP item. I should talk referring to. Oh, you did. Okay. 
during CMA. Okay. During, yeah. Come at, at let's the, with CIP then. At the end of the meeting. Okay. <laughs> sure. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Anyone else? <laughs> Not quite. There is some online if we're okay. that in the room. Um, Joel Campbell. Hi, sorry, I just want to double check. I'm also here to give public comment about um, the expansion south of the South Lawrence traffic way. Should I wait until later on or give that now? Yeah, that'd be great. Can you wait for us? Yeah, sure. Thanks. And I just wanted to share that, Mayor, because a lot of the comment mentioned the CIP and that item, so that's where we put it. But it's really at your discretion, but that's where we place the written public oh, okay. on that item. Anyone else public comment that's not about the Wakarusa extension? Nope, I lost one. I think Deb wants to. Deb? You send us. Yep. <laughs> Good evening. Uh, my name is Deb Engstrom. And um, on behalf of the Justice Battersdale Alternative Research Committee, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk to you tonight um, and also to City Manager Craig Owens about an opportunity presented in the upcoming retirement of Judge Miller. Um, we appreciate the more than 10 years of hard work that Judge Miller has performed. We should not rush to fill this position permanently, however, without a review of the municipal court as a whole. Because Lawrence Municipal Court judgeships tend to be very long-term, it behooves the city to appoint an interim judge to allow the city commission and the Lawrence community to have serious public dialogue about the municipal court. Some particular points along those lines are how might we improve efficiencies and reduce court cases, inequities, and jail sentences? Review city codes and penalties and modify them so that most offenses might not end up in court? and review the overall role and scope of the municipal courts. The appointment of a permanent municipal court judge is made by the city manager. However, we think that this very important appointment, one that could last a decade or more, deserves a thorough public vetting by the city commission that includes the opportunity for input from the Lawrence community. Over the past few years, the city of Lawrence and Douglas County have enjoyed a spirit of cooperation and collaboration on a number of fronts aimed at reducing incarceration, ending homelessness, and eliminating racial disparities in our community. Now is a perfect time to have a comprehensive review of our Lawrence Municipal Court before a new judge is permanently appointed. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Any further public comment online? Uh, that's all the comments. Okay. Um, then, golly, that brings us to our work session. Work session provides an opportunity for the city commission to discuss items in greater detail. The commission will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work session topics are eligible for live public comment. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Uh, let me get clicked over here. Uh, Jeff, <laughs> I can't see you yet. <laughs> Good evening, Commissioners. Jeff Craig, Food Planning, Planning and Development Services. I just wanted to give a, a brief introduction before Leah really uh, gives us the whole presentation and goes through the detail here. And I'm going to try to convince Zoom I know how to share my screen, which is not <laughs> always a guarantee I have learned. So 
Hopefully that's working for everybody. Brilliant. Okay, great. Well, again, I'm very lucky to be leading the strong and welcoming neighborhoods portion of the strategic plan. We have a, quite a number of indicators here. And one of the items we're going to talk about tonight is kind of going back to some of those that we had talked about previously, which are five, six, and seven, which are uh, the households experiencing housing stress, the individuals experiencing homelessness, and also the affordable housing sales tax and how that's that's working in the community. And so Leah is going to give a, a great presentation to talk about some of the details for those. And I will keep sharing the screen to kind of make it easier on everybody. But I, Leah, by all means, let me know when to change the slides. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jeff. And Jeff, if you wouldn't mind advancing to slide four. Thank you. Uh, first, I'm going to provide some foundational information. Uh, actually, uh, um, I apologize. Jeff, could you go back one more? Thank you. I just wanted to um, make sure that we're all on the same page, that this evening we will be talking about the Strong Welcoming Neighborhoods Indicators five, six, and seven, as you can see on the screen. Okay, Jeff, thank you. <laughs> um, so first I'm gonna provide some foundational information about the indicators we will be discussing, then move on to looking specifically at SW and five, six, and seven, and finally close with some policy considerations for discussion and feedback. I will be as succinct as possible while covering this very complex and important community issue. And I will start with just a brief overview of the continuum of community housing needs. The continuum starts with emergency shelter, but I want to note that shelter is not a home. Emergency shelter options for all members of our community experiencing homelessness is a critical measure for public health and safety and is a necessary community resource. However, the goal is that shelter stays are as brief and rare as possible, because even in the most trauma-informed shelters, there is a reoccurrence of trauma that happens during a shelter stay as by nature, it's a crisis management environment and does not provide the stabilizing factors of a home. And so our goal then is to move people from the crisis of homelessness to the stability as housing with as much dignity and expediency as possible. Um, transitional housing is exactly what it sounds like. It's a transition from emergency crisis shelter to more permanent affordable housing for certain segments of the population experiencing homelessness. Transitional housing is often congregate or group housing with case management supports, and while still representing crisis, can provide additional stabilizing factors for residents while they work towards permanent supportive or affordable housing. Supportive housing combines non-time-limited housing assistance with wraparound supportive services for people experiencing homelessness, as well as people with disabilities or residents with a range of needs that require ongoing supports, which allow them to successfully maintain their housing. Research has shown unequivocally that supportive housing not only resolves homelessness and increases health outcomes for individuals, but also lowers public costs by reducing the use of publicly funded crisis services such as hospitals and jails. And then finally, there is affordable housing. Affordable housing is defined in several ways. So one, it's defined as by HUD is when housing costs, including utilities and insurance, consumes no more than 30% of a household's income. Affordable housing can uh, be created through government subsidies, specifically targeting income qualified, very low and low income residents. 
but affordable housing can also be market rate housing that is by design affordable for lower and moderate income workers. The affordability is often built in by density, and it's just simple math. The more units per lot, the more affordable each unit can be. For example, mobile home communities have historically been naturally market rate affordable housing. And a well-balanced housing stock for Lawrence means that there is housing choice for every resident for housing that is accessible, appropriate, and affordable. Um, local government has substantial impact of affordability of housing through policy decisions and build it, embedded in the building code, land development code, administrative processes, incentives for developers, and through the response to neighborhood opposition when new developments are planned. Later in the presentation, we will be discussing some of those solutions that leverage affordable housing and asking for your guidance. But to wrap up this slide, I want to make a few points about our values around affordable housing. First, affordable housing does not mean substandard housing. Every resident, regardless of income, deserves safe and healthy housing. A core value is additionally that affordable housing is interdispersed throughout our community and that it is indistinguishable from other types of housing stock in the neighborhood. And then finally, housing choice is another value as it's important for all community members, regardless of income, to have reasonable choice for housing options. And these options should include housing stock that is reflective of the rich cultural and familial diversity that is in Lawrence. All right, I'm ready for the next slide, Jeff. Thank you. This chart provides a snapshot of the housing stock needs of Lawrence with the first five data points from 2018 uh, through the Lawrence housing market analysis. As you're aware, however, we have had a pandemic and since that time housing has gotten both more expensive and more scarce. Finding housing that is affordable is becoming more out of reach for more and more Lawrence residents. Home prices have increased an average of 10 to 20% across the nation for both renters and homeowners. And as a result of stagnant wages, inflation, the rise in home prices, and the lack of adequate safety net supports, more people are becoming cost burdened by housing and with one health or financial crisis are falling into homelessness. Without going too deep into the data, I just want to note one point, which is that Families with young children in Lawrence are more likely to experience homelessness or displacement due to high housing costs. And every one of these children in our community deserves a safe, stable, and healthy home environment so that they can have the same opportunities in life as their house peers. So the future of our children really is dependent on our housing stock in our community. It's important to note also that some communities in Lawrence do experience disproportionate housing outcomes. For example, Black, Latinx, and Asian Pacific Islander Lawrence residents experience higher rates of housing problems, including housing insecurity, overcrowding, or substandard housing than white Lawrence residents, according to the Lawrence uh, Fair Housing Assessment. In addition, Native American, Black, and multi-ethnic populations are all above their Douglas County population percentages in terms of homelessness, indicating greater housing and security in those communities. In large part, this can be attributed to the legacy of institutionalized systemic racism in U.S. housing policies, such as redlining and discriminatory lending practices, 
which have acted as barriers against Black, Indigenous, people of color communities access to home ownership or safer quality housing. And another factor is income disparity among these populations, which is significant in Douglas County as in the rest of the country. Additional subpopulations in Lawrence with disproportionate housing needs include single mothers, seniors, and persons with disabilities. And as these data illustrate, affordable housing is a fundamental issue of uh, racial and gender justice, equity, and inclusion. Now, moving on into looking directly at the Strong Welcoming Neighborhood Goals uh, Indicators 5, 6, and 7, SWN 5 seeks to reduce the percentage of households that are experiencing housing stress. Housing stress is defined as households spending more than 30% of their income on housing. This indicator has recently been updated to differentiate between renters and owners, as not only do the statistics differ between each population, but the associated strategies to achieve those goals also differ. So about one in two renters in Lawrence are cost burdened and additional strategies um, for renters include increasing afford affordable uh, rental stock and increasing the utilization of housing vouchers. Meanwhile, about one in four homeowners are experiencing housing stress and it will require different strategies to move the needle in that area. This strategy really relies on both increasing our overall housing stock and incentivizing affordable and workforce housing development. Targets are still being updated, although the Douglas County Community Health Plan does include target measures for these same areas. And so we are giving heavy consideration to alignment uh, for target measures for collective impact. SWN6 seeks to reduce the point in time count of people experiencing homelessness by creating lasting solutions. Um, to housing. Examples of these strategies include using collective impact models to maintain housing stability and the Built for Zero project, which is a collaborative group working towards a functional zero of chronic homelessness in the county. The Housing Initiatives Division staff have been discussing um, and reconsidering this metric as the point in time count is not necessarily a consistently valid number. It really depends on how the count is conducted that year and factors including you know, environment, et cetera. So rather than using the point and time number, the team has been discussing using the by names list, which is a real time list maintained by homeless service providers and is a more accurate count of the number of individuals facing um, homelessness. Um, a key component in being able to achieve this goal is rapid rehousing, which provides short-term rental assistance and services um, so that people can be rehoused quickly. And I want to, I, I thought it was important to include this slide, um, even though it's not directly related to affordable housing, the direct connection is that in order for people to move quickly from homelessness to housing, there needs to be housing for them to move into. And this is really where we're experiencing a severe bottleneck in Lawrence. Um, we have vouchers, uh, housing choice vouchers, um, that have been given to residents and they have not been able to find rental units to utilize those vouchers. Um, this creates a situation where sometimes those vouchers have to be returned and then we lose a resource in our community and then those families are staying in homelessness longer um, simply because we don't have a house for them to move into. 
The goal of SWN7 is to leverage affordable housing investments made with trust funds. The current strategies focus on investing in additional housing stock and increasing funding to leverage the affordable housing trust fund to support more housing developments and renovations. Those strategies, however, will be diminished without additionally leveraging other policy tools to encourage greater density in the development of affordable and workforce housing. Changes in our land development code will be a critical component of leveraging our sales tax dollars, particularly given the new housing supply action plan that came out of the White House. And one component of, of that plan is that jurisdictions will be rewarded in federal grant processes when they have reformed their zoning and land use policies that are known to increase um, affordable housing developments. And later in the presentation, I'll be providing some policy considerations for discussion. Okay, I um, did cover this already, but before I move on to policy considerations, I want to ensure we have a common definition of affordable housing that will be used through the rest of the presentation. So you can see the definition here, which is used by HUD and also the city of Lawrence. This graphic shows some of, some of the factors influencing the cost of housing. There are many factors that influence affordable housing stocks, some of which we have control over and some we don't. The city does not have control over the cost of materials, for example. However, there are many factors we can control, such as our internal processes, the land development and building codes, purchase and disposition policies, and community engagement efforts, just to name a few. And so this evening, um, we will be focusing on a couple of the factors that drive housing costs that local governments do control and providing some recommendations in these areas. So it, um, at this point, we'd like to move into some policy considerations that we believe are immediately viable options and that would really move the needle on these indicators. The next four slides are focused on these considerations and I'll provide just a brief overview of each policy. But before we move into it, I wanna say there's so much we can do to increase affordable housing in Lawrence that we have not implemented. And we would very much welcome and appreciate your guidance on prioritization of these strategies so staff knows really where to lean in first. So the first um, in the first recommendation um, is to have a city land bank. A land bank is a municipal entity created to acquire, hold, manage, and sometimes redevelop property in order to return these pr properties to productive use to meet community goals, such as affordable housing. In high cost localities such as Lawrence, where there are few tax delinquent properties and vacant lots, land banks can serve as a vehicle for holding land purchased strategically for future affordable housing development. And in addition to acquiring and holding land, land banks can maintain, rehab, demolish, and sell or lease the property. I wanna note that a land bank is distinct from a community land trust, which is our community is really lucky to have um, through tenants to homeowners. Both strategies when leveraged together can really help to preserve and increase affordable housing stock because for example, the land bank could exercise its authority to obtain tax delinquent properties, clear the title and then transfer the deed to the land trust, which can then retain ownership of the property and ensure its long-term affordability. The 
Um, the second um, item is a vacant structure ordinance. <laughs> so short story, I love to watch walk my two chihuahuas around my neighborhood in Brook Creek. Um, and when I go on my walks, I walk past maybe half a dozen vacant and dilapidated houses. And in my work, it pains me to see houses sitting empty, like for years and falling into disrepair, because I understand how urgently people need those houses. And um, these homes would be great examples of naturally occurring housing stock, old fixer uppers, but because we as a city don't have a system for tracking, monitoring, and utilizing vacant um, housing structures, they sometimes sit empty and fall into such disrepair that they require demolition. And every time this happens, we lose a vital community asset and affordable housing stock. And I will note that it is not by any means just a Creek neighborhood. That's just the wonderful neighborhood where I live. It's across many, many neighborhoods in Lawrence. So a vacant property registration ordinance is a common policy tool used by localities to identify properties, establish require, uh, requirements for the maintenance of those properties, um, and then has a mechanism for obtaining those properties um, if they remain vacant um, and un unutilized. Um, the properties would be prime opportunities to obtain for a city land bank. The land bank can purchase and revitalize these properties, and vacant structural ordinances are used in other Kansas communities as well as communities throughout the U.S. as part of neighborhood revitalization and affordable housing efforts. The next one I will discuss is an affordable housing overlay zone. And that is a zoning tool that adds layers on top of existing zoning ordinances to provide incentives for developers to build affordable housing. With all good intentions, the current land development code does drive up the cost of housing and creates barriers for affordable housing development. Members of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board and affordable housing stakeholder groups continually lift up the need for changes in our code that are essential for creating housing stock. But we know that process is underway. However, we're in a housing crisis. And so we're looking to do something that we might be able to do more immediate than a whole code update. Um, so what an overlay zone is, is a solution that, again, could overlay on our current code. And um, it provides a variety of incentives for, to developers to include affordable units in their projects. And these incentives could include increased density bonuses, increased allowable heights or parking requirements by right zoning, um, streamlined permitting, or allowing housing in locations not currently zoned for residential uses. Um, and, uh, Affordable housing overlay zone is an incredibly strong tool in leveraging affordable housing development and has had tremendous success in tight markets. And we strongly believe that this is a critical policy tool to advance our goals. The next item are tax abatements, which you're familiar with. Um, property tax abatements is a tool to reduce or eliminate taxes granted to property owners in order to stimulate publicly beneficial activities such as affordable housing. Um, tax abatements can be used to provide incentive for new development, preservation of existing affordable housing renovations to upgrade a unit's condition, um, or retention of ownership. We do leverage tax abatements currently through the Catalyst program, 
or affordable housing is developed as a component of a larger economic development program. This recommendation, however, would expand our tax abatement policy for affordable housing by incentivizing affordable housing in and of itself as a key asset of its own aside from economic development projects. The next item is a public property disposition policy. So by making publicly owned land and buildings available for the development of affordable housing, the city can help to ensure that there's an adequate supply of lower cost homes. This approach works well in markets such as Lawrence with high land costs and limited development opportunities. High land costs in Lawrence can make it extremely difficult to create new affordable housing and particularly in West Lawrence with more expensive lots. The city can help to overcome this obstacle by identifying public property that can be repurposed for residential use and making it available to developers who commit to creating and maintaining ongoing affordability. Development opportunities may be found on surplus or underutilized publicly owned land through the redevelopment of vacant municipal buildings or even on the same lot within public buildings that are still actively used for other purposes. Um, there are, um, beyond identifying and prioritizing surplus properties, um, we should consider other opportunities for more, for new residential development on publicly owned land. Um, so this approach may include looking at existing sites that will continue to be used for their current purpose, but could be developed more intensively, such as low density buildings where additional floors could be added, or parking lots adjacent to public buildings that could be redeveloped for housing. Um, once uh, sites have been identified, the city could issue requests for proposals for development, which outlines anticipated density and unit counts, affordability expectations, including income levels, preferences for serving special populations, and any other terms under which the property and development rights are offered. So there are different iterations of this policy that we could apply for affordable housing. The Property Acquisitions Revolving Loan Fund is a way to provide developers or affordable housing with the means to act quickly and opportunistically to acquire land or buildings as they become available, rather than having to wait for traditionally public funding cycles to come through with financing. So I'm sure all of you are aware of how quickly the housing market is moving right now. Um, and, and so it is when opportunities do become available uh, for properties that can be acquired for affordable housing developments, it's really important that we take advantage of those opportunities as quickly as possible. Right now, we have to kind of wait for an annual grant cycle, but a property acquisition revolving loan fund would set in place a structure for a loan to purchase a property for affordable housing developments which could then replenish the affordable housing trust fund pot of funds. And then finally, um, the last consideration is for a community um, housing plan. And ultimately, this is perhaps my strongest recommendation for immediate action, um, which is to take for the city to take leadership in developing a comprehensive strategic community housing plan it's a standard best practice for, for municipalities and is a vital and needed resource. Although there are housing goals included in the strate city strategic plan, 
A community housing plan would be a way to bring together the housing goals in various other city and community plans, such as we have housing goals in the strategic plan, the economic development plan, the consolidated plan, the Affordable Housing Advisory Board has a housing plan. The Chamber of Commerce has housing goals. The Community Health Plan has housing goals. And so a community health plan really uses a collective impact model to bring all of these goals together with a clear roadmap that holistically addresses strategy. Um, so we have gone over many different policy ideas and I apologize for taking so long. I am excited for the feedback from the commission to help inform prioritization and next steps and really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Um, make sure Jeff doesn't have anything to say and then we'll, <laughs> nope, you're good, okay. Thank you so much, Leah. That's really great. Um, let's go ahead then and bring it back to the commission. Any questions? Leah, this is Commissioner Sellers. I just have a, a quick question that's wasn't included in your presentation, but it's germane to the to the topic. Under strong welcoming neighborhoods, I noticed that um, under our progress indicators, we don't necessarily have indicators for efficient and effective processes. Has there been any, um, has the group or has this outcome group discussed that and maybe discussed possibilities? I know I, I, know I have some thoughts on it, but I just wanted to give you the opportunity to provide a, an update or some insight into that. Thank you so much, Commissioner Sellers. Um, we believe that a community housing plan would meet those objectives. Um, as it's a way to really bring together all of the stakeholder groups, the different community groups, impacted communities, all at the same table, um, and set out strategies with a very clear roadmap, um, you know, benchmarks along the way, so that we know that where we in, are investing any of our resources, that it is moving us towards our ultimate goal in a way that is a time efficient, that is collaborative, and that maximizes our internal processes. I hope that answers your question and would love your feedback. <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll, I'll wait till, till comments to, to add, but it, it, gets you, it gets me there. So thank you for, for answering that. Leah, I had a question related to the housing, the community housing plan. How do you see that you know, last week we talked about um, the need to move forward with a, a homeless plan, a plan. How, how do you see those two working together? Um, how do they overlap? How do we see those working in concert? As we've discussed, um, homelessness and housing are um, interlinked. And yet on one end, affordable housing the lack of affordable housing drives homelessness. And at the other end, having adequate affordable and work housing drives economic development. And so um, in part of working with the homelessness and supported housing group, that will be one part of it. Um, but in talking to that group, um, it sounds like um, the wisdom of the group is that there is a need for a separate housing plan that addresses the whole continuum of housing needs, as well as a separate plan that addresses homelessness specifically. And so while a lot of the same people are working or would be working on both plans, 
um, we do believe that it's important to have plans that addresses each of those components separately. Thank you. Any other questions? I had a question or a, about the dashboard that we have online. Um, I've been looking through that, and I was wondering if it would be possible on these numbers that are provided, the target numbers and where we're at with it, if we could put on there information as to where this data come from, comes from, what time period it was collected in, um, basically how it's represented, because it's hard to tell where the data come for, comes from and what what time frame it is. So that would really be helpful for me to, to better understand what they represent. Absolutely. Any other questions? Okay, let's see if there's any public comment on this item. Honorable Mayor and City Commissioners, thank you for allowing me to speak. I originally came here tonight actually to speak on H3, but um, I am interested by this topic and uh, work professionally in affordable housing. So I thought I would offer up some stuff. My name is Hillary Carter. I'm a certified urban planner and I work with um, a consulting firm based out of Southern California with municipalities across the country on their affordable housing goals and specifically with interim transitional housing or transitional housing and permanent supportive housing. One thing I just wanted to, um, and thank you to Leah for this great presentation, just wanted to offer up in the White House's um, addressing the affordable housing shortage that came out in May 2022. It changes the HUD code on manufactured housing and um, opens up this world of possibilities. It's some of the most efficient, cost-effective way to produce housing, and it does so rapidly. Right now, I'm working with the city of Palm Springs in California, really hot housing market, really expensive um, housing market to produce 80 units of transitional housing using modular built units. Right now, those are running $35,000 a unit. That does not include a kitchenette, but it does have a standalone bathroom included in it. We're putting it on publicly owned land. And so all it requires is a foundation and then plumbing and you know electrical hookups. On units for permanent supportive housing that have kitchenettes included in them, we're looking at between uh, 80 to $95,000 a unit. So it's just another uh, policy tool to use in your toolbox to consider. Uh, there's manufactured housing, producers all over the country, and it's a really burgeoning field. As I understand it, there was something on the national all last week that um, was showcasing what manufactured housing units are looking like. So anyways, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments in the room? Hi, I'm Chris Flowers. Um, just talking about affordable housing, um, I was just wondering, um, do we know how many properties in Lawrence have been bought up by companies like BlackRock? Um, I, I don't know. I just read like on social media, a lot of people in other cities have been bitching about these companies coming in and buying up properties. And 
I don't know. It seems kind of shady to me. And I've also heard that one of the things they can do is they can over, they can pay more than what the property's worth. And then since they're a corporation, they can write it down, they can de- like write it down as a deduction on their taxes for like, a, for taking a loss in their investments even though they purposely overpaid for the property. And that's something that just like, I don't think regular home buyers can do, but I, I don't know the truth in that. Uh, it's, it's not really my specialty, but I was just wondering, um, is there any kind of way we can limit the number of properties that a corporation can own in town? Like set a number that if you own such a percentage of town, we're going to tax you heavily if you keep buying up our, our town. Um, I mean, I, I don't really know the details, but I've just, I've just seen horror stories about what could be happening in the future. I mean, not just here, but just everywhere. And also, well, just on Kentucky and Tennessee, and now I've, it's starting to, to go over to on Ohio street where these previous just single unit homes are now being replaced with kind of bigger um, apartment units, which I'm okay with that because we kind of need that too, but it just makes me wondering who's owning all this stuff. Thank you. Any other public comment? There's some online. Maybe. Okay. Uh, Ron Gacious. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair and um, members of the commission. My name is Ron Gacious. Uh, I am speaking only on by on behalf of myself, but my opinion is informed by the five years that I've spent on the Affordable ha- City's Affordable Housing Advisory Board, including two years spent as the chairman. I'd like to strongly endorse the policy recommendations that have been provided by Leah. Uh, I digress quickly and say she's done an outstanding job as our uh, new support staff for the Affordable Housing Advisory Board, and I think we're starting to gain some real momentum. Part of that is reflected directly in uh, the substance of the recommendations that she's brought you uh, tonight. And I would urge you to take each of those policy recommendations and forward it to the Affordable Housing and Advisory Board for our consideration, review, and ultimately to bring you back more detailed recommendations in each of these areas. Um, Each of you serving on the commission right now at one point in time or another have said to me, you know, let us know when there's something that we can do for affordable housing that doesn't cost cash. Well, you can implement all of these policy recommendations without any cash upfront cost to the city. Now, ultimately, if we decide to provide any financial incentives or tax abatements uh, to specific projects, you will have the final say in whether or not those are approved by the city. But developing those, developing that type of a framework will set the table for the city to finally set down uh, proactively with our not-for-profit developers and our for-profit developers and come up with complementary programs that they can, complementary development programs that they can bring you for your consideration. Uh, these are exciting times. We have a lot on our plate. Uh, the needs assessments have, I hope, demonstrated to everybody in the community that the time to act is right now. I'm hoping very much that we don't put off the affordable housing initiatives that are available to us until after the final review of the current building code uh, uh, work that's underway. 
That's just beginning the task force that's going to participate on that is just to be named. I know the AHAB spot will be named at our next meeting. Uh, look forward to continuing that work. Look forward to seeing you prioritize affordable housing needs of our community. And first step you could take is to send these policy recommendations to AHAB for their further review, consideration, and recommendation back to this commission. Thank you very much. Erica Zimmerman. Good evening. Thank you. Good evening, Commissioners. My name is Erica Zimmerman. I'm the Executive Director for Lawrence Habitat for Humanity, also a member of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board, but tonight I will be speaking as the Executive Director of Lawrence Habitat. At Lawrence Habitat, we are best known for um, building affordable housing, for putting units on the ground in neighborhoods, and I'm here tonight much just like my colleague Ron said, um, just to ask that you take into serious consideration the policy recommendations that Leah has presented when it comes to affordable housing development. There are many barriers in this community to building and developing affordable housing. And like Leah mentioned, material costs, labor issues, supply chain challenges, those are not within your control, but there are things that are within your control. Um, as a housing developer, I'd just like to provide two examples of where we've hit development obstacles in our work and where the policy considerations that Leah has mentioned tonight would have made an impact had they been in place. As we apply for funds, time and time again, we're asked, why do you only build in one part of the town? Why do you only build in one area? Um, and one of our answers is we build where we can. Time and time again, we've turned down land donations because of zoning issues um, and just the inordinate amount of time and work it takes to overcome those zoning issues. I'm not talking about putting houses in areas that are highly industrial or unsafe, but there are places where multifamily and single housing family make sense, but we're not able to build there because of the zoning laws um, that are inflexible. In a different example, several years ago, Habitat brought forth a housing development that would have fully utilized an oddly shaped piece of land and provide several multifamily housing residents. Um, after being told that we could not develop multi-housing family residents in that area, we, came, we went back to the drawing board and came back with a 10 to 12 single family unit plan um, that would utilize the land, all of the land efficiently, after numerous meetings with development professionals and city staff, we were denied once more, um, and this time because we wanted to have a shared drive. There was no discussion, no solutions offered, and it just we were just told it wasn't possible to do. We did end up building seven houses, um, but we left multiple feet of um, undeveloped ground and um, a burden for homeowners with very long, large yards. I know the land development code will be soon be going under needed, undergoing much needed renovation and revision. We're very excited about this movement. We look forward to be a, being a part of the process, but we need solutions now in this moment. I know zoning laws and rules and codes exist for a reason. I'm just asking the commissioners tonight to help support affordable housing development by choosing to utilize the opportunities and change vehicles that were presented tonight, especially the over the housing overlay zones. Time. Thank you. 
I see Rebecca Buford. Oh, thank you, commissioners. This is Rebecca Buford with uh, Executive Director of Tenants to Homeowners. Um, I also have sat uh, since its beginning on the Affordable Housing Advisory Board. Um, and I will be speaking with all of those hats on because um, I want to thank Leah uh, for all of her work on this. These are really some of the best practice ideas that we've all been talking about over the last few years. And she's put them together in a beautiful package. Um, and now is the time to really move on these. Um, and, and I urge you all to, I'll give you a couple of concrete examples as well. And um, thank you, Erica, for a great description of how some really, I mean, certain developments that we all say, this is a great idea. And then we just can't do it. And our they say our hands are tied. So we really do need an, a way to do some of those great ideas in the interim. And, and perhaps we can look at that the affordable housing overlay district as another way to inform our development of the new code. What do we find works and what doesn't in this small subsect of affordable housing um, that gives us a little bit of a pilot program in a sense. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense because I think we'll probably learn through that process as we're developing the new ordinance um, or, or new codes. I do want to talk about the vacant property ordinance. Uh, tenants to homeowners in the last year has put 19 bedrooms into the permanent affordability for the next five years for sure, and potentially buying them beyond that with the ARM program. And that was when we found these vacant properties. What I think we find is stopping us from doing a lot more besides the subsidy to, to work on these properties and make them unblighted is also just owners being willing to um, let us get in there. And so I do feel like the um, some ability to say, hey, if you want to leave a property blighted and being kind of destroyed over time in the middle of a city, you know, that's that's not really the kind of community values we have here, especially when so many people need those homes. So we don't want to take that asset from you, but we have some collaborators, uh, you know, like organizations that will come in and help you maintain and use that property for affordability um, until you have some other options. I think a lot of times people just don't have any options and they're kind of stuck. They don't have the money to put into it to put it on the market. So this is a really great example of a win-win for community members and affordable housing to say, hey, you can no longer just let it sit there. Let's nudge you into making a positive decision for everybody. Again, in a in with only a hundred thousand dollars, we created nineteen units. So I think we can do fifty to a hundred more pretty quickly with this kind of policy. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else online who has comments? Uh, yes, Nicholas Ward. Hello, commissioners. Nicholas Ward here, also with Tenants to Homeowners, and I just wanted to echo. Uh, some of the things that were already said, I think this presentation that Leah was able to put together is wonderful. And it, it really is a good set of answers in the interim while we're waiting for uh, some of those changes to occur um, at the policy level. Uh, the, uh, Rebecca was talking a little bit about the vacancy structure ordinance idea. 
um, I've been the person that's gone out and been looking for these properties, kind of ambulance chasing in a way, I guess. But uh, it started during the pandemic and walking my dog through neighborhoods and just noticing that there's no activity at a lot of houses and then getting in contact with Brian Jimenez at Code, code Enforcement. And I think I really made Brian's day a number of times when I when we were able to take properties that were a real burden to his department and um, make something happen with those. We have a couple of properties now that are um, just coming to the end of their repair time. So we've been able to put resources into those through the ARM program. And if um, I could give a list of probably 20 properties that have been sitting for a number of years. And the hard thing is, is there's no intention either to um, demolish the properties by the owner or to repair them. And oftentimes that has to do with the fact that the homes were um, inherited and there was no intention initially to own them, or there's um, some things going on with uh, mental health with the folks that are in charge of them. Um, but I think something like the vacancy structure ordinance would help put some kind of teeth um, and structure to um, how we need housing to function in the community. And of course, uh, backing that up with something like the revolving loan fund would then allow us the opportunity to go through and make repairs to those homes uh, for the ownership entities. And then as a part of that, like the ARM project, um, we're then subsidizing lower rents in those units while they're in that program. Um, so all of these are great. Just wanted to say that I really support this. And thank you again, Leah and Jeff, for putting this together. Any further comments online? That's it. All right, let's bring it back to commissioners. Any um, more questions or comments? I don't have any questions, just comments. I really appreciate Leah and um, affordable housing um, board putting this together. Um, and I agree with Ron uh, in the interim uh, before, you know, the all the work that's being done to go ahead and revise the um, the plan uh, is done that uh, these are great solutions to go ahead and implement, especially the um, housing plan at the end. I think that definitely has some merit to go ahead and give us a cohesive and um, substantive direction. So I have lots of comments. <laughs> go down the list, go down the row. Um, I guess I would say a couple things. I mean, one, uh, you know, I agree. Leah, first, thank you um, for the presentation, affordable housing and the whole staff. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of all of these um, proposals. Um, I guess, you know, if the question is how do we prioritize them, you know, as I looked at this and thought about it, you know, I, I agree that the time to act on some of these is, is now. And I think some of them we can do a little faster than others. And so part of my prioritization is um, not so much which ones I like better than others, but which ones I think we can accomplish because I like them all. <laughs> um, I mean, so I would start by saying, you know, you list uh, the one listed as public property um, disposition, uh, disposition policy. Um, you know, we, we disposed of some property a couple of weeks ago for affordable housing. You know, I'm not sure we need a policy. Um, you know, I, I'd be interested in just um, putting, and I know there's been some some work in the background on RFPs for city lots downtown um, for different projects, but, you know, maybe we just go out and put an RFP out for any public property. What do people have 
you know, thoughts about and do um, letters of interest, not like full blown proposals. And let's just see what comes. You know, I think we can do that without much work, just a letter of, you know, inquiry, and then we can take that step. You know, second, I would say the the tax abatement policy, um, one, because we already have a structure in place for that and expanding it. Um, could be fairly easy with a few word changes in code. Um, you know, I do think um, also that not only maybe the affordable housing folks might have some comments on that, but I think that's something that go, could go to our tax abatement board and put the work over on them to look at that. And again, trying to spread the work out, um, getting that going right away. Um, that takes me to the vacant structure um, ordinance. You know, I think that is one that is, um, we know that, you know, based not only on, on what um, Tensor Homo has been doing, you know, just from probably most of us observing, this is an area that th there could be a lot of um, immediate awards from, but also I would say vacant structure ordinances are very common and I don't, you know, I think both Topeka and Wyandotte have them and those course policies all over the, the nation. It's something I think we could work on fairly quickly, um, even if we just start with a vacant registration and start to know where they are. Um, that, even if you don't, if even if you don't go on the back end, which is what do we do with them? And sometimes that's a little more controversial ideas of taking properties over, tax sales, all that. If you just start with a registration and we have someone like Tim tends to homeowners who know about it and it you know, gets people thinking, um, that might be a, a pretty quick way we could start and work on the back end of what we do with them after we get a registration going. And maybe in the meantime, tends to homeowners or um, others could be working on, on um, utilizing those. Um, you know, so I, to me, I think those are ones that, that can go pretty quick. So I move those kind of on the top. You know, I, I do think an affordable housing overlay zone is something, you know, I wouldn't be opposed to. I, I do think it's something we might be addressing in the new code. I also know it's something that's going to take a while to develop and there'll be a lot of people with lots of input on it. And so, you know, I'm not, you know, I guess that's one I maybe would send to Ron to start working on, but um, let him start that process. But I, I, I do think that's going to take a little time. And I don't want to put that top on the list only because I think we can accomplish some of these others quicker and get some more bang for the buck on that. Um, you know, probably somewhat true with the revolving loan fund. And then finally, I'd say the community housing plan, I, you know, again, I'm, very interested in that. And and I know Leah said this is her top one of her top priorities and, and I, I support that. Um but I, I do have two concerns only of putting it at the top of the list is one, it's going to take some time and we have limited resources and I'd maybe rather um cut a couple of these other ones off our list before we move to that one. And second, I'm I am concerned and that's why I asked the question you know, I'm very eager to move forward with the homeless plan, and, um, and 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 there is going to be some overlap there. And and putting our partners 
who are already, you know, stretched, working on two different plans, as well as stuff like vacant ordinances and all that, that that's a lot to put on folks. Um, and so, again, I'm not opposed to the community housing plan. And, and you know, I, I think it's something we should have on a list. If I had to prioritize, I'd put the homeless plan before the community housing plan. And I put some of these others ahead of it but not because I don't think it's important, not because I don't think we need it. And, and, you know, more power too, if you can figure out how to do it all, I'm, I'm, you're not going to have me vote against it, but um, that's just my thoughts on, on the priority. Thank you, Leah. This is commissioner sellers. Thank you, Leah, for your presentation. Um, I know that we've, we've shared some comments about housing. I know I've shared some information with you and, um, data points that I, I gathered from the housing policy trip that I had the opportunity to take um, here in DC. And so I'm glad that you reached out to glean that information from me. And I wish um, others in the community and on the, on the commission would have, would have done that because this, we are in an exciting time right now. So I'm glad that, that you took the time to listen to that and, and to and see some of that play out in the presentation and in our discussions that we had. Um, I wanted to take, wanted to go back a little bit um, in the presentation, specifically on the slide. I want to say it was slide eight in regards to SWN five, when we broke down um, the percent of households that were experiencing housing stress. And I know you broke it down by owner and renter and, you know, more than likely this would come out in a housing plan. I don't know what this uh, would look like finding this data this data point now, and I don't want to. I don't want to burden you in this in this data point, but because we're in an interesting time, um, you know, as we you know reports have come out that we we've seen an increase in our population, sixty five and plus, sixty five plus here in Lawrence, but also that in the next few years, by the next um, census, that we'll see an overwhelming increase um, in our uh, population of sixty plus, and we know that with that comes. Um, a fixed income. So I'd be curious to know of these owner and renter um, households, how many of those are based on um, that, how much of that housing stress is based on fixed income. And I know that would come out in a housing study. And I, but I think it's a key indicator point as we look at the trends and population um, as our populations are shifting, not just nationally, but also here um, in the city and in the county um, to that um, I, I did bring up the efficient and effective processes. And so um, would love to see some indicators on that. Um, one of the things I'm looking through the different indicators for strong welcoming neighborhoods, and I'm not sure if it lands here, my brain tells me that it does. And I might put up a good fight and an argument on why it should be an efficient and effective processes. But I do know the commission um, last year spent a good time looking over the inspection of rental properties and updating and tightening up that ordinance. And maybe there's an efficient effect that there could be an indicator based around that inspection rental um, um, data point, whether it's the efficiency, since you did have in the in your presentation on slide six, renters and owners and units of poor and fair conditioning. And so if an indicator of 
if an indicator point could be based on renters and poor and fair conditions, and that relates to our inspection policy, whether we're using an abbreviated uh, uh, abbreviated inspection um, or the full inspection, that's something that we can definitely, um, you can make some correlation points to that. And so just wanted to put that in there for you for a thought, uh, for consideration. Um, As far as the um, policy discussion points that came up and as far as priority, um, I couldn't be more excited about these policy points and and, and these the opportunities of, of, of implementing these in our city. I think they're long overdue. Um, to your point, you know, you talked about the different housing documents that are out there and being able to have a comprehensive document that gives us the roadmap to what we need to do. And you've laid that out here tonight. We need to get to that point. You know, we're ready to, to move on these things. And I think having that clear roadmap would get us there. Um, I do echo some of the sentiments of um, Commissioner Finkeldye, um, because this is a lot of work. And unfortunately, this is what happens when you kick the can down the road on these type of issues. Then you, you get a group of wonderful people who are bur- not burdened, you are given the opportunity to do great work and with great work comes great responsibility. And this is going to be a lot of responsibility. So um, maybe give me a day and, and some time to think about what that would look like. But I mean, this is all great work that can happen simultaneously and I don't want to burn anybody out to that point. Um, and I'm going to jump around here a little bit um, and maybe a little particular order of uh, things I would like for us to uh I would like for AHAB to, to look at and consider. Um, definitely the affordable housing overlay zone. We know that there are best practices out there in utilizing um, AHAs or however you want to use the acronym um, and how using these type of programs align with um, your land code and, and, and planning process and how there's some provisions that can be, if they're met, that you can not, you get to jump ahead of the line, but you get a more faster, efficient process. And so utilizing that overlay zone as we are going through the process of re- redeveloping our land code, this is the time to do it. Because um, oftentimes we may, in this process, we may figure out, we may find out that this can't live in the zone, live in the code, but the overlay gives us that opportunity. And so I would hate to drag our feet on this because as it's going concurrently together, we may realize that maybe it's best to live in, in, in the land code or it may be best to live outside of it and, and, be, and, and have that um, have that be attached to it or at least have that overlay piece to it. So I do want you to move forward on that. I think there's some opportunities there. With the tax abatement and other incentives, um, you hit the ham- you hit the nail on the head with this one. You know, we do this with Catalyst. How can we expand this? We know that we worked around this. We know that this language currently lives in our economic um, development policy plan. How can we, what more can we do? And, I, and I'm glad you brought this up and I'm glad this came up because I did want to, um, consider the commission to look at this and look at some opportunities to, um, to to look at how developers can either work alongside or even on their own merits do affordable housing in a way that we know incentives is the way to go. And it's not just incentives to private developers, but also to our partners who are doing this work, such as tenants to homeowners, um, the Housing Authority, as well as Habitat for Humanity. So um, there may be some conversation in regards, you know, since affordable housing does live in the economic development policy um, document. And so being able to take a look at that as as well, and that goes 
deals with those tax abatements and incentives piece. Um, with the vacant structure ordinance, I think that one is um, high priority for me. I know there's been, you see a lot of um, vacant structure ordinances around commercial property, um, and that's a whole nother can of worms to look at. Um, but there is some merit in regards to this um, for structures, um, for residential structures. And we know that there are communities around us who are utilizing this. I know Atchison is, I know Emporia is. So we do have Emporia R, both of those are. Um, so there's some opportunity there for us to look at how we would want to implement that. Um, I like the idea of the registry to, to incrementally bring us um, ramp us up to that. And I wouldn't be opposed to that, but I'd like to see, you know, what a full implementation plan would look like um, for that. Uh, let's see. Choo -choo 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 -choo. Sorry. I think I covered most. I The other pieces, I have no objections to them. But as far as prioritizing, um, my thoughts are around the affordable housing overlay zone, the tax abatements, um, because of the relationship with economic development. Um, as well as the vacant structure ordinances. I know um, Commissioner Finkeldye brought up the um, public property um, disposition policy. Um, and I know I've seen multiple municipalities do RFPs um, to redevelop um, public public uh, spaces. And, you know, I, I would say that's something we can we can look into. Um, I'd like to hear about other alternatives of whether it needs to be a, or you know it, you know policy as far as if it lives in a document or if it's an ordinance and you know an, an ordinance within that that's something to be to be discussed. Or as um, Commissioner Frankel stated, it can be just something where we put an RFP out for just you know ideas of what that could look like and or you know without putting the formal um, proposal together or parameters around what that could be. So, I mean, these are all exciting opportunities for us to do some innovative, creative work um, around housing that is new to us, but um, is very familiar with communities around us. And I look forward to, to hearing um, updates on this as we move forward on it. Thank you. Um, I, I, you know what I'm hearing from um, Commissioner Finkelbein and, and Commissioner Sellers. I think that it, the, the, all of it, you know, has definitely got some great possibilities. Um, the community housing plan, I like that idea. Um, I think it goes right along with what we've passed regarding the built for zero model, and and ensuring that we got to come up with a plan so that all the organizations that are involved with these various housing plans know what role they play and bring their strengths to the table. And so we come up with a comprehensive plan. So I'm really definitely interested in that. And the and something that I've been wanting to do for a while is to, and I think it comes up t tonight really well, is the tax incentive parts. Um, something that we, we do have a tool for that, a Neighborhood Revitalization Act, NRA it's called. And it's in our economic development policy, but we've never used it on a neighborhood. We've used it for incentivizing projects, very specific projects, but we've never did a block by block application of that. And I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to look at that NRA and um, look at applying it to entire neighborhoods where you can provide tax incentives to fixing the house up tax incentives to um, for ownership versus rental. We've got a couple of neighborhoods that I can think of, and this is not all of them, but I think of Centennial and Swagler where they're kind of on the verge of, of 
over 50% um, rentals, they're kind of starting to turn. And I think it'd be a good opportunity for us to look at some potential um, incentives, uh, tax incentives to kind of turn that back to um, more ownership, home ownership versus rentals. And then also, you know, providing incentives for um, fixing up those properties and in the vacancy structure ordinance. I think that's a really interesting one, but, but I would like for us to look at that NRA and actually apply it, what it was written for. And that is for neighborhood revitalization. Um, uh, I, I don't disagree with anyone. <laughs> um, uh, the only comment I would make about the vacant structural ordinance, it's not without controversy in some places. My recollection of some things I read about it might even have been about Topeka is um, it can become predatory if not um, done well. Um, I know that we're conscientious about that. You know, when I think about the things just in the last seven years, there have been few and far between, partly because of how good Brian Jimenez is and, and clearly our partners. Um, but what you don't want, obviously, is to displace one person for another person. Um, so it seems like that's one of the um, drawbacks that can be uh, um, for those if they're badly done. So um, that would be the only point I would make about that. Um, um, the abatements, again, I, I don't necessarily disagree in any particular way, I think, but I, but just to say, we know from, <laughs> um, our, our neighbors and past, um, incentives there that Lawrence kind of generally, um, tends to be adverse to them. So um, I would just say that um, to remind you that frequently there are some, there's some activism against them. Um, and I would presume in this situation that would be entirely um, directed at for-profit situations. Um, again, not that I disagreed with their usefulness at all. Um, and I appreciate um, Commissioner Finkeldy's point about maybe not needing to go through the trouble of writing a policy when we can. That's a great point. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, so those really are, are all the comments that I have. Um, I would say about the community housing plan, um, Yes, it sounds great, but I also know that we have so many plans going and so many studies going. And sometimes when you look at one and it's $150,000, you also think, man, we could have built a house with $150,000. So um, that, that would really be my only comment. It may, it may depend on what that number looks like um, when, when you come to us or um, um, knowing um, the full extent of what we would get for um, uh for the money that we invest in that. And I guess this is Commissioner Sellers. I guess I would I would add to that because I think we kind of talked around it, but we didn't talk to it. Because and, and Leah, if you can answer this, Leah or Jeff, high high level, what are you thinking as far as the process for this community housing plan? Is it a, is it a way to coordinate and you know coordinate slash facilitate how to take all of these different pieces kind of like what Britt's kind of going through right now with economic development kind of take all of these different plans and bringing them together for 
to develop comprehensive strategies, recommendations, or help me understand what you, what will this plan, what do you envision this plan being? Is it more of a, a study all the way through, or are you just trying to find some access to facilitate looking at all of these and identifying strategies out of it? This is Leah Roslin. Thank you for the question, Commissioner Sellers. Um, so our community, as has been noted, has done several assessments over the past couple of years. So there's recently been the supported housing needs assessment and the homelessness needs assessment. And we will be able to take a lot of information from the data that was collected there. Um, also, as noted, the last Lawrence housing market study was done in 2018 and the housing market that is just looks so much different since then. And so we do anticipate that there would need to be some additional um, data gathering. Um, some of that, a lot of that we anticipate could happen internally in the department. Um, and then additionally, um, one, of, one of my goals for the additional data that would be gathered is directly from our community. Um, so that I'm really interested in having an opportunity to get out and talk to our community, engage our community around what are their priorities for housing? What would they like to see for um, housing of all types? Um, what are their priorities? Um, and have an opportunity to embed that in a plan as well in a way that I think might be unique to some other plans. Um, but ultimately, yes, it would be coalescing the other great work that's been done, um, it, you know, using collective impact with our partners. And so I don't anticipate that this would be an immediate line budget line item or a large budget line item. I might add just one thing on the NRAs, um, just so you know, numerous communities use it right now. Even Baldwin City has got an NRA for their neighborhoods, and they've recently just re-upped the program. So they've had it in place for several years, and it's been really successful. So it's happening in Douglas County, and there's just no reason why it shouldn't be happening here in Lawrence. Um, any other comments? Leah, did we give you what you need? This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Yes, thank you, Mayor Shipley. That was really helpful, and I really appreciate all of your time this evening. Thank you so much for this, and thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Um, all right, I do want to check quickly with the commissioners. We've been doing this since five. Make sure nobody needs a quick break. Yeah, let's take a break. Um, let's see, 10 minutes. Um, 7.50, we will return. Everybody ready? Let's do it. Kurt, you all right? Yes. Uh, thank you, everyone. We're returning. Um, our next item is regular agenda item number one. Receive grant status report and update from TFG, the Ferguson Group. Mayor, this is Casey Toomey, Assistant City Manager. You might have been expecting Diane Stoddard, my colleague, but I'm subbing in for her tonight. So 
um, just say a quick word of introduction. And then we do ha have uh, some folks from the Ferguson group on the call who are going to walk through a presentation for you. So uh, you might remember that uh, late last year, the city did select the Ferguson group uh, to serve as a grant consultant for us um, to kind of help with some uh, additional grant capacity uh, that we didn't have internally in our organization. We did create a city grants team and we have some members of that team on the call too that might be able to answer questions. Um, but again, primarily our uh, consultants here tonight, Heidi Schott and Christy Moore are gonna take it away and uh, start us off with a presentation. Thank you, Casey. I think Heidi's gonna share her screen. Yes. <laughs> do you have it? I do. I'm not sure it's at the beginning, though. No. There we go. There we go. Uh, all right. Thank you, Casey. Um, Mayor and members of the council, um, as Casey indicated, I'm Christy Moore with the Ferguson Group. I'm a managing partner and um, I work on both the advocacy side of, side of the line of business that we do as well as the grant side. And I am one of the members of the city's uh, grants team. So, and I'm apologize for the, the bad lighting here. I'm actually at a conference. I'm like kind of tucked into a corner where it's quiet. Um, next slide, Heidi. There we go. So first of all, I wanted to introduce the full team. As I said, um, I'm managing partner and help lead the team. And Heidi Schott is our director of grant services. I'll let her give her um, a little bio and an introduction um, uh, herself personally. Uh, but we also have four other members of the grants of our TFG grants team that also serve the city. Uh, Gabby Bronstein, Kristen Long, Wyatt Fritz, and DeAndre Smith. Um, Wyatt, Heidi, and I, as well as Gabby, have been the primary leads um, for the city and have been working on your needs assessment and the different grants and are uh, starting to, to line up our strategic planning for those pro um, priority projects. A little bit of information about myself and the firm. Um, we are 40 years in the business um, and have exclusively represented local governments uh, in Washington, D.C., as well as provided consulting services and including grants. I am um, almost 23 years with the firm. Uh, if you're doing the math, that means I was hired at about 14. Uh, but I've um, uh, primarily worked for cities and counties um, as well as special districts. One of the unique things about the Ferguson Group is that although we're a Washington DC based um, firm, we actually have uh, individuals strategically placed around the country um, so that we can cover more ground um, and get more information on local interests, uh, so on and so forth and get that real feel. And we exclusively work with local governments, public agencies. Our mission is to help you uh, build better communities and stronger communities. So that's our primary focus on behalf of all of our clients. Heidi? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Heidi Schott, and I'm the Director of Grand Services of the firm. I've been with the firm for nine years now, um, focusing exclusively on um, helping our clients uh, strate strategically position themselves and compete for uh, discretionary federal funds specifically. Um, so, uh, and I have, as Christy said, I've been working um, with the city uh, grants team that was recently established to identify some priority projects and funding opportunities. Thanks, Heidi. 
So what is it that we do and what is the city um, uh, uh, gain from our relationship and our partnership? Uh, we are specifically devoted to grants uh, for the city. So that's our primary focus um, of our work uh, for the city. We do weekly grant alerts, um, which uh, provided to the city and uh, provide information on grants that have opened up that week. So these go out on Friday. So it's kind of a catch-all to uh, alert the city of grants that have um, become open on the federal level that are interest to special or that are interest to uh, local governments. Um, that's a help as a guide to make sure that you understand that the grants are out. Um, uh, means that we can engage if a grant um, uh, piques city uh, city staff's interest. Or it might be one where we say, hey, this one's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, this is a program that we think that we can fit a program for or put a project in. Let's start planning for it and, and look ahead. And part of that strategic, that's part of our strategic planning. And so what we've also done is provide custom um, a grant research and a funding strategy. For the city, we actually did a full-blown uh, needs assessment, which Heidi will get into a little bit later in the presentation. Um, but that's where we look collectively at all of your needs, all of your projects, all of your ideas, and help whittle it down uh, to a list of projects that we could strategize on and start to match up with, with funds. We have a database of successful grant applications that the city has access to. Um, what this is, is a is a it's uh, about 800 grant applications that have been successfully awarded funding over the years. We are able to use that um, to line up your projects and your priorities with those programs and kind of pick them apart and see what the funding agency liked and what they didn't like. Um, so we can help frame your applications in the way that you present your projects in a way that the funding agencies have previously um, found successful and rewarding. Uh, you also have a, uh, a library of grant funding guides and grant profiles. So if you recall, I said that every week we send out a weekly update of all the grants that have come out. We then take that information, um, pro uh, produce a grant profile, which um, takes the notice of funding availability, all of the federal agency jargon, and puts it into an easy-to-read uh, easy format um, that allows city staff to kind of pick apart. Um, figure out what they need, and really start to line up their strategy. And we also put a little bit of tidbits and, and tips um, or unique information um, that's important to that grant as well. We then kind of bundle those all up into different types of categories and produce funding guides. This is kind of everything in the kitchen sink. For example, we have one on water and wastewater. We just did a new one on electric vehicle infrastructure because that is a hot priority right now. And there's a lot of new programs coming out in that capacity. So these programs aren't necessarily open that's in, that are included in the funding guides, but it kind of gives a city staff um, the ability to look at those grants and plan. And look, my lights just went out. Hold on. See, I told you I was quietly in the corner. <laughs> um, and so those funding guides allow city staff to kind of look and see programs that are available or historically um, are out on an annual basis. We also have um, uh, the ability to do grants advocacy. Um, which we'll talk a little bit about um, later on in the presentation. This is where you're looking for support from the stakeholders, um, from organizations and residents, um, all the way on up to um, your congressional members um, as well, to add that little extra oomph, show that depth of uh, support for a project. And that can be very critical to getting a project through to the, um, uh, through to the finish line. Uh, grants debriefs. So this is where you lose. Um, most of the time, 
unfortunately, you are going to have a grant loss. Um, we rarely work with a client that is 100% or about a, a thousand, um, but that's okay. In fact, sometimes we actually apply for grants in the in with the intent to lose. Not that we ever want to lose, but we kind of um, strategically look at that. And if it's a very competitive grant, we'll say it might not happen this year, but let's get in there. Let's do a debrief. Let's find out what the agency wants. And then let's go back again. It's kind of like that uh, squeaky wheel wins the game. Uh, you just get in and, and you get in and start to get them familiar with your project. And all of a sudden you'll start to get um, see that come around and get funding, not only for that project, but we've actually seen it work uh, where they start to recognize that the city can take those dollars and actually put them to work and they'll start awarding other grants as well. And grants training. Heidi's going to talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but we also did some significant grants training for the city and we'll continue to do that as well. Next slide. So what have we done so far? Uh, those grants, alerts, and weekly updates, um, we've produced 21. I think this is actually up to 23. Um, we were extended into this um, city council meeting from two weeks ago, so we haven't updated these numbers. We kept the same um, uh, figures in there. But we've provided 21 weeks or 23 weeks of grants updates of new grants that have come out. Um, we've done the strategic grant research and funding strategy, which is ongoing. This is where we really look and, and dive deep into priority projects and outline them for specific grant programs um, and get them ready. The needs assessment and strategic grant outlook, which Heidi will cover in a minute, um, is complete. We're done. It becomes kind of our guide for the year. And we'll look at it again next year to see if it needs to be changed or updated, so on and so forth. Um, grants advocacy. So we've worked on two letters of support and, and also advised the city on a new way to get federal dollars, which is through the congressionally directed spending um, or earmarking process. And so we advised um, uh, the city uh, staff on, um, on utilizing that mechanism as a potential way to secure some funds as well. We've performed one grant training for city staff, which kind of took them through the whole kit and caboodle of all the different steps um, in the grant writing process and grant <laughs> preparation process. And then we have um, held 12 consultations on the strategic advice. This is where we're really digging deep into different projects for the city, reviewing your CIP, in fact, um, and having those meetings with city staff to kind of figure out exactly where you guys want to go, what your priorities are, um, and really what projects line up well with federal dollars. Next slide, Heidi. So why? Why is this important? Next slide. I think you've all probably have heard about the IIJA or the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act or the Infrastructure Package, whatever you want to call it. I think it has about five names at this point, um, but it was a historic piece of legislation that was passed by Congress and signed into law um, recently. And one of the reasons it was historic was not only because of its size, uh, but because of the different types of infrastructure that were included in it. So it ranged from transportation, which was the driving force in the base of the, of the bill, added in energy, resiliency, uh, broadband, um, telecommunications, several different types of infrastructure, drinking water, um, wastewater, uh, infrastructure needs for disadvantaged communities, rural areas. It ran the gamut and really provided um, a, a tremendous amount of support for different types of infrastructure. We're also starting to see that some of those overlap um, to where we can actually start to do federal or use federal dollars to work in unison with them with each other so you can accomplish multiple 
um, benefits with a single project. Um, it is uh, the key here is that it was authorized funding for five years. So a lot of folks think that this is funding that you need to get right now. It's not necessarily the case. You have time to plan. A lot of the programs aren't even out yet or haven't even be, been formed yet. And so that's part of the reason why we've been working with the city is to identify those needs, figure out which programs of the new programs might match well with your projects and move forward on that regard. Um, there are 50 new programs that were created that are very specifically tailored to local governments. Next up, slide. This is kind of an overview slide. I'm sure that you've heard the numbers at this point. Don't try to add this up because if you try to add this up, it doesn't calculate. And that's a whole nother federal budget um, a, a presentation that would take probably a good half a day to figure out how all these numbers match up. But you can see here where I talk about all those different buckets. These are the different buckets of overall funding that were included in the infrastructure package. Um, there's also a big difference here between new spending and authorized spending, which I'll talk about in a second. But that's really key to understand that all of this money isn't on the street yet. It will come out over five years. And there's some unique differences between the way that the programs were either appropriated funding, which means that cash was given out from Congress, or authorized funding, which is, means that the cash is promised and that that will come out later over the, uh, over the course of the program itself. But again, the transportation element was the, the base of the bill itself and all the other types of infrastructure were added onto that. I'd say the biggest, two biggest pots of uh, money on top of transportation in, in um, terms of new money were broadband and energy resiliency type programs. Um, those buckets of infrastructure really saw a big investment of brand new dollars and brand new programs coming out uh, of the federal government. Next slide. Here's a little snapshot of kind of some of those new grant programs. You can see that it really runs um, the course over several different types of not just infrastructure, but priorities within, within that infrastructure from wildlife crossings, um, which are a huge issue on um, some of the in some of the more rural areas um, of the country um, um, incorporating the community aspect of infrastructure that reconnecting communities is a theme that we saw over different modes of infrastructure um, that's kind of easing the barriers um, that infrastructure can can sometimes place on communities and, and trying to reconnect them um, across those in, that infrastructure so that there aren't divides that can go through communities that was a, a theme a brand new program coming out of the, on the transportation side that just opened. We also saw that theme even entering into the wastewater and drinking water and, and broadband side too, is really trying to use the infrastructure to bring communities back together. And then certainly your basic infrastructure, wastewater connections, stormwater infrastructure. And we saw big um, some new programs looking at that, those looking at uh, distressed communities um, and rural communities. Um, and of course, broadband and cybersecurity. Next slide. Timing of the funding. I kind of mentioned this a little bit already, but the timing of the funding and the way it's being distributed really depends on the program. Uh, if you take uh, water and wastewater programs, for example, most of the program funding coming out in those types of infrastructure um, was already existing programs. So you won't see new announcements. You won't see new programs being highlighted. What you'll see is just a larger sum of grants availability or program um, funding availability. So they're basically plussing up and adding to those existing programs. So you'll see those programs come out a little bit faster because they already exist. For the new programs, it's going to take a little bit of time. The federal government and the federal agency actually have to develop those program guidelines, put it out for public review, 
and solicit that information to be able to put those programs together. So we're expecting a lot of the new programs that we haven't seen so far um, to come out in, uh, in the fall and maybe even potentially early spring. One of the first ones out of the gate was on uh, electric vehicle infrastructure. I think it was released within three weeks of passage of the bill, which really shows you how big of a priority that was for the administration, because anytime the federal government can put things out three weeks after passing a bill, it was really already in development and they just had to fine tune it once the bill was passed. But that was uh, also shows, shows where the administration and where the federal agencies really wanted to emphasize right out of the gate once the bill was passed. Again, this funding is available for five years. This isn't like CARES Act. Uh, this isn't stimulus dollars in that capacity. This is sustained um, funding for infrastructure over the next five federal fiscal years. Heidi? But it's not the only game in town. It might be the hottest game and the most talked about game, but it's not the only game. There's still traditional funding um, through grant programs and formula programs that are um, being discussed right now in Congress through the annual appropriations process. Uh, there's the uh, new congressionally directed spending mechanisms that you can utilize to look at grant or to look at funding as well. So while a lot of our emphasis has been on tracking and reporting and will continue uh, to look at the new programs and the availability of funding out of the infrastructure project it, or program, it's not the only thing we're focusing on um, for the city. We're really still looking at those sustained um, uh, uh, traditional programs and new programs that are coming out through other pieces of legislation and other authorities. Next slide. Thanks, Christy. So now I'm just going to briefly go over what we've done so far with Lawrence's grad strategy. Um, over the last six months and, and kind of our pathway forward. So before we dig into some of the um, more details, I guess, surrounding our strategy, I just wanted to briefly go over a traditional grant life cycle. Now, I do want to note here, we've added in some steps like identify mm -hmm. needs and research and prepare for grants, um, which is our main focus right now. Um, but uh, the traditional grant life cycle includes kind of your researching, and knowing what your projects are and identifying those grants, which you should be doing on an ongoing basis and which we are helping the city staff identify and continue to notify them of opportunities that might be of specific interest to select projects. But also um, a grant solicitation period typically does only run between 30 to 90 days. These new grant programs that Christy just talked about through IIJA might in fact have a longer grant solicitation period which is could be up to 120 days. And the reason I'm calling this out and bringing this back to identifying needs and researching and preparing is because that is not a lot of time to actually prepare a competitive grant application. Some of the solicitations are over 90 pages long and include a lot of detail and require a lot of documentation um, and eligibility criteria and metric criteria that takes a lot of time to actually work your way through to prepare a compelling application, which is why the focus on identifying needs and researching and identifying grants is so important. Once the grant is submitted, you won't hear anything for at least six months. I have four to six months here, but really with all these new programs in flux, um, six months is kind of the average on a federal grant notification. Once the grant 
uh, is notified, um, you will be contacted directly if you received funding or you will get a notice of um, award dismissal or you didn't get a you didn't get awarded, not dismissal, but your project was not selected and you typically have 30 days to secure a debrief or notify the agency that you would like a debrief. In the event that you are awarded, then the final step of the grant life cycle is to actually implement your grant. Um, you will have all types of implementation, reporting, and closeout um, obligations to the federal agency in which you were awarded that you will have to document and uh, do quarterly and final reports um, over your project period. So how do we help the city prepare um, to be successful uh, in federal grants, given that they can oftentimes be complex and a little bit unwieldy. So we've had a successful uh, five-step process. Um, step one was to conduct the needs analysis, which I'll go into a little bit um, more in depth in the next slide. Uh, this needs analysis really went through your CIP and um, where we did um, an analysis as to if your projects have a nexus to federal funding, or whether it's lacking a nexus and might not be the best um, project to compete for funding. Once we whittled down the list, uh, we began to um, conduct in-depth uh, grant research and we continue to do so um, on an ongoing basis for the city. That research really looked at what your projects were, if the city was eligible, if the project initially is eligible, um, and we presented them to the city in a very large report um, that you all have included in your packet. Next, we're currently in the process of working with city staff on positioning the priority projects. There were many, many projects submitted by city staff and included within your CIP. And given the, the laborsome effort that it is to put forth a federal grant application, it is always our, our advice to only focus on kind of a handful between five to six projects federally to submit a grant application for. So we've whittled that list down to some priority projects that we are focusing in on with the city staff to see if we can create a grant strategy to help, help the city successfully uh, compete in the future. Step four is um, actually writing the grant. Um, that's the fun part. Some say, or the not, it's the fun part. Others might say, depends who you talk to. I think it's fine. Um, that's where you're actually filling out the federal forms and meeting those deadlines, creating the narratives and the budgets um, and uh, submitting the grant application. And then finally, step five is political support. Um, not all federal grants require kind of a big advocacy push um, to push your project forward, but political support is beyond kind of securing your congressional delegation support. It also is engaging your community um, in your project and making sure that there is support and documented support for that project application. So right now, as I said, we are in three. So as I mentioned, step one, the needs analysis. We kicked off our meeting in December um, where we introduced our services to city staff in a recorded presentation and as well as a live presentation. Uh, we went over what services we are offering to the city currently and, and what the purpose of the needs assessment was. We also established a grant funding portal um, so that the city staff could alert TFG um, to any projects that they might want considered uh, to, for the inclusion in our needs assessment. 
We were also instructed by the city to focus on the city's 2022 capital improvement plan. That plan contained over 86 projects and TFG received an additional 15 projects through the portal um, in the month of January. Once we had uh, initially vetted all the CIPM portal projects, we held meetings with city staff to try and further identify which projects were of high priority through a ranking system um, for city staff for us to focus on. And then we further whittled down that list uh, to 37 projects, which had a federal nexus um, and a potential likelihood to compete for grant funding. So step two, once we once we had whittled down the list, began the fun part for TFG staff. Uh, we spent a couple of months digging into some of the projects, holding additional meetings with city staff, and delivered a report in March of 2022 outlining several federal grant programs, um, which could be potential uh, funding opportunities for the city. Um, there were 28 existing grant programs that we identified that have nexus to the city's CIP projects, seven foundation grants, and we included foundation grants because oftentimes um, there are some types of projects like park and rec projects uh, that actually do not have much limited funding on the federal level. And so we wanted to provide some recommendations for projects which really didn't have uh, a federal, a, a large source of federal funding. And then additionally, we identified 18 new infrastructure package programs that we've been tracking and monitoring um, as they roll out this year and into early 2023. We delivered the report to the city um, to digest. Once the city had time to go through the report, we met, uh, the city did some internal uh, discussions and prioritizations, and uh, they identified the following projects on the screen. Um, as for some priority projects that we have begun digging into the position for federal grant funding. Each of these projects uh, identified um, have a federal nexus. Uh, we have done preliminary uh, assessments that these projects are eligible for certain programs um, and that the city is eligible for certain programs. And now we're really digging into what information does the city have uh, available to put together a grant application for programs we're flagging, what needs to be done in order to compete for these federal grants appropriately, and we're going to be creating a grant calendar um, and timeline and list of information uh, so that the city has some clear action steps going forwards on hopefully securing funding for these priority projects. So as we continue to develop and strategize on those projects, um, grant writing has been going on. In fact, the city has submitted a couple of grant applications already and is in the works of uh, putting together a proposal to a new IIJA program through USDOT called the Safe Streets and Roads for All program. So TFG is helping the city here um, with strategic advice on their grant application and will be there to support um, the city's grant writing efforts through reviewing the application um, and again, offering advice and uh, securing congressional letters of support if requested. Um, as that grant writing is going on for the city, um, we're also going to continue to dig deep into the other projects and create 
additional grant outlooks um, and planning to make sure that as programs are released for the remainder of the year or into 2023, the city has a well-established grant plan in order to compete effectively for federal grant funding. And then finally, step five is political support. Um, this includes lots of different avenues. Um, the first step we always like to do that we're also doing right now in step three is meeting with the funding agency. We're really trying to vet your project ahead of time, ahead of the solicitations to make sure that you can compete well for the project and the funding agency has buy-in and sees the alignment uh, with the grant funding program. Initially, uh, additionally, doing this before a grant is actually released for those existing programs allows the city to maybe pivot its project if it needs to in order to more effectively respond to grant criteria. Additionally, um, by creating this funding strategy, you can begin to develop partnerships um, with the community and establish community uh, support for your projects to submit along with a grant application. The Biden-Harris administration is really looking for grant applications to now include documented support from a wide range of not only community entities, um, as well as regional entities that support your application, but also, you know, you need to show that you've been engaging and having these great outreach sessions with your community to get their feedback on projects. Um, that's a big priority for the Biden and Harris administration and something that, um, as we've seen today in your great uh, meeting, that you have a lot of great citizen engagement. So um, that's really an asset for the city. And then finally, um, you know, we talk about securing letters of support, um, not only from the city, but also from your congressional delegation. So that is a very brief overview of what we have been up to. Um, and uh, we thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Any um, questions? This is Commissioner Sellers. I just had a quick question. I know you had talked about your repository of previously funded um, grant projects. So in going through the timeline of with staff identifying, um, I guess, a, a pouring in of the CIP projects and additional projects and then identifying priorities, how, I know there was a part that said that, I just want to know, how do you measure projects against, I mean, do you help measure those projects against other projects or what is the purpose of the repository? Does it come in and helping to measure our projects of likelihood of being funded? Is that part of the process of identifying those? Uh, Heidi and I are kind of giggling here and laughing because if you are a CEO, that would be exactly what he envisions this doing. Um, he would like to be able to to run a full search and and determine um, you know likelihood and probability um, just based on trends and in and different words that are included so on and so forth. Um, but uh, how we use it is we really start to focus on let's say that the city identifies a grant program um, as a as a potential source that they want to look at and develops a program or starts to develop a project and we pull. Um, from those examples of successful grant applications, we look um, for projects that are closely aligned to the projects uh, that the city would be looking at, um, communities that are similar to the city of Lawrence, and some of those demographic information, um, even regional, state, so on and so forth, and we start to analyze it that way. It's very good key to, to look at how the grants change um, from administration to administration. 
and honestly within administration. So we have seen grant priorities change even under the same president or under the same secretary as the nation changes and the priorities of the communities change as well. So we kind of look at trends and we start to analyze that. So I think that answers your question. We don't really kind of look at your project and compare it to the others. We just try to pick up and say, oh, they approached this or, you know, for one, uh, we wrote in a habitat conservation plan um, that the community had been developing and in the works of, of um, nearing completion into a intermodal transit facility grant. And so that, because we had seen some trends where um, the successful grants were actually pulling on the larger picture, looking at the bigger picture, and it was successful and actually was one of the highest funded in the nation that year. So you can kind of pick up on, oh, hey, this piqued their interest for some reason. We can do the same thing. And sometimes it is a word search. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Sometimes you just search and see what word pops up the most. And I've definitely been there. So um, likewise, so with that, with having that rich, robust repository there, if staff come up, if they have a project or if they have an idea or concept around a, a project that could potentially be a CIP for the next fiscal year, um, can they lean on, can we lean on you or can staff lean on you to search that repository yeah. for other projects as well? Yes, yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah, and we've received, even since the report was uh, handed over to the city staff, we've actually received additional grant kind of project ideas that we are conducting research on for right now. Um, so it's kind of an ongoing support. Um, I would recommend um, that, you know, the city maybe look um, outside of the CIP for projects, I know you guys have a lot going on. Um, for example, I'm sure you guys noticed in um, our needs assessment, the police department had a, a lot of requests for kind of facility modifications. And unfortunately, at the federal level, that funding is rather limited. And so for a department like that, for the police department, let's say it's actually more programmatic um, types of funding that is available on the federal level. So think hiring um, equipment uh, types of programs that would likely be uh, more beneficial for a department like that and not just like infrastructure. And we, we uh, in the same way that we look at those previous grant applications, we also look at the current grants availability. So those funding guides come into play in that, in that respect. So in that example, we have one dedicated to public safety and law enforcement um, and fire that we can share with city staff to just take a look at. Because a lot of times you don't even know what's potentially out there. So that kind of gives a little, a, a very focused looked, look at an issue area or type or grouping of projects um, that staff can look at um, um, as well as you. You guys can look at them as well if you've got an idea of a project. We actually like the ideas. We like the, sometimes I say, this is a Christmas list. Just give me your biggest wish. Like, what do you want to do in five years? What do you want to do in 10 years? Um, and, and those are the projects we really like to dig into. Um, and you can look at the, the priority projects that kind of um, rose to the top. There are some long-term priorities for the city in that capacity. And that's where we're, federal dollars can really have a big impact because you can plan it, you can program it out, um, you can de determine which element is going to be um, that you're going to seek the federal funding for um, and, and really present a project that the federal government will want to partner with you on and really look strategically down the line. Awesome. Thank you. Sure. Um, 
and I'm sure the answer to this is it depends on the program, but we get all these magazines and all these emails and they talk about, you know, different infrastructure projects. And they always talk about rural or small town or, you know, small community. Do we count as any of those things or does it just depend on the project? Like on That's which a, fund? It is? That's a really great question. And this is the bane of my existence. Why does the federal government not have one definition for rural? <laughs> Even within kind of like one agency, there are several definitions for rural. Um, so that it does, unfortunately, as you as you predicted, it does depend on the program. We do look at it that is part of kind of our, our lens that we look through um, when we're trying to evaluate kind of a nexus with the city's programs and your ability to compete. Let me ask it this way, just do we ever ever uh, count as rural? Are we just yeah. being from Kansas, do we count? I assumed we did, but I didn't know. Yeah. You do count as rural sometimes, you absolutely do. Yeah, Department okay. of Transportation defines rural as under 200,000 for some of the large infrastructure programs. So, but what I think you also are seeing, we are seeing a, um, a lot of uh, information and you mentioned magazines and articles. Um, uh, there is a priority um, for this administration to focus the investment on certain types of communities. So looking at disadvantaged communities, rural is actually captured into that um, when you're talking generally. Um, so it's kind of, um, they're used interchangeably almost at this point. Um, not to say that rural communities are always disadvantaged or the disadvantaged communities are always rural. It's just kind of interchanging. But that also doesn't mean that if you're not a, a disadvantaged community and you're not a rural community, that you're not going to get funding. Um, we can go through every grant program um, that, that uh, comes out with awards and you will see that. It isn't necessarily all rural, all disadvantaged, but there is a nexus to that. There's ways that you can incorporate it. I'm losing the light again. <laughs> There's ways to incorporate that into the narrative of your program as well. For example, there was a um, a very large transportation program that came out the the raise um, the raise grant, and one of the things they wanted to look at was equity. Um, and so you're talking about equity and highway construction projects, just basic highway construction, interchanges, streets those sort of things. And so a lot of people really struggled. How do you equate, how do you, how do you um, put numbers to equity? Because that's what Department of Transportation infrastructure programs are really about. And in, uh, you know, Heidi and I spoke to the, the program managers and they said, we really didn't award based on a one-to-one -one or any sort of numerical measurement of equity and how those dollars were, were going, to, going to affect they said we really valued the communities who were doing things in their uh, um, the the entities that were doing things in their communities to promote equity um, or to do that reconnecting of communities. So it wasn't necessarily tied; didn't have to be tied to the 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 road, for example, or the interchange. They just appreciated that you that that entity was doing more and thinking outside the box and really trying to expand and, and help their communities and all their citizens and create that equity. So it was kind of a really interesting twist because a lot of people very much struggled with how to answer that question. But it was a significant score for the grant. And continues to be so. Yeah. 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 So, Chris, you. so Chrissy, to piggyback on that point about different grants where it's either raised or um, some of the other that look at disadvantaged communities, 
are you seeing where there's opportunities for communities to compete for those grants that they may not have a, a, a high disadvantaged population, but they may have those populations that are disproportionately impacted. And so, yes, by, okay. Yes. Sorry. To, there, yes. That's, a, oh, that's, that's what the Biden administration is calling environmental justice, um, and which is part of the Justice 40 initiative that's being rolled out and incorporated and piloted in several grant programs right now. But there, there are ways, um, as Christy was just talking okay. about, to really respond to those criteria um, to really shed light because each community is unique and you're not going to fit a classic definition. Not every community is going to fit the definition that the federal government has. So there's there are ways um, that we would help city staff if they were to pursue a grant opportunity that required that, that we could provide strategic advice on how they might want to position their, their narratives around that response. So Heidi, with that being said, are you, as you've gone, as we've gone through this pro process with the city and with our staff, with staff, are you seeing where there are some data points that are possibly missing um, or that we're not, there's data that we're not necessarily collecting in a way that's beneficial to us? Have you seen that or do you feel like we, we have a rich, robust data set to compete for some of these grants? It really does depend on the project. Um, uh, one thing that, that I will say is that the federal government is actually starting to produce tools for applicants to mm -hmm. use in order to actually respond to the criteria. And so when I was kind of looking at some of the grant funding programs, I would go and pop in on these new tools that the federal government is looking at to data mine there. Oftentimes, a lot of the applicants to these programs actually use publicly available data through the census program. Um, there mm -hmm. are exceptions. Um, like a lot of the Department of Transportation grants require uh, that the more complex ones require kind of benefit cost analyses where you have to have transportation studies and things. And those are the types of um, activities that we're starting to really get into with the city staff of, okay, so this project is your, it is a priority for the city. What do you have? Like, this is the grant we've chosen. What do you have? to support that grant right now? And what do you need to get going on in order to be able to compete next year? Any questions? Okay, let's see if there's any public comment. Good evening, my name is Michael Allman. I'm with Sustainability Action Network, uh, one of the uh, longstanding bicycle advocacy groups, bicycle transportation advocacy groups. Um, in my opinion, I think hiring the Ferguson Group was one of the wisest things you've ever done. Particularly your timing seems really great in the advent of uh, the Infrastructure Act, um, timing it with your capital improvement plan. So I think it's great that the work they're doing. Um, I mentioned bicycle transportation. Uh, I'd like to, uh, and I'll, I'll touch on this later in the evening as well, but I'd like to make a distinction between recreational bicycling and transportation bicycling. And I'd like to have staff and the commission have Ferguson Group look through that lens for 
projects and agencies and monies that is available for bicycle transportation. Um, there's, it's amazing how many different agencies they identified in their matrix that do address bicycle work. Um, I'd like to point out one that I noticed, however, for example, bike, uh, people for bikes. Uh, they don't have a large amount of money, uh, but Ferguson Group identified them primarily or maybe exclusively for recreational trails. In fact, the People for Bikes has a major emphasis on bicycle transportation in urban settings. Uh, and considering equity in this whole picture, we need really uh, strong uh, funding and projects in the east side, low income, central city neighborhoods um, where there's a lot larger uh, user group for transportation than recreation. Um, people aren't hopping in their SUVs and driving out to the loop, spending uh, CO2 emissions to go ride their bicycle. They ride their bicycle to work. They ride their bicycle to the store. Um, so I just want to encourage you to have them look through that lens when they're doing their work. Uh, as you know that Funding constraints often determine which projects you bring forward. And if they're looking for things with that lens, then there, there may be some things out there that would, would more emphasize bicycle transportation and make it, you know, enable that to happen. So those are just my perspective on it. And I thank you for, for this whole work. Thanks. Any other public comment on this item? Uh, let's look uh, online and make sure there's no one on Zoom who's interested in making public comment on this. And there's no additional public comment there. All right, let's bring it back for some discussion. Um, I would actually, um, I guess, uh, somewhat agree with um, uh, Mr. Allman, um, but what I saw was, wait for it, um, sidewalks. Um, so there's all kinds of things for trails and amenities, but less often does it seem like sidewalks fit in with um, actual transportation, buses, or um, um, infrastructure. So um, thanks for pointing that out. Any other comments? Let's win a few of these. <laughs> More than a few. <laughs> no, I would, I would, I would just echo the mayor's uh, sentiments. I was going to bring that, bring that up, um, Heidi and Christy, uh, on the presentation. Which again, it's it's been some weeks in the waiting. So I'm glad we were able to, to, to finally have you present. Um, you brought up two, um, two, two, two points that I wanted to stress on briefly was. With the reconnect with reconnecting communities and also um, the recommendation that we as a commission and as a city look at look outside those CIP projects to uh, for some potential funding, whether that's foundation funding or funding that um, for um, projects that wouldn't necessarily have federal dollars attached to it. And, I, you know, I, I couldn't echo those sentiments um, more. I mean, it speaks to when we talk about 
you know, that intentional community engagement. And when we're doing that and when we're doing that right, um, then we're able to identify and work with our community partners. And we have that relationship, that co-governance relationship to know what are the needs in the community. And if there are projects that have been identified on other plans outside of the CIP that help to, that help our community to have that opportunity available um, to us, um, to at least identify um, those those foundational dollars or other program dollars, again, I think does tell well into why it's important that community engagement through governance and and, and engaging those partners and um, identifying needs and being able to have a funding a, a channel to identify them and efficiently work together um, to knock some items off, you know, some project items off. So I'm glad you you brought that up. To the mayor's point in regards to reconnecting communities um, and identifying, I know a couple of the um, the slides had um, surface transportation, and I think it aligns with. Um, bless you, Commissioner Fee, or somebody. Uh, identify um, surface transportation. And um, to Commissioner Fingledine's point about depending on what agency you're in, a defined term is defined for that agency. It's defined as this, but it may not be defined as that um, in a different agency. And I think that's um, in the infrastructure plan and also in different agency grant product um, projects, other grant funded, other agency grant funded projects. That's kind of um, been something that's been stuck in my craw, especially around transportation. And uh, Mr. Allman brought it up as well is what does surface transportation mean? What is that? Um, what is that definition? What is that defined term? And is, is there opportunities to look at funding or at least go after funding um, for those for projects that are not related to the CIP to the mayor's point to sidewalks and you know I know I, I made a pitch um, to several um, delegates in regards to I think there's language in the safe streets for all as well as in um, in the raise grants that if we're talking about surface transportation um, whether that's bike or pedestrian, and then we're talking about safe streets and mitigating um, um, uh, mitigating fatalities and um, supporting cyclists and pedestrian walk. Sidewalk infrastructure is something that is important to that, and it's not just something that's innocuous mm -hmm. to us. We, we know that crumbling sidewalk infrastructure is impacting Ohio community. So I don't know, maybe I'm making a backhanded pitch to for the Department of Transportation to change their mm -hmm. defined terms so that we can utilize these dollars. But again, uh, you know, we've all touched on these points and I think it's an opportunity to keep that to light as we engage, you know, our congressional delegates to say, hey, is there some opportunity to work with these agencies to see the bigger picture and in infrastructure um, in addition to roads and bridges, it's also sidewalks as well. So, yeah. Any other discussion comments? So, kind of, uh, well, I, this might be a better question for um, Casey, and I apologize if it's not. Um, uh, um, this is great, and I'm so excited, and many of you know that. When I came in, I tried to convince our city manager to hire a grant writer, and he didn't. Um, and then 
COVID hit and we needed it. So my real question here is, um, even though you're there to support us and you give us all this information, I want to make sure, Casey, that um, then when they give that to staff, that staff has capacity to meet these deadlines um, or give them whatever they need because it's additional to what they've been doing in the past, um, which is great. Um, but also I, I, I get concerned that... Um, we're um, heaping more um, data collection or, or paperwork on staff that doesn't really have the capacity for it. I appreciate that, um, Mayor. I, you know, and Heidi and um, Christy should jump in here, but I, I think that it's been a good partnership. I think that um, we've been able to lean on them to 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 provide some of that, uh, the work that you're talking about, whether it is Dana mining or, you know, reviewing drafts. So they really have been able to, uh, increase our capacity. Um, that's not to say that, you know, there have been some that we've just had to say, uncle, <laughs> um, you know, we can't do, uh, all of them, but they've been very helpful in helping us be strategic about that. I don't know if either of you would add anything differently. That's one of the primary, I'll just piggyback on that. It's one of the primary goals here is to make this process less overwhelming um, for city staff so that we can program it out. We can kind of, um, Heidi, I mean, Heidi mentioned a, a grants calendar. So now that we know the priorities and we start to match them up with the, pro, uh, with the programs, we have a general idea when the programs will, uh, will come out. Um, we have a database that's about 12 years or 10 years now old where we can kind of see those trends. This grant comes out in the spring. This grant comes out in the winter. So we can strategically plan in that capacity and help um, make sure. <laughs> it's like on a timer. Um, okay, uh, yeah. Help make sure that um, that all of the ducks are in a row before the notice of funding come up, um, comes out. So. Heidi went over that that uh, natural grant cycle um, and, and said that when you're in the solicitation phase, you really want to have all your data, all your backup, all of that sort of stuff. And that's what we're doing now. So it'll make it easier for city staff, um, either engaging with us because we're available to do grant writing as well to offset that burden to, to um, especially on some of the more technical grants to make it easier and, and less overwhelming altogether. And that includes on the administration side too. Thank you so much. Any other comments? Questions? Well, thank you so much. This is incredible. I was excited about this a few weeks back and I'm re-excited about it. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much for being here with us and doing all this work um, and, and really helping us do something probably some of us thought two years ago we could we could never do some of these things. So. But thank you so much. Well, well, we thank you for the time and hopefully next time we will be doing it this way and actually sitting there personally so we can um, get to enjoy Lawrence a little bit. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. That was so cool. Okay. That brings us to, oops, sorry. My computer fell asleep. Uh, we're skipping item number two for anybody that missed that. And moving on to item number three, consider the 2023 to 2027 capital improvement plan perspectives and direct staff as appropriate. Yes. Good evening. Uh, Mayor, City Commission, Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. Uh, I get the uh, privilege to present to you tonight the uh, perspectives that we'd like to share on the capital improvement plan for uh, the fiscal years 2023 through 2027. 
before we get into the uh, perspectives, I want to just start with a general overview of uh, what a capital plan is for those who uh, may not know or to at least inform uh, the discussion around which type of projects we're discussing tonight. So for uh, the City of Lawrence uh, purposes, a capital improvement plan is our long-range planning tool for capital projects that will help us identify capital needs um, and available funding sources to address those needs. Um, what you'll see in the two perspectives that, that may uh, cause the public some um, concern and, and may cause you some concern as well is that some projects have a higher score, but they are actually not funded uh, in the plan. And, and sometimes that simply has to do with funding sources. For example, the um, transient guest tax is going to provide uh, some funding for the capital improvement plan for a few projects that the parks department has outlined. Um, those projects are lower scoring than other projects within the park and amenities uh, group, um, but those other projects aren't appropriate for that funding source and therefore uh, funding source is a critical component of the overall capital plan. So our capital plan is used to, to prioritize the projects, identify the funding, and that's really what we want to talk about tonight is um, that prioritization process and where that falls in terms of the overall funding matrix. So projects that are included in the capital improvement plan are projects that generally cost $100,000 or more and that they're either going to create a new asset or they're going to enhance a current assets condition. So um, a you know, $7 million improvement to Wakarusa would be a capital improvement project that's enhancing the useful life of Wakarusa uh, for the next 10 to 15 years, as an example. These uh, projects are uh, primarily designed to either uh, extend the useful life of an asset, such as, uh, you know, reconstruction of Wakarusa, enhance a quality of service, such as the uh, Lawrence Loop or the transit uh, multimodal facility, uh, reduce future maintenance costs, again, back to uh, road projects uh, or upgrade critical components of an asset, such as uh, the discussion around the, uh, the wastewater treatment plant. And so, um, this is going to be a little bit confusing, I apologize, but last year we expanded the scope of the, the capital improvement plan to include maintenance projects that were uh, significant in overall dollar value, but not necessarily significant at the, at the itemized level. Um, and that really just made the plan uh, uh, really cumbersome um, for staff and for the public to, to follow along. And so in an effort to streamline the capital improvement plan, uh, we've we've boiled it back down to just capital projects uh, that meet the definition on the page before. So um, with the exception of maintenance projects that have a capital component. So, uh, you know, the uh, replacement of a road would be a capital project rather than a maintenance project. Um, those are included in the CIP, uh, but we've taken out all the equipment and the uh, software to try to make it a little easier to follow along. And so some of the long-term goals the city has for the capital improvement plan is um, align the, the capital improvements with what the community uh, says it values uh, through the strategic plan 
to come up with a plan for our limited tax dollars so that they're used in the most efficient and effective way, um, to identify priorities and to fund those priorities over um, what would be you know, considered a traditional funding list. And then um, most importantly for, for us is to align the long-term financial plan with the city's strategic plan. And so um, the city has had a prioritization process for capital improvement projects for a few years now. Um, last year, we had a, a pretty big overhaul to that prioritization process where we um, attempted to take the scoring and funding matrix and align it with the values uh, and the uh, commitments of the strategic plan. And so uh, we brought that to the city commission, had some discussion around that, and it was adopted in uh, April of 2021. And that's been attached to um, the staff report uh, for anyone who would like to go back and look at that prioritization process. Um, after that, we, uh, the CIP committee established some guidelines, and those were approved by the city commission as well in February of this year, uh, and those have been attached as well. So um, while we've been doing this for a few years, we've really been trying to um, refine and shape how we uh, view the projects, how we, how we score them, and uh, the prioritization that we place on those. And um, as you can see from the scores that have been presented uh, on the projects tonight, um, we probably have you know, some more work to do in that regard. So the, the CIP committee is um, meeting to you know, discuss the outcome of uh, the scoring matrix and to see uh, what, if any, recommendations we would have for you all uh, for consideration for changes to that scoring matrix. Um, one of the things that uh, I noticed and a few other members on the team noticed right away was that our, uh, our strategic plan is weighted uh, more favorably for new items rather than uh, the um, support of existing infrastructure. And so um, the main reason why two perspectives are being presented tonight is that if, if we take a posture that the highest score wins, um, we really could miss out on an opportunity to uh, severely um, impact road conditions throughout the community over the next uh, three to five years. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we were providing context, you know, that the score, much like uh, priority-based budgeting, the score is a, a data point and it's a good uh, discussion item, um, but the CIP committee believes that we really shouldn't just look at the score and say, you know, winner take all. We really need to factor in other things such as, um, is it a new asset? Is it a new program? Or uh, will this enhance a current asset and thereby drive down our maintenance cost over time uh, to maintain that asset? So a few of the revenue projections, um, these really don't change from one perspective to the other. There's, there's slight modifications, but the overall projections uh, stay the same. We're projecting sales, uh, sales tax increases uh, 5% for the next uh, two years and then 3% um, in the out years. The uh, mill levy for general obligation debt is projected to stay flat. Uh, with a 1% increase in uh, assessed valuation to keep it conservative. Um, and then all the projects that are in the funded plan 
Perspective A and Perspective B both have the same amount of projects in it for um, both water, wastewater debt and uh, water, wastewater um, cash, as well as stormwater debt and stormwater cash. And that's because those are the projects that are currently in the rate model um, that the city commission approved previously. Um, so any any adjustments, uh, certainly you could swap if you wanted projects that are unfunded with projects that are funded, but to increase funding in either the uh, revenue bond category or the water, wastewater or stormwater categories um, would require an increase in rates or a reduction in something else in that budget, such as operating expenses. And so the two perspectives I've uh, touched on briefly, but the perspective A is uh, funding the projects based upon scoring. Um, you'll see on the funding by um, funding or the projects by funding source, we have a few footnotes where uh, even in perspective A, we didn't always take the top score. Uh, sometimes the, the project wasn't uh, is going under an evaluation. And so staff has asked that it be uh, pulled from consideration and um, uh, and perspective B, which we'll get to in a minute, is then um, saying, let's just look at what we currently have. And if we were to prioritize um, our limited dollars on maintaining what we currently own um, and you know what we're, what we're currently responsible for, uh, what would that look like? Um, so that would be not adding any new items, but simply maintaining what we have. And so under uh, perspective uh, A, you'll see we've uh, broken out the revenue types uh, so that you can see for the five years uh, what we're projecting on taxes and grants, uh, support from Douglas County for emergency medical services. Uh, the transient guest tax, as I mentioned, is, uh, is in here as a funding source. And then uh, the fees for uh, the airport, the utilities, and then finally, the uh, bonds, the general obligation bonds, which are supported by the debt levy, the revenue bonds, which are supported by water uh, utility fees, and the stormwater bonds, which are supported by stormwater fees. Um, one other thing that uh, we did for um, hopefully comparison purposes is we itemized the uh, projects into these categories uh, so that you can compare the funding by category. Uh, between perspective A and B, and see where the where the differences are, where the differences are. Um, some of these are new categories that we haven't had before, uh, specifically because of the um, strategic plans, such as affordable housing, um, and others are just um, broad categories to try to lump uh, like projects together. So the uh, funding plan under perspective A would be a uh, hundred and 5.98 million in 2023 and a 400.3 million uh, overall CIP for the five years. You'll note that uh, under facilities, there'd be 160.6 million almost uh, in new facilities uh, or enhancements to existing facilities to the city. Um, our road uh, Projects would be 66.99 million or almost $67 million. Parks and amenities is 28.3. Um, 
and the vehicle and equipment, this is uh, predominantly fire uh, equipment, is uh, 30.5 million. And so under perspective B now, um, as you can see, the revenue stays roughly the same um, because some of the uh, items are, you know, have grant components or don't have grant components. And uh, some of those revenues uh, change slightly with the projects that are in versus the projects that are out. You'll note that affordable housing, because it is new, would not be considered under uh, perspective B. That doesn't mean that, um, you know, staff is saying we should not do it. It's simply looking at two perspectives. One is the highest score and one is uh, funding of existing assets. So um, to the extent that affordable housing would be, you know, put back into the CIP, that money would come from road projects that are currently funded uh, with those same dollars. So under uh, perspective B, you'll see the facilities is at 142.2 million. Roads has gone up to almost $100 million. That's uh, the pretty big swap there with parks dropping to 17.8 uh, and then the vehicle and equipment dropping to 27.9. So we thought it would be, um, we hoped it would be helpful, I should say, to show you know what's funded under both perspectives. So what's uniformly uh, essentially being recommended uh, in the CIP what is only funded under perspective A, what is only funded under perspective B, and then uh, what is not funded in either plan uh, by category so that you can see uh, where those break out. And so affordable housing, again, is only in um, funding uh, option A. The uh, airport, because it's fee-driven and uh, federal grant-driven, is in both A and B. Uh, the ones, the facility projects that are in both perspectives would be uh, funding of the Kansas uh, River Wastewater Treatment Plant, um, funding of phase uh, one, I believe, of the uh, one and two of the field operations campus, uh, funding for farmland remedial uh, alternatives for the uh, farmland site. We have funding for the CAW uh, waste. Uh, water treatment plant infrastructure. We have funding for the multimodal transit uh, transfer facility. We have set aside funds for reconfiguration of City Hall. Uh, we have funding for uh, Wakarusa wastewater treatment plant storage uh, and solid handling. And um, you can see the other projects we have listed there. I won't, I, I won't read them all. So the um, the funding in perspective A that would be added to that list would be an enhance, an expand, an expansion, excuse me, of fire station six and seven, um, and then funding for electrical vehicle infrastructure. In perspective B, um, none of those three projects would be funded; only the other ones, and then the the uh, facilities that uh, are not funded in either one is uh, the field operation uh, campus. I think that's phase three. Um, the replacement of fire station three is unfunded uh, simply because if we, if we don't build the expansion stations, the fire department says that it's not wise to move station three. Um, we have the money to build the new stations. We don't 
uh, currently have the money identified to uh, take care of uh, replacement of station three within our current funding structure. Um, and then you can see the other projects that are listed uh, primarily just by scoring. Um, they were not funded in either plan. Uh, I would point out that the uh, algae treatment at farmland uh, staff believes that that's covered under the farmland remediation alternatives. Uh, so that's why it's unfunded is we felt it was a duplication of a project that's currently funded. So on to uh, park and amenities. These are the ones that are in both plans and then a renovation to the outdoor aquatic center, um, parking lot, ADA access at um, YSC. We've got a couple of loop projects that are in both plans. Um, a sewage lagoon liner at Eagle Bend is a uh, requirement. We have uh, the youth sports complex artificial turfs funded under both plans. And then uh, you can see the other projects that we have there. And so the uh, park and amenity projects in perspective A, the new would be um, expansion of the Lawrence Loop from uh, Queens Road to Castled, uh, downtown event space near the library, um, playground improvements at Clinton Park and Dad Perry Park, and uh, phase A of the Caw River Common Project. The uh, items that are funded under perspective B would then be uh, upgrading infields at the youth sports complex, um, the South Park waiting uh, pool renovated into a uh, spray park, uh, Lawrence Loop, 7th Street to Constant Park, and then the Lawrence Spur from uh, downtown for a bikeway are all projects that would be funded under um, perspective B. And then all the projects that are listed in gray um, were not funded in either uh, perspective A or B. On road and bridges, uh, you can see that we have uh, several projects that are funded in both. Uh, street maintenance is actually funded in both. And this is really one of the, the big differences between perspective A and B. Under perspective A, street maintenance would be uh, $30 million. And under perspective B, street maintenance would be $44 million. So that um, almost $14 million difference is new new things in uh, perspective A versus maintenance and perspective B. And so the unfunding um, under option one is 44 million. If you went with option B, then the unfunding would be 30 million. So they, they basically flip flop. On the uh, stormwater projects, there are uh, all these projects are currently in the rate model. Uh, so they're funded in both options or both perspectives, excuse me. And these three are not in the rate models, so they're not funded in either uh, perspective. Traffic control, there's two projects. Uh, these are actually projects that have, uh, are going to start in 22. This is just residual funding. Um, so it, even though they scored low, um, they were included because the money's already uh, essentially been committed for these projects. And then vehicles and equipment. Um, a lot of these projects are funded by uh, federal dollars um, or um, 
dedicated funding sources. So there's not a lot of uh, changes between the perspectives. Um, all of the projects in green are in both perspectives. Uh, the ones that are in A, uh, should we build a new fire station six and seven, we would then need ambulances and fire trucks for both. Uh, if we don't build those, um, then, then um, under perspective B, we would be recommending a replacement of fire truck three. And then uh, there's one project that's not funded in either one. And our last uh, category is water and wastewater projects. You can see all of the projects that are funded in both uh, perspectives. These are in the current rate model and those projects that are unfunded are not in the current rate model. So comparing uh, the impact of the options, you'll see that um, these are the amounts in perspective A that are more or less uh, than perspective B. So essentially um, perspective A uh, would put money toward affordable housing facilities, parks and amenities, vehicles and equipment, and take that money from road and bridge projects and perspective B would flip that. It would take that money from those categories and move it to roads and bridges. So uh, as I mentioned before, the debt um, component of both perspectives is, is essentially the same. And so these next two slides uh, are based on the higher debt uh, option, where our uh, current bonded indebtedness is now, where it would be uh, at the end of the, of the CIP. And then uh, to provide just a little more context on the mill levy, uh, we thought this slide would be helpful. Um, some of you may recall the city when uh, the city decided to build the police facility, the debt levy was raised at that time uh, to start to build up a reserve to help uh, offset future rate increases. Uh, and so that is the, the cash balance that we have in the bond and debt uh, fund right now. Um, you'll see the blue line is revenue just growing 1% a year. And then the uh, red or orange line, depending on the color of your screen, this is the expenditures going above revenue, which is driving the cash balance down. Um, but based on the funded uh, CIP, we still believe that the bond and interest will not uh, dip below uh, the fund balance policy, which is 60 days on hand. And so some of the um, policy questions that we'd like uh, to discuss with you tonight, um, this is really based on those um, sheets that are attached to the presentation that show the projects by funding source, funded versus under unfunded. Uh, are there any unfunded projects that you would like to see uh, swapped with a funded project? Um, are there any projects on the funded list currently, either perspective A or B, uh, that you believe should be delayed or reprioritized uh, to allow for funding of other projects. Um, this third question admittedly is more confusing than I, than I wanted, so I apologize, but essentially what we're getting at is, um, if you go back to this slide and you see that to fund the current uh, CIP, we need to leave the mill levy uh, flat 
would there be any appetite that we actually reduce the CIP, thereby reducing the need for the debt, and we could con, uh, convert some of that debt levy to the general fund to help bridge that operating gap in the general fund? And then the last question um, is essentially the same, but for the utility rates, would you be in favor of increasing rates to take some of those unfunded items uh, and move them to funded? Um, or would you uh, look at reducing utility rates in favor of taking some of those funded items and moving them to unfunded? So those are uh, really the policy questions that we'd like to uh, discuss tonight. And then the last slide is just a reminder of the budget uh, process from here to the end. Um, we're currently slated to provide uh, the city manager's recommended budget on July 12th. Under the state law, we're required to provide the county notice um, on July 20th of our intent to exceed the revenue neutral rate, if that is your desire. Um, on August 16th, we intend to have a budget follow-up presentation. So that would be uh, updates to what you saw tonight, um, updates to you know any revenue estimate uh, from what's provided on July 12th based on uh, any changes that may, may occur. And then uh, we're currently slated to have the revenue neutral rate hearing slash budget hearing on August 23rd, if you all decide to exceed the revenue neutral rate. Um, and then the timeline changes pretty significantly if we don't exceed the revenue neutral rate, but presuming that we do exceed the revenue neutral rate, then September 6th is when we would have the budget uh, on your agenda for consideration. Those are all of my comments. So let me stop sharing. I'd be happy to answer any questions you all may have. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, any questions? Oh, I just want to start out. I have questions, but just as overarching um, view of this, I just want to thank staff for the work that they've done on these project sheets. I've been talking to Craig about this since he actually walked in the door a few years ago. And you guys have done just a great job of redoing these project sheets to make them much more friendly to read on a you know day-to-day -day level versus all the technical technical aspects, which we all know the engineers know and we need for them to know it, but they did a great job of interpreting these so much better. And I really do appreciate it very much on that, as well as how you've laid out the CIP in this slide presentation. Um, I really like that. It's, it's um, again, much clearer. And I, I really appreciate your work on that. I just want you to know that. So that's overarching. I do have questions, but I would open it up to my fellow commissioners to kind of start it off. You ask good questions, so you go first. <laughs> I'm happy for you to go first. <laughs> well, okay, I'll, I'll start off. Um, there are some projects here. Well, as I look at the at this as a whole, what it seems to me is option B is more of the things we really need to do. Option A are some of the thing are more of the things that are more out there that are could be potentially wants, but it's it's 
out of our range. What I think anyway is that some of these are out of the range as to what is our focus, what is our mission, what is our vision um, for for our CIP. Um, and, and so that's kind of how I, as I read through this, the A versus B, and that's what I started to see in my head. And I, if, if I'm wrong on that, I would sure appreciate somebody else piping up and kind of straighten me out on that, but that's kind of where it's kind of panned out for me. So, and I have to admit overall, the idea of, of, uh, prioritizing the existing infrastructure, that's really important for me that I believe that, that quite a bit of our focus should be that because if we, as we continue, and I know we need new, some new infrastructure and, and that's going to have to happen at some point, but as we build, as was pointed out in the slides, as we build more infrastructure, it's just going to really tax our operating budget down the road. And we're struggling just taking care of what we've got right now. Um, and so I'm leaning more towards that at this point, but there's many project specific items that I'm interested in. Um, and I don't know if to dive into those piece by piece, I, I'd kind of like to hear what other folks are thinking on the overall aspect of this, of this um, document. I, I think it's great. Um, I can't wait to talk about it with you. I do want to make sure we get all our, some of our questions though, before we dig in Germany specific. Well, I, I can go into specific projects. I can start out, you know, we've got the fire stations. That's obviously a big one. And I know we've had the optimization plan presented to us from the fire, our, our, our fire, fire folks and um, the needs that they have shown to us. What I didn't see in the cost proposals here as well as in the project sheet they talk about when we build these new fire stations we're going to need about 21 people per fire station or somewhere in that neighborhood they don't tell us what that cost is and granted we're going to spend millions on a fire station but if we don't plan for the operation of those paying for the actual cost to to you know, have firefighters there, then it's hard for me to justify um, getting on board with spending it for the fire stations. Um, and based on what I remember from past conversations, we're looking at it between two and two and a half million dollars per station, I think, for the um, um, staffing it. And so that has to be considered as potential for new mill, mill levy increases because that can't, you can't to squeeze two and a half million dollars on twice into an already stretched budget. That's just unrealistic. And so I can't really get on board with the fire station aspect of it until we know for sure what it's going to cost us for the long-term operation of that actual facility. It was a little bit different in the police. I have a point, point of order. Vice Mayor Larson, are you asking a question or are you doing comments? Cause I thought we were doing questions and then public comment. Um, the question, but well, the question, we don't know what that cost is. What is that cost? So is that a question to staff or is that a general it would, question? It would, it would be a staff question. Yeah. Okay. Cause I didn't hear the question. So I'm trying to, that's what I'm, what I'm saying is that just that we don't know that cost. So for me to get on board with something like that, if they can give us that cost and include that into our expectation for monies needed in future years, then that's something we can do. So then is the question is why was the cost not included or is the, yeah. com or is, is it you're, you're making a comment about it? Well, I'm hearing a lot of comment, but I'm not hearing yeah. the question. Well, that's, and I thought we were in the question. That's also my question. <laughs> okay. Well, I know for point of order, we're doing questions. So I didn't hear the questions. I just wanted to make sure 
So you would give us space to, I don't want to comment because I'd like to comment on that, but this is not the time for us to comment. This is questions. So that that's my um, with the fire station and we're talking about specific projects. So the other one of the other questions I've had on a specific project is and and this was I remember seeing this in last year's budget, um, the funding for the bridge on 27th Street. It's unfunded this year, which I understand that. But one thing they talk about in the project sheet is that this bridge is near its end of life. What I would like to know is what what is the meaning of end of life? Because if that bridge is at its end of life or near its end of life, then it seems to me that that might be a little bit um, uh, reason to potentially move it up on the list. If it's if end of life is 10 years from now, that's different. Is it two years from now? And that's not what I'm seeing in the project. Sheet, so I'd be interested in that. So that's a couple of items. Mm-hmm. I didn't open it up to. I didn't know. I didn't know if staff was on. If they want to uh, cogitate on that while we uh, keep throwing out, or if they want to answer those. This is Matt Bond, Engineering Program Manager. So if you want an answer to that, Vice uh, Mayor, it, it, the bridge will last a couple more years. Uh, this coming year is its next inspection cycle. I inspect them every two years, and so it's suffering from efflorescence and and. Uh, Oh, delamination. It, it will last another couple of years, so we could push that. But I just I'm hesitant when we keep pushing that bridge farther and farther down the road. Um, as you know, if, as long as it's it's structurally OK, which it is, but it's functionally obsolete. So th- those are those are the issues we're facing with that particular bridge. OK, because we right now it's unfunded and out to and I think it's two years out before. That funding yeah. was and and we talked about that during you know when they, they were asking me about that and I said yes it, it we can push it out a little bit farther but I, I don't want to keep pushing it out indefinitely but yes it'll it'll last a couple more years okay thank you thank you Matt so real quick with a general question on some of the unfunded projects specifically around roads and bridges and Matt if you if we can use the 27th street bridge as an example although that's unfunded and the recommendation was that based on your your recommendation we can push it out a bit do you believe that there are with a with a project as this that there are federal dollar opportunities and that way it may while it may not fit in the CIP budget for this year this is one of those projects that Heidi and Christy talked about where we can kind of cycle through and if federal dollars that fit, we can utilize that fit this type of project, we can utilize it for that. Yeah. So KDOT has a local bridge uh, match. It's 80, 20. And so I'm, as, as we progress farther down the road, that's going to get closer to being eligible for that funding. So that's one of the reasons I was okay with pushing that you know, down the road a little bit, because as that bridge increases in age and its overall score comes down for how we rate it, then it'll it'll jump up in KDOT's local projects, a bridge replacement program. You, thank you, Matt. And you said that that program has a match to it? or Yeah, it's, a, it's an 80-20 split with okay. KDOT funding 80% of it. And does the does the line item on here does that reflect that eighty twenty or is it just based on no that the the budget that you see in the project is if the city fully funds it. Thank you. 
That actually leads me to one of my questions. Um, and I had the same question. Um, so it's, it's good that we see the things we know we get grants for, but some of these I looked at and thought, Oh, I bet we can get a grant for that. Or I looked through here and I was like, Oh, we totally get that. So, you know, obviously they wouldn't want to make us a promise on here, but it also might have helped. It might help me to decide as I, I totally agree with um, vice mayor. It's different um, when I've identified funding for something. <laughs> uh, we've had that conversation before. Um, and so um, thank you for bringing that. Cause that was one of my questions and I kind of, wondered how staff what how um how you were able or how you were attempting to balance that in your you know in your projections then it's that's a great example i i see from matt bound but i wonder kind of jeremy what your thoughts are sure jeremy wellness finance director um i think one of the big challenges of any long-term plan and that's what this is more than an operational tool it's a long-term plan um if we if, if we start to you know say we think we can get two million for this we think we can get three million for that and that moves those projects up where they may have been lower and then we don't actually get that money now we've got a plan that's not feasible um and so direction to uh the project managers this year was tell me about the dollars you know you're you're certain or you've got a um high degree of confidence because of past practices that we've we've gotten these awards or these are earmarks and that's really where uh, the cip landed um, the work with um, the ferguson group is you know just starting and so um i i guess what i should say is this document that's being presented tonight started five months ago and at that time we had even less confidence with uh where the infrastructure bill uh what was and um, I, I think that brings up a really uh, important point about how we want this to be a planning tool. Uh, we also intend that uh, as federal dollars become available, um, you know, we would then bring that back to you and say, "Hey, we we know we said this bridge was uh, low on our priority with our money, but now that someone else is willing to pay for it, it meets all these criteria." And that might be cause for an amendment to the to the plan. I have a couple specific questions. Go ahead. A couple projects. Um, and bounce around. I think kind of related to the similar to the question on the 27th Street bridge, the 19th and Castle Water Tower, you know, we have in there as unfunded like two years from now to be um whatever um recoded but it's completely unfunded what again was as we talk about lowest cost of ownership i'm just curious about the thought on not funding that project and where that might leave us down the road and having to replace it you're broken <laughs> This is Liam uh, Moritz, Engineering Program Manager. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, great. Um, on that specific project, the coatings and castle, um, all of the water towers have kind of been identified as needing coatings um, and maintenance, but that one specifically uh, has probably the better of the ratings of the coatings. So that one's the one that we can prolong a couple of years um, in comparison 
to the others, but we are uh, identifying and inspecting those just about every year now. I saw that HOPO is, is going to be funded, but that's why you have that one pushed off. Okay, thank you. Um, question on the electric vehicle infrastructure. Two questions on that, or maybe three. One would be, is that specific? I couldn't quite tell from the, even though I agree with Commissioner Lawson that the, the project details are better than they were. I couldn't tell on that one. Is that just electric infrastructure for city-owned vehicles, or is that electric um, vehicle infrastructure, for example, you know, for you know, for the community? Question one. So, Mike Lawless, Deputy Director for MSO, um, that particular program was for infrastructure um, for city vehicles. Um, whether or not that could roll into some sort of um, cooperative uh, public-private partnership with, um, you know, Evergy or, or some other group, um, you know, I, I don't have those answers. Um, we are in the process of uh, evaluating the transition plan for our fleet. And one of the options in that is, you know, what, what kind of infrastructure projects are we going to need um, to start making that transition from the, the current fleet to um, either uh, an all-electric fleet or whatever the transition that, that you know, we have to go through until maybe the electric vehicles are are there for all of all of our um, all of our fleet. Um, without having that study, we, we didn't really know how much we needed to um, budget for that. And so um, this is really kind of the placeholder to say, hey, we know we need dollars in order to do that. Um, but until we kind of get that study underway and start seeing some of the results from that, um, you know, we really don't have a, a good handle on what the the cost of that infrastructure improvements are going to be. Um, I guess related question, and I know we've talked about this a little bit. I mean, obviously, as the the budget currently stands, we're putting a lot of money into the new MSO campus. Does that include electric vehicle infrastructure? I mean, is that part of the? I mean, is that part of the plan? Um, I think we've talked about this before, but I wanted to ask that question related to this line item. This is Andy Enns, uh, engineering program manager for MSO. Um, the the MSO campus um, there there is some uh, you know. We're getting into schematic design for uh, phase one and two. Um, there, we are going to be looking at uh, electric vehicle uh, stations and just how we'd set up uh, the conduits and, and re related infrastructure for how that would be um, set up for each of those buildings. So, yeah, it would there would be arrangements for that to be in there. Okay, I guess my kind of question comment is as we heard earlier it seems like that's like the one of the number one things that the federal government wants to fund so i'd hate not to be thinking about that and putting plans in place on you know to be able to 
try to capture some of that money, either at the MSO campus or otherwise. Um, question, and this seems to be a minor point. We had line items in there about downtown um, reconstruction, and that was in one line, it was Mass Street being reconstructed on option a and that was removed in option b mm -hmm. but i saw on both option a and b on the funding sheets that you have the transient guest tax having a little bit of money for downtown improvements but i didn't see where those fell in under a or b are those there and just kind of hidden or jeremy wallet finance director um as i mentioned this is a, a process that started in february um, the funding sheets were uh, put together by the project managers. And so they had identified where they thought the funding should go. Um, it's then evaluated by the CIP committee and then um, the recommendations before you, the sheets that you have uh, on perspective A and B by funding source is where we would actually recommend the funding come from. Um, so sometimes, you know, in, in probably 95% of the instances, what they thought uh, was the appropriate source uh, the CIP committee agreed with. And so there's uh, uniformity there, but um, there just simply isn't enough time to go back in and change all those sheets to update okay. them at a draft level until we know what's in and what's out. We really wanted to reserve changes to those sheets to when we know what's funded and what's not. But if I So if I understand it right, and again, I'm not, this is great. I'm, I'm not trying to be critical, but as I read them by funding source, I would say somewhere they should be in green because those are funded under both A and B under the funding source from the transit gas tax. I just didn't see it in the in the color sheet, so I was trying to make sure where it was at. Um, like, like when I look on page um, 32, it's entirely possible they got missed. I thought they were in there, but let me look real quick. Yeah, I thought I saw. And then on page 32, it shows that for perspective A. And then if you go to page 40, uh, 40, 49, is it, or 48? Yeah, 46, Six. it shows it in being funded in option B as well. But then I didn't see it anyplace else. It's not a big deal. I mean, we're, I we're the progress. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have the page numbers in front of me, but park and amenities, the green, uh, the bottom two items, the portable stage and the downtown planters are both from the TGT, the transient guest tax, excuse me. And then I'm trying to find the third one here, just a second. Okay. I thought I saw it. Hold on. Oh, I see. I have too many tabs. I see. Though under the okay, I'm I'm with you. I'm following you. I'm following you now. I was looking under. There's one project that does that with the street. That's an MS number. This is a PR number. Yeah. I see it now. Okay, sorry, that was my mistake. Thank you. Um, but related to that, just curious, transit guest tax, both of those it shows basically we're saving money up until the end and doing both of those projects. I mean, the, the mastery planners 
at the end in 25 or 26 and 27. Just curious why we wouldn't do one of those projects when we had 300,000 and do the other project two years later. Why do we save them both up at the end? I think I'll defer that to Mark Hecker if he's here. Mark Hecker, Assistant Director of Parks and Rec. I think you're seeing a little bit of a duplication. So Parks and Rec submitted a number of smaller projects. There are you know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands. And there's one bigger project that does kind of a mass street reconstruction. So if mass street reconstruction comes through, then some of those smaller projects would probably be encompassed in that project. So like the planters would be involved in a mass street reconstruction. If mass street reconstruction doesn't happen, then we would want to move forward on some of these smaller touch-up items. Okay, that makes sense. Um, the Lawrence Loop, the separated trail over Iowa, is that over Iowa or is that under Iowa? It just said, separ it said separated grade at Iowa. <laughs> Mark Hacker, Assistant Director, I don't know if Jake Baldwin's on. There, there's Jake. Yeah, hey, good evening. This is Jake Baldwin, Program Manager. Um, I think that would be determined um, in the design, but I envision that being over. I don't know that there's enough uh, grade separation to get underneath the road there. But again, that would be determined during design. And it didn't sound like 1.8 million would be enough to go under. <laughs> okay, just checking. I just wasn't sure on that. And... I think that's all my specific questions. Thank you. Question about Lions Park um, water splash park. Um, for 2022, we have 400,000 um, allocated for that for this year. But then I also saw it in next year's or 2023 budget for 348,000. Is that going to cost a total of 700 and some thousand dollars? Mark Hacker, Assistant Director, no, it won't. That was basically carryover money. So we're anticipating that project won't finish this year. So you wanted to show the funding for next year. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> can, uh, Jeremy, can I go back a little uh, to the kind of the beginning, really for the benefit of the public, because I have a feeling I'm going to get asked, but, um, you know, you said in one of your slides that, that where the scores come from, they're peer reviewed by subject matter experts. Can you just for a minute um, tell us who um, came up with these scores based on the matrix? Um, Jeremy Willen, finance director. So the scores were initially um, done by the uh, the person asking for the project, whether that be the public or a staff person. Yeah. They were then peer reviewed uh, by category, and um, I won't remember them all offhand. So, Melissa. I don't necessarily. I'm sorry. I don't necessarily need to know the names of all the staff. I just want to be sure. Well, I think I think yes. a question a question that I've heard is. Um, yeah, I understand the initial um, uh, estimate from the person that writes it, but then when it's reviewed, I just wanted to be sure there's not people, there's not an engineer looking at his own project for some reason or another, that no, it's the, someone, someone else completely on staff who has no real investment in whether it goes forward or not. That's that's correct, Jeremy Wallen, finance director. We had um, 
staff members that were a part of the peer review process were not a part of the the drafting or the crafting of the projects themselves. So, um, you know, someone from the engineering group would review it for feasibility. Someone from finance would review it for fiscal accountability. Um, someone from the communications department reviewed it for public participation and uh, someone from the office of equity for equity, et cetera. So uh, all the projects were peer reviewed um, by a subject matter expert in that particular area. Um, um, I, I will also say, um, we'll ask this question. There are a few things where if, you know, even somewhat um, like the project that Mark Hecker mentioned, where if this, then, then that. Um, there's one um, a project I looked at um, initially, I winced, and then I thought, you know, if this did something else, I would have a different reaction. Um, and that's the uh, vehicle canopy and weather protection for the police vehicles. Um, but if you added solar to it, I might have a different attitude um, about that. Um, and so I wondered if um, that was something that, um, or even on, on other projects, I think we really only have one solar project. That's a fire station. Um, are those things that um, are, are just kind of slipping through the cracks right now that are, are things that could um, make these projects better that we're not thinking about? Uh, this is Melinda Harger, Assistant Director of MSO. And um, on those police canopy, uh, that police canopy project, those were actually planned in uh, during the initial construction of the facility. And so we, we have conduit in place and everything set up electrically to add solar. So the intent is to have solar on those canopies. Um, and you'll see that there was a, uh, a single point on, under the environmental sustainability so I think the project detail sheet probably could have highlighted that more, um, but that is something that is planned for that project. Along that same line, Melinda, I thought the building itself had been set up to have solar connected to it pretty easily. Um, all the infrastructure was in for that. Was that not the case? That is the case, um, but the roof was not designed for the solar. The solar would be out in various places in the parking lot as vehicle canopies, um, but the electrical room for the building is set up to handle that. And it would tie in so it, yes, that electric would um, help to offset the building's electricity cost. I did have a question about the overall cost of the of the um, CIP at, um, for this year, um, I believe it was um, $107 million, whereas last year, I think ours was $57 million for 2022. What prompted the big jump? Almost double. Um, previous years have been more like the 50 to 60 million, 70 million, but all of a sudden now we're into 110, 120. Jeremy Wilmoth, finance director. So some of that's gonna be inflation. Um, some of the projects, when uh, they were discussed in 2021 or 2022, uh, the price tag was different than it is today, just based on inflation. Some of that, it really is um, the uh, severity of the project that we're dealing with now. So the, uh, you know, if you look at the the Wakarusa wastewater treatment plant, um, that's a I think a 60 million dollar investment. So. Um, 
it doesn't take too many of those to you know jump your your CIP up, and uh, and we have quite a few. Uh, that one, the uh, MSO facility, would be another example. Um, Melinda, you can feel free yes. to jump in. Melinda Harder, uh, Assistant Director, MSO. A couple of the other things that you'll notice when we converted from having the maintenance plan and the and the burp to just the CIP is some of those bond funded projects that were on the maintenance plan moved back onto the CIP like we had seen three yeah. or four years ago. So, yeah. um, so that's a big chunk of it as well. Um, some of our maintenance programs that actually add a lot of capital are now mm -hmm. on the CIP. Okay, so we'll no longer see those separate documents like we have the last couple of years. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Makes sense. Mayor, I just wanted to take a minute and see if we wanted to go back to Commissioner Larson's question about the fire station now. I saw Tom Fagan was trying to chime in. Sure. He's got some answers. He's there. Good evening, Mayor Tom Fagan, Interim Fire Chief. Um, you'll see in the justification of the project sheets for the facilities in the last sentence, um, there's a, a sentence there that says reference the attached memoranda for additional information. I think there's uh, maybe an administrative error because there is an attached memoranda uh, that does provide quite a bit of additional detail, including the operational um, estimated operational costs, uh, which we would um, see in those years that it would open. Um, and so I do have those values that, again, that are estimated, but um, based, I think the point of the conversation is that it likely would necessitate an increase of the operating budget to, to fund those expansion positions. But we do have that information available and we can get that to you in specific detail as described in the memo. That'd be great. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Keith. Um, I got this does not appear to come from staff, so I'm not sure what answer staff will give me here, but um, the Longleaf Division street improvements. Um, I feel like there's a story here. Um, it's it looks like an an HOA. Um, and, and I wondered if that created some complications in the past HOAs with their own streets. Um, have not been able to be taken over by the city. So I wanted to make sure that's not what was happening with this suggestion. Also was concerned about it being out of order with other regular mill and overlay. Jeremy Wilmoth, finance director. Um, you are correct. This was a citizen uh, request. I think you can see from the uh, peer review scores that um, staff had very similar thoughts that um, we didn't really see how um, cherry picking this one homeowner association was going to move the needle on uh, all of the different um, connected city um, KPIs. And so uh, that's why it really scored uh, fairly poorly in all of the strategic plan related categories. There's one unfunded item towards the very end. The It's the west of K-10 water pressure zone. And from what I gather from reading that is that it's for um, across K-10, obviously. Um, it, it, we've been getting a lot of questions and a, and a lot of um, 
um, concerns from the community about needing to grow west um, or not west just to grow provide more housing um, a lot of pressure along that line so this is an unfunded item how does that impact our ability to possibly need to annex more property if we don't have any plans or we're not fund potentially funding projects that would set us up to do that this is Andy Ann's engineering program manager, uh, MSO, and um, <clears throat> that project would, would include a, a water tower and transmission main to, uh, to facilitate um, growth in that area. Um, I, I think it, it's a little further west of being directly west of K-10, so I think there would be some other growth directly west of K-10 that would, would have to happen before that. Um, and then, you know, that would be uh, factored into the utility rate model um, as, as that approaches. So, Jeremy, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add on that as far as how that's being considered. Uh, Jeremy, well, the finance director, no, there, uh, there's nothing else that I would add other than, uh, again, when we looked at this, uh, the plan that we wanted to present to you, it was um, essentially already contemplated in the rate model and this project uh, is a new project and so it's not currently in the rate model um, but I do believe that uh, staff is working on the rate model that they'll be presenting uh, later this year um, and one of the options for rates will most likely have this project that's funded. Okay thank you. Um, I don't have them marked particularly, but later in my stack, there's a couple of vehicles that look to be just regular vehicles um, being replaced to specific departments, like one of them's MSO, I think. And I kind of wondered why that rather than having them in the regular rotation with the other vehicle program that we have. So the... Um the the two uh, vehicles that are still in are, are the significant vehicles that are going to be capitalized for solid waste and some of the big trucks for the MSO. Um, the regular just trucks and um, street vehicles are in, going to be a part of the operating budget. Um, that might actually bring me to another one I thought was interesting, um, and it was... Um, um, uh, kind of technology. Um, yeah, um, IT22 tech technology infrastructure refresh. Um, yes. It took me a beat to, <laughs> uh, to convince myself. Um, this seems like something that lives right on the line of maintenance or replacement. I don't, I don't know if there's one there who wants to, I mean, I, I, if I read it a couple times, I get it, but it does also seem like a little bit of, well, that's the cost of doing business. Um, so I wondered if anybody had any insight particularly to that. Sure, Jeremy Willman, finance director. One of the uh, challenges we had with the software we used was there really was no good mechanism to um, cherry pick the projects outside of like literally printing each one individually. Um, and so it was decided at the staff level that we would just print off all the project sheets for all of the projects that were entered into the system. Um, but the only ones that are funded or a part of the 
discussion are the ones that are on those uh, sheets that were in your presentation. Um, and so you are correct. This is a maintenance project. Uh, when staff had entered this into the system, I think they were still thinking last year when equipment was in the plan versus the new um, model where you'll just see this as part of the IT operating budget in a few weeks. Any more questions? Yeah, one more on afford the affordable housing um, AH twenty three zero 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 one on the on the slide presentation. You've got half a million dollars of twenty twenty four. When I'm looking at the project sheet, it's got it's got a half a million in twenty twenty three um, for land acquisition, and then an unfunded amount of a half a million dollars. Could somebody explain? Help me understand that better. Yes, again, uh, Jeremy Wall, finance director, when the um, when the, the CFP was being put together, I think um, not all of the unfunded uh, amounts were uh, captured. And so uh, when we looked at this project and you know scored it and put it in uh, the general fund, just the five hundred thousand that was requested came up, not the not the unfunded piece. So um, that's the amount that that's currently in the plan uh, under perspective A. If if it, there was a desire to increase that to a million dollars, we would then have to take something else out of of uh, perspective A. So is that gonna is that slated for twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four? Because it's different in each document. I believe um, since we're trying to cash fund the general fund, I believe it was moved to 2024. I'm trying to verify that um, simply for cash per cash flow purposes. Questions. We're good for now. <laughs> I don't know. I so we, I think you... we moved it to 2024 okay. perspective A for cash flow purposes. Okay, thank you. And then just one last question about that um, affordable housing development. There's no project number. It says NA for the project number. It's got $1,450,000 for it. What is, what is that? And I don't see a project sheet so I'm a, that I have printed out anyway. Mm. Leah, are you still on? I don't know if she's still on or not. So um, what I recall from the discussions, um, the Affordable Housing Advisory Board, I believe, uh, made a recommendation to you all earlier uh, this year that some general fund dollars be set aside for projects that may not be appropriate for the affordable housing sales tax. Um, but just because they're not appropriate for that doesn't mean that they're not a good investment for uh, the future. And so uh, this request was put into the system. Um, and I believe the person who put it in just didn't uh, understand our numbering convention. And so they, they left that blank. Um, but again, based on scoring, it was funded under uh, Perspective A uh, as a um, initiative that we felt would you know really help with our affordable housing um, plan, um, but then under initiative B, it was not funded simply because this would be new. 
So this funding for this would be out of the general fund and not out of the affordable housing advisor or trust fund. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Thank you. That's all. Um, Melinda Harger, MSO. I just wanted to mention it's on page 187. If you're looking for the project detail suit for that. Okay. It's on page 187 of 272. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Got it. Are we good for questions? <laughs> okay, let's see if there's any public comment. Thank you, commissioners. I, I was telling Steve, I, I about forgot why I was here. <laughs> uh, your stamina is amazing. It's better than mine. Uh, I'm Thad Holcomb at 1817 Lenard, moderator for Lettuce, Lawrence Ecology Teams, United for Sustainability. Now, I think a lot of you may know who we are, but we're an interface, uh, a network of nine different uh, faith communities uh, across the spectrum as far as religious perspectives. And I want to just give you context for a quick comment and uh, as far as priorities. Uh, we were very involved in the establishment of the 2040 plan. And we were, along with others, advocated the environment being moved up from sixth or eighth to two. And the reason we do that, that was actually a philosophical discussion. It was even theological and it was scientific. The reality is, if in climate change and generally our living as a, a living as a species, we have got to recognize that we're integral part of all that there is and we affect uh, incredible uh, uh, as a human species what goes on. So we talk about priorities. I just I don't understand where 2040 is being prioritized in all of this. Matter of fact, I went online and I'm having a hard time finding that priority now uh, as I look for it in terms of uh, of 2040 plan. So uh, I urge you on behalf of us that you consider that uh, as an important aspect. Uh, the Wakarusa extension is devastating as far as it does to the environment. To the flora and fauna, to the two-footed, to the four-footed, to all those that are there, it's a disaster. Why is it? I don't know. I'm not going to suggest a conspiracy theory or anything like that. I'm just surprised. I'm, I, frankly, I'm embarrassed with the 2040 plan that this has come to that point. Maybe I don't understand all the details. Most likely I don't because I'm amazed and appreciate CIP and all they fun together to work separate. But I at least urge you possibly to have the open space review occur with this, have the climate change group with this, the planning commission to look at this before any action taken as far as actually budgeting the project. I think it's worthy of serious, serious consideration. So I uh, know Steve asked me, I'm going to, you get up here, Steve, you can introduce yourself. Uh, thank you, Mr. Holcomb. <clears throat> My name is Steve Cadu at 624 Forest Avenue here in town. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to address the city commission. I've been extensively involved with USD 497 and uh, what we call authentic uh, 
Native American uh, history and culture, and we want to introduce curriculum into the this coming uh, school district. We're working on Thad Holcomb is on the the Citizens uh, Representation Committee, and we're working, of course, with the USD forty seven uh, four ninety seven administrators, and we're also working with the uh, uh, professors. Uh, at uh, Haskell Indian Nation University. Uh, I, I, I have a deep, deep faith and belief in the purpose of the Creator's uh, work and the Creator's uh, 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 blessing of the environment, the animals, the what we Native Americans call the four-leggeds, the wings of the sky, the fish and the waters, the vegetation, the flora, the fauna, the the fish. Uh, but I spoke with uh, an impromptu meeting with uh, Sarah Plinsky today of the, uh, the county administrator, and about the uh, uh, the uh, extension. Uh, I'm not even sure. Uh, uh, exactly what it's called, uh, uh, but it's the Wakarusa Extension uh, Project that's been uh, discussed. Uh, Sarah Plinsky set up a meeting for me and her and uh, the uh, county, uh, I think she re refers to the project, uh, pro uh, uh, capital projects director, I'm not sure. Uh, not sure on all the government lingo, but uh, and then she said I also should visit with the city project director uh, and possibly the city manager. She gave me an indication that the coordination between the city commission and the Douglas County is not is not not at best, and uh, there's just a lot a lot of unknowns about the project, and I I'm, I'm beginning to. Uh, understand that, uh, uh, but uh, and that's not good. I, I, I mean, as a citizen, citizen of uh, Lawrence. But let me leave you with this, and I know I'm got a threat. Let me leave you with this: one of the saddest chapters of relationships between the city of Lawrence and Haskell Indian Nations University has been the fiasco, the catastrophe of that whole issue of the South Lawrence traffic way. Undoubtedly, that's probably the worst relationship workings between the city and the Haskell Indian Nation University. Now, the Haskell Indian Nation University is a federal university for Native Americans. You got, you got, you got to uh, learn that, or accept that, or understand that. Uh, the federal government has a federal trust responsibility. Now, yes, they've been, they've been, they've been, they've been absent and hugely negligent in their trusteeship responsibility over centuries. We know that, but, but, uh, good lawyers, any lawyers can find the real purpose and the meaning of Indian treaties and the word and what it's supposed to mean. 
millions, multi-millions of dollars in, in, in decades, Steve. a decade at least, uh, of, of uh, Steve. a tenuous uh, relationship on the, on the South Lawrence Trust is going to happen in, in this community. Steve. That, that we, we need to, we, we, we've got to avoid that. Uh, we, Thank you. We have to come together better on 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 trying to get resolved this uh situation that uh, is happening with the uh the uh, walk roost extension thank you <laughs> i have to i have to stop you there i've let you go quite over i apologize but thank you well i i appreciate the i i appreciate the the time i did have thank, thank you. you very much more public comment <laughs> Hi, I'm Maddie Bell, um, <clears throat> 2211 Tennessee. Uh, I, uh, you know, full disclosure, I'm a member of the Sustainability Advisory Board, but I'm coming to you as a private citizen tonight and a member of the Sunrise Movement. Um, this is also in regards to the extension of the uh, of the Wakarusa and the South Lawrence Trafficway. Um, I believe it is item MS220029. Um, and I'm asking that you uh, postpone the approval of this project because, as other folks have mentioned, um, there are multiple boards and commissions that haven't looked at it. Um, so I'm just going to get right into what I wrote. Uh, so um, the project includes a road south of Lawrence, uh, includes a road south of the Lawrence, South Lawrence Trafficway that would meet the money match requirements from KDOT by the city for the project. This road goes nowhere. It serves no one. It gathers no taxes for repairs as no one lives there. It is outside of Lawrence's development plan. Certainly is not a tier one development area and it opens the door for further development outside of Lawrence's development plans. That further Southern development, that road to nowhere would mean a would mean, sorry, the road to nowhere and then further development. I believe you saw a map of this um, in a previous commission meeting. Uh, uh, would mean building a bridge over the Wakarusa River. And not only would this bridge pollute the river during and after construction, but it would be a costly and unnecessary project and costly due to the winding nature of the Wakarusa River. A road, a road south of the STL would also mean an increase in vehicle animal collisions as the proposed area of development is a wildlife highway from Clinton Lake to the Baker Wetlands. Also, as was just mentioned, the South Lawrence Trafficway initial construction was this huge issue with uh, the Haskell Indian Nations University, and this is the same area that you're, uh, the project is proposing to develop. Um, has this road to nowhere that is attached to KDOT's expansion of the South Lawrence Trafficway been approved as fitting into Plan 2040? I'm pretty sure the answer is no, since the Planning Commission won't meet on this project and others in the CIP until July to determine if that is the case. The city should not be approving a project before it is approved as fitting within Planning 2040. We are living in the last decade before irreversible global temperature rise. We need to be very careful and deliberate with what projects we approve, what we prioritize, where we are putting our resources. The climate crisis, crisis is real. Climate change is here right now. I mean, you can feel the heat outside. That's not just, oh, you know, Kansas summers, you know, the weather changes on a dime. It's climate change. And we have the ability to stop climate change and mitigate the damage. Unnecessary roads that pave the way for destruction of natural areas is not the way to do that. This unnecessary road to nowhere is going to cost the city $14 million, and that is $14 million. Yeah. 
basically it's not based on planning from right now it's based on planning from the past and i urge you to propose postpone this project thank you thank you any further comments Honorable Mayor and City Commissioners, thank you for letting me speak tonight. My name is Hillary Carter, and I am uh, speaking to oppose uh, Project MS 22029, the Wakarusa extension. Um, as you all know, budgets and a city budget and a CIP budget are inherently political documents. They are a blueprint for a community's values. And what you're hearing here tonight is that this is not a valued project that the community wants to uphold. I know from a financial planning perspective, when you have capital match dollars coming from KDOT, it's really um, appealing to want to take those dollars and then apply them. I'm urging the council to postpone this approval of the project until the 2024 CIP plan. Secondly, I do want to uplift the importance of the bikeways that are um, identified in the, C in the CIP budget um, and building out an all ages and abilities network, bike network for citizens here. I know that uh, I, I emailed Jessica Mordinger earlier this month in the MPO's office about the USDOT Safe Streets for All grants that came out. And she said that city staff were working internally to see if they could apply for them. But what I'm suggesting here, and I know to be true, is that there are federal dollars that are available that could be used for such matching to make that possible. So I'd like to encourage the commission and city staff to um, to pursue those dollars to build out the, the bike network for an all ages and abilities network. Thank you. Any further comment? Good evening. Uh, could you uh, bring up the pieces? Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Uh, Phil Engelhart, my wife Peggy here, talked about CIP. Long evening. Uh, try to use my three minutes wisely. I second Lisa's uh, comments with respect to uh, the CIP this year. Uh, you know, in terms of its organization, everybody who worked on it should be congratulated in the effort. It was for us anyway. It was much more legible, readable, and and interreferenceable, if that's even a word. Uh, you know, as you probably know, uh, you know, our principal concerns with the budget process have to do with uh, responsible, sound fiscal stewardship and that distributional and intergenerational equity, uh, appropriately sharing the burden that's entailed in the provision of public goods and services. Next slide, please. Uh, this came from, from the presentation and I'm gratified to see that. I'm sorry. Uh, there we go. There we go. Thanks. Uh, I'm gratified to see that that it, at, that the, at least the slope of the line, uh, the slope of the lines are somewhat similar to the ones that that I've produced based on last year's document. Uh, the uh, ordinate uh, doesn't doesn't exactly uh, match up and so that really raises a question that I'd like to have the answer to and that is when when you calculate bonded indebtedness per capita 
is that only for those projects that have identified funding? Green, yellow, you know, or does that bond, or do those numbers on that graph represent bonded indebtedness for all of the projects, whether they be green, yellow, or gray? That's an answer that I that I think that 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 we should that we should have. Uh, you know, if if it is, then then if it also includes gray projects, then how are how are those projects allocated in the indebtedness figures? I, I, I want to, to have the answer to that. Next slide, please, quickly. Um, thanks. You know, the, these, this piece here, you know, two things that I'm real concerned about, the Far East and the Far West geographically. The field campus, I've been following the, uh, its progress as, as it moves through the system. Uh, the identified funding is only phase one. That's $45 million. It started out last year at 38 million. As I said last week, 14%. I understand inflation and all like that. That's only phase one. Phase two, unidentified. That's 20, 29 million, whatever. Uh, on the west side, you all have heard quite a bit about it. There are many unidentified projects out there. Many, many. And those are only small pieces. I get, I'll stop. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. How do I pull that up for um, Your presentation is on the desktop. Let me help you. Oh, I can't. Thank you. I didn't even know it was supposed to write. And hang on, we have to share it. And you can scroll through it that way. Yeah. Actually, probably better with the mouse just to do this. If that oh, works okay. For you. Okay. Thank you. Uh -huh. Good evening again, Michael Allman with Sustainability Action Network. Uh, first of all, I want to echo previous speakers' comments about the Wakarusa Drive extension and the bridge. Um, I suggest that you swap that project out with some unfunded bicycle projects. Um, I mentioned earlier about the difference between bicycle transportation and bicycle for recreation. And I don't mean this to be insulting or dumbing down the question, but it, it seems to occur to me over the past few years that there might be some misunderstanding or confusion. What's the difference? And they're all lumped into one category when that's a mistake. Um, it's just not a matter of bicycle counts, meaning that that's bicycle transportation. This needs to extend over. There we go. Um, there are two categories of bicyclists. The first group, the bicycle for practicality to get to a destination. That's a key difference. 
The second group, they bicycle aimlessly. They have no particular place they're going, which is okay, but it's not bicycle transportation. They have a purpose to exercise, camaraderie, wanderlust, whatever. Bicycle transportation, people do that for practical reasons. They can't afford a car. Uh, they want to reduce emissions for saving the climate. Uh, just mundane chores, uh, convenience of parking a bicycle. So here are some examples to get you an idea, visuals of the typical bicycle transportation activities in Lawrence. These people are navigating between cars through intersections, hauling materials and trailers, um, doing various things in their day-to-day -day life as they get around town. Um, it's just climate-friendly mobility. They're just out there because they want to be. They're not going any particular place. They might drive out there in their SUV and have climate emissions, but mostly they're just out for the day uh, for enjoyment. Um, it, it seems to me over the years, in all our advocacy, when we ask for bicycle transportation funds, that what we end up seeing are more funds for bicycle recreation. It's not bad, but I think the ratio is bad. I think we need to look at this in a different lens now and, and focus more on the infrastructure, the, the network in town, particularly, like I said earlier, on the east side. Um, we would like to see a bicycle funding increase of 10% 10, uh, 10 annual each year. Um, and we'd like you to see, we'd like to see funding of the bottom there, projects 23009, the Seventh Street track, which I think is actually right. indicated to be funded in, in B. Project R 23003, mm -hmm. buffered bicycle lanes on Ninth Street which is due for maintenance and fund project 2204, the Iowa street bicycle track, which right now is being constructed with KDOT funds. The city engineer decided not to do the bicycle track. So I could stop there. I've gone over my time, but thank you. Thank very you. Much. I appreciate it. Hi, this is Chris Flowers, and um, I just want to say I agree with uh, Commissioner Larson. Like when she first spoke, I I think if you're just going to go by perspective A or perspective B, that I would prefer. Prefer I saw more, I, I think better projects from perspective B, but I've kind of. I I don't know if you should do just A or B, but rather just you know, take the best from both A and B is what I would prefer. Cause like the, the affordable housing from A, I, I kind of like that, but the converting the waiting pool to a splash, a spray park, I guess I'm, I, I'd wait on that. So um, I just wanted to throw that out there. And also what about not spending all the money and, and instead of using that money for something else, like, um, you're talking about mill levy, um, you know, keep that down. But what also I've advocated before that we start paying all our employees a livable wage. So maybe we could do some of the projects that aren't necessary so we can make sure all our employees are getting livable wages. And also I wanted to speak out against the 
the Wakarusa project. Um, I'm not sure what it's all about, but it sounds like something we need to be holding back on. Like I, I agree with, well, see, here's what I thought about Wakarusa is that we needed to make the intersection at 27th and Walker or I forget, is it 20, 27th where the, they were talking about the dog park. I thought that was all related. And, and I, I support making that intersection safer, but I don't support this bridge over the river. Like I don't remember anything about that when we were talking about the dog park. So I definitely, I'm against the Wakarusa extension. And to be honest, I, I do kind of miss the wetlands, but I mean, I guess the town prefers it, but I, I do wish we wouldn't have, I don't know. I wish we could have done something different about the wetlands. Thank you. Um, so first of all, I want to talk a bit about um, the skate park in Centennial, which I believe is not funded under both proposals. Um, I think it should be funded for a couple of reasons. Um, it's the most, I don't skate personally, but I think skating is gaining a lot of prominence nationally. Um, it became an Olympic sport in 2021 in Tokyo. So I think there's obviously room for growth there. Um, and I, I think it's something we the city should invest in. It's also a very inclusive environment. You've got girls, you've got boys, you've got people of all races. Of monetary resources to join, you just have to get a board. Um, you know, it's not like something like lacrosse where you have to get, you know, all the sticks and the balls and all the equipment. Um, and second of all, I had a question um, about I saw farmland remediation in the capital improvement plan. Um, and I had a question about why the city took that liability upon itself uh, instead of having this designated as like a brownfield or a super fun site. Uh, for the federal government to kind of take care of that. So whoever can kind of answer that. <laughs> well, we don't normally answer questions right here, but we can tell you all about it later. Okay. It's a story. <laughs> it's a long thank you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Any more comments here in the room? I see a lot of people online. Sherry, I'll let you okay. pick them. Thank you, Mayor. Ron Gacious. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, I'm Ron Gacious. I'm a member of the city's affordable housing advisory board, and I'm here to comment on the option A and option B funding of the um, uh, through the CIP for the housing trust fund um, and uh, affordable housing uh, initiatives. Uh, I'd like to first comment, um, well, just a couple of comments. Very basic. We've not yet met the city's affordable housing needs with our current funding availability. In fact, we're falling far short of our goals, and our goals are quite a bit short of our needs. We're falling very short of our needs. Your own recent assessments of community housing demonstrate that the gap between what we need and what we have is growing. Um, option B is presented as kind of, you know, this, this, this is the important stuff to have, and option A is the nice stuff to have. Well, I would disagree with that. Option B 
reflects a zeroing out of the CIP contribution to affordable housing initiatives. That represents a $350,000 reduction per year over five years uh, in city support for the Housing Trust Fund. Uh, I believe we're completing a five-year commitment of $350,000 a year to the Housing Trust Fund from the CIP. Uh, it was never our uh, intention to let that lapse. Uh, if you need a separate request from us to continue that, we should have done so. Uh, the $500,000 request that came separately from Ahab earlier this year was intended to be an earmark for a capital investment initiative that would unlock additional housing opportunities in the community. One such example of that was the project in Southeast Kansas, uh, I'm sorry, Southeast Lawrence, where we had a builder that wanted to uh, make some lots available for affordable housing if he could find a way to fund the street improvements he needed to unlock access to 26 lots. It was from that discussion that the idea of an earmark in the capital investment uh, plan for future affordable housing projects was initiated by AHAB. Um, we certainly don't expect you to zero out CIP support for the Housing Trust Fund. Um, if anything, we should be asking for more funds. I'm reminded in one of my first conversations with County Commissioner Nancy Feldman, who at the time I joined AHAB Time. was the county's representative. And she said, she said, it's nice that you've got the sales tax earmark. How else are you going to fund your needs? Thank you. Thank you. Joel Campbell. Hi, my name is Joel Campbell. I'm a member of the Sunrise Movement. I also wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, South Lawrence Trafficway expansion and how it should not go forward, especially in its current form. We really need to push its inclusion in the CIP back until we've looked more into it at the very least, if not totally taken it out. I won't even go into the environmental concerns because obviously it's a terrible idea to build a road that goes nowhere that will create a bridge across a winding river that moves all the time and then into a floodplain. That just doesn't make sense. But also, nobody has been consulted about this. There hasn't been a hearing, and this project will cost millions of dollars, and there haven't been any committees that have been a part of the planning of this. This is almost $7 million, I believe $14 million with the cost that it will, um, with, with further costs that will happen down the road. Um, and no one's been consulted about it. You know, um, I, I had no idea about this, and I think that was one of the main concerns that was brought up in a meeting that we had not that long ago. Um, I also, um, this has kind of making me think about one of the last times I gave public comment, which was last year on the, um, the budget for this year. And my main point was that there was a lack of accessibility on the website specifically. Uh, and it's frustrating that it seems like this trend is continuing just kind of in the things that I am involved with, where we just don't have the information we need. Like the information is not relevant or not, not available to the people who it is relevant to. Um, and talking about accessibility here i am at 10 30 p.m on a weekday which is the only time that i can give my comment on this issue because there hasn't been a hearing for this anywhere else which is a pretty huge problem for you know working class people or anyone who has a full-time job which is 
you know, most of the people who would care about this sort of thing. Um, moving on. The studies and plans for this specifically are more than 40 years old, which is frankly ridiculous given the amount that our needs have changed since the 80s. And even in the 80s, like Steve was mentioning earlier, it was super contentious. No one, like, this was not a thing that people were all super gung-ho about, and then we've pushed it back 40 years and we're trying to do the same thing without even a new environmental plan, which is, you know, a big problem considering how much we've learned about the environment in the past even decade, much less 40 years. Um, expanding like this will put the city in debt in the long run because no matter how much money it makes down the road, utilities and upkeep are going to be much greater cost-wise. Um, there's this idea called the growth Ponzi scheme that was popularized by um, a website called Strong Towns about a decade ago, where um, the long-term cost of utilities maintenance, especially sewers and roads, uh, far outweighs any short-term benefit of money or anything like that. Um, and so we really need to be lessening our amount of like suburban sprawl. And actually, city commission had voted not to expand south of this road, and doing so will violate previous promises that were had, specifically on this issue. So Time. there's there's no reason to build this road, and it goes against things we've done in the past, and it will cost us a lot more money down the road. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Tilden. Thank you, Sherry. And good evening, Mayor and members of the commission. I am Chris Tilden. I'm a long-term Lawrence resident. Uh, chair of Livewell Douglas County and a board member of Friends of Lawrence Area Trails. I really look forward to this discussion every year. Um, this discussion, the city's budget and the capital improvement plan are arguably the most important <clears throat> policy discussions you engage in each year. These are complex plans that require balancing what I recognize are an incredibly broad array of needs and allocating funding across those needs. A walkable community has long been a top priority of Lawrence residents. In the last few years, I think the pandemic has really highlighted the importance of alternative transportation and outdoor recreation options that are critical to people's physical and mental health and well-being. I would like to convey particularly Friends of Lawrence Area Trails appreciation of the number of important trail projects that are included in the proposed CIP. Uh, specifically when it comes to the Lawrence Loop, we do believe that it's important that we prioritize completion of all the gaps in the loop by 2027. That would be an incredible day for the city of Lawrence. One concern is the possibility that the downtown segment of the loop would potentially be unfunded based on the perspective approved. You know, Commissioner Pinkeldye brought up the Iowa Street crossing of the St. of the South Lawrence Trafficway Trail. Um, it's an incredibly important to enhance safety. But if you look at usage of the loop, the trail usage of the South Lawrence Trafficway segment is far lower, far, far lower, probably a third of what for instance, the usage of the Bertram Park Trail or the Burroughs Creek Trail are, which are the two segments that the downtown loop would connect. Particularly given some of the grant opportunities uh, for the Lawrence Loop that were highlighted in the Ferguson Group uh, report this evening, it really is uh, now is the time to act. We urge the commission to support trail projects, including funding, for planning and design of the downtown section of the Lawrence Loop in 2023 and its subsequent construction. Um, and 
appreciate the opportunity to comment this evening. Thank you. Emily Ryan. Hi, hey everybody. Thank you for the opportunity to share um, comment. Uh, I'm a resident here and have been for many years at this point. I just wanted to express um, my discomfort with the idea of extending Wakarusa um, and especially where this suggested plan indicates the extension would be. Um, adding to what has already been said, I want to challenge um, our leadership here to consider how this proposal might actually contradict other stated priorities of the City Commission, uh, specifically the five guiding principles shared by the Sustainability Advisory Board in alignment with the Green New Deal, which were adopted February 9th, 2021, which laid out an effective process for community input in developing policy. Um, with the passage of this, uh, the Lawrence City Commission directed staff to incorporate principles of the Green New Deal in city plans whenever possible and to reduce emissions and our community's contribution to greenhouse gases and climate change. The primary sources of harmful greenhouse gas emissions outlined in this plan are energy, transportation, land use, materials and waste, and natural resources. I would argue that this current proposal increases the opportunity for emissions in all of these areas, especially through transportation, land use, and the treatment of natural resources. Um, some of the outline strategies include collaboration to achieve these goals across government, industry, and residents. And my concern here, um, as others have said before me, is that the residents, and especially those who are most vulnerable, haven't been considered thoroughly in this proposed plan. Um, additionally, uh, again, citing those who come before me, I want to call attention to the fact that there is a lot we do know, but there's also a lot we don't know about the Wakarusa wetlands, which would be punctured and permeated as part of this plan. And we must consider the histories, legacies, and lives that are preserved in those soils in that place. And as Mr. Kadu alluded to earlier, there's a history around this place that has caused substantial harm, which has been inflicted by progress in the city of Lawrence. Um, we also can't know the extent of the damages that would be caused by the further unsettling of that land. We do, however, know that a number of lives, the number of lives affected negatively would be more than none. We are all familiar with the language shared in land acknowledgements, which recognizes that humans, land, and other species are irreparably harmed through acts of colonization and by extension development. Please consider that this is an opportunity to turn those words into action and really interrogate this plan with a forethought of this lens before more harm is done. Um, I would encourage us to think about how extensively we're engaging Native communities in the decision-making process and development. Um, and I would also ask that this specific situation might inform our future processes for decision-making um, so that it is informed by residents as well as by industry and government. Thanks. Karen Pagel Miners. Good evening, uh, commissioners. Uh, my name is Karen Pagel Miners. I have lived in Lawrence for the last 30 years. I have called in tonight uh, because I have questions and concerns specifically about the Wakarusa Drive Extension Project. Uh, the funding for this project was approved by the City Commission at the May 17th meeting. Its project MS-22-0029. My main concern uh, or question is whether this project is in compliance with the city's 2040 plan. It does not sound at all like it is. So 
uh, I guess mainly I'm a little bit confused here. Isn't the 2040 plan binding? I, I'm not sure if binding is the right word, but is the 2040 plan optional? Um, and so uh, this is a little bit confusing to me, uh, specifically for this project. Um, has an environmental study or assessment been done for this particular project? And if so, where is it? Because I couldn't find anything. Is it available for the public to view? And if there's no environmental assessment, uh, why not? Um, uh, so the it feels a little bit rushed. Um, and I may, I initially uh, wanted to request that the approvals for this project be postponed until questions, these questions and others, I'm sorry, I lost the internet, so I don't know what anyone else has said about this. Um, uh, it just seems like our community has so many needs and why waste money on this? Um, but uh, a, a broader question has emerged during this discussion for me, and that is, um, to what extent are any of the items um, uh, measured against the city's 2040 uh, plan? Is that part of the matrix? Um, and um, if not, if it's not, why not? Thank you for your attention to these questions and concerns. Thank you. Public comment, Mayor. Is that all the public comment? Okay. Uh, let's bring it back to the commission then. Couple follow-up questions based upon the comments. Um, Jeremy, the question from Phil on the pro capita, um, I guess my assumption was the grayed out unfunded is not included in that, but Basically, it's the same under either scenario. Is that correct? Jeremy Wilma, finance director, that is correct. The um, bonded indebtedness per capita is our current debt and a projection of what the uh, 23 through 27 CIP would uh, do to debt service. So um, it's not taking the, the bond and adding it in one year. It's saying, you know, if we borrow 25 million, that's roughly a $2 million debt service. So over the next 10 years, this is essentially what we would see in debt service um, for all bonded projects, uh, current and projected through the CIP. Okay. And then Ron Gacious, when he spoke, I think I, he talked about the 350000 from the Affordable Housing Fund. We're, we're not moving that, correct? These are two additional projects, not anything to do with the 350000 from the Affordable Housing Fund, correct? Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. I think there may be uh, some confusion there, so I'm not exactly sure. I I never thought the 350 was in the CIP. Perhaps mm -hmm. maybe it was years ago, but it hasn't been in the last several years. The General Fund makes a dedicated funding um, commitment to the uh, housing trust fund 
and the 2023 budget will have that same $350,000 uh, commitment programmed into it. Yeah. So these two funded under A are additional monies be above and beyond that. Okay. Thank you. Those are my two follow-up questions. I got a couple of follow-ups on the Wakarusa project. Um, I, if I recall correctly, that is um, as part of a cost share program with KDOT. Could somebody speak to the relationship with KDOT on that and whether or not um, if that we were not to fund that, how that would affect that um, project, the K-10 project? Yeah, this is Dave Cronin, city engineer. Um, so that project is included in our uh, cost share uh, for our local cost share for contribution to the the bigger expansion of k-10 um, between iowa and sixth street um, so for our kate uh, as part of the um, program that they ask the locals to contribute 10 percent um, we've negotiated with them to um, um, that that our contribution will be used for uh, city and county infrastructure. So all of the um, our cost share for uh, SLT goes to improving Wakarusa north and south of uh, K10, um, in addition to some other improvements. So um, <clears throat> a little bit of history on the on the project itself. Um, back in 2016-2017, KDOT uh, closed access to Castled. At, at K10 after the East Lake opened, and there was a lot of um, opposition to that, local opposition to that. Um, Castle uh, for accessing K10 at Castle or crossing um, K10 at Castle. And so at that time, uh, the project was put into the CIP back in 2017, and it's been in the city CIP uh, for the last five years. It's been funded the last two years. Um, and it was a project that uh, is funded in 2022 for uh, for engineering. So it was included in the budget this year for engineering. So um, it, it's also um, it's been in the T twenty forty plan. It's been in transportation plans back to Horizon twenty twenty uh, as a future arterial street connection to the south. And part of the conversation with closing Castle was, well, if we're closing Castle at K-10, the future access will be at Wakarusa to the south. So there was some planning years ago that was uh, done and considered um, with this project. And, and fortunately, the, that KDOT is using, you know, we've had this project in our CIP and the county for a number of years and fortunately KDOT is using the dollars that we have in there as our local match to the the bigger project um so that's that's a little bit of the history the 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 extension of the south will be split 60 40 between the county and the city county 60 percent uh city 40 percent uh the county will maintain uh the road and the bridge. Um, I'm, I understand the sensitivity on the environmental uh, concerns. I think that's something we're gonna need to uh, address as we're looking at design. We'll be required to get a KDHE stormwater pollution permit, um, a, uh, a division of water resources permit, and, and maybe a Corps of Engineers 404 permit as well. So those are things that uh, we will be uh, required to do in the design process. and. Um, uh, 
And uh, so I think we need to be sensitive to that, uh, certainly. Um, and I would also say that, um, um, you know, not, not doing the connection will have some, some impacts on, um, number one, res emergency response time. Um, it's, uh, it was a, that was one of the concerns that we had when Castle was closed, the access for emergency responders to get across K-10 um, without using Iowa or uh, the Clinton Park uh, roads. Um, and, and the other is just uh, everyday traffic. So opening day traffic projections were 3,000 vehicles per day would be going south on Wakarusa. And so diverting that traffic either to Iowa, which already is congested, or to a park road that's not designed for arterial street traffic is, is, not, um, is not ideal. And so I think, you know, not building, not building the road would uh, increase delay emissions and, um, and time for, for uh, traffic to, to use a different route. So those are a couple of things that were thought about when um, <clears throat> this project was put in the CIP a uh, uh, number of years ago, and we will be bringing back a uh, scope and fee for design here soon to proceed uh, with design plans. And with that, we'll have um, community engagement uh, to discuss the impacts of the project. Thank you. I still didn't quite hear um, if, if we were not to fund this, how would that impact our cost share for the K-10 project? Would we need to come up with the money anyway? or what would happen? Yes, our, our contribution is about $7 million. And so about 4 million of it is Wakarusa South. Um, and so if we were to not do that, not wanna contribute the dollars that we've committed to, we would, we would still be responsible for the, for the cost, but but we wouldn't build the road, or the road would be built by the county, and they would have to figure out how to fund it. So I think it's it's complicated because it's you know if the county's uh, a partner in this project. They've been a partner uh, all along since uh, it was put in both the city and county CIPs. Um, so if we decided not to fund that, we would still need to come up with the balance of our local cost share for the SLT project, which would be a little over $4 million. Okay. Is any of that road actually in city limits? Um, the, I don't believe so. The, the, the park on the west side of the road is in city limits, um, but it really kind of starts at the southern, southeastern edge of the park. So the it's uh, pretty much all in the county. So we're being asked to pay for a road that's not even within our own city limits, I guess, from what I understand, correct? Correct. Okay. And you had indicated earlier that the um, county would pay for maintenance of the road. However, I'm reading in the project sheet that we actually are accepting responsibility to pay for the maintenance from, the, from K-10 down to the Wakarusa River Bridge. Is that correct? Um, I would expect that the delineation to be north of the river bridge. So where the KDOT project ends north of the uh, um, river, 
with there's a roundabout that's an entry to the park there on the southeast side of the park i would expect that we would maintain the road down to that and then the road south of that point would be maintained by the county now we have not worked out that agreement yet with the county but that's been our preliminary discussion so the bridge itself and the road extension south would be county maintained so our maintenance would end basically with the kdot the the piece that kdot is building would be uh maintained by us the city so while well, actually reading the project sheet here and it says the city will maintain wakarusa from k10 to the wakarusa river bridge that's over a mile almost a mile long that we would have to main not only help build that but also maintain it in forever is that is that just a mistake in here or is it um yeah it, we, it's we haven't worked it out but our, our discussions have been that we would the county would maintain the majority of of the road but it's um it hasn't been officially decided yet but that's been our our conversation so far Okay, so that thank would you. be an error in the on the sheet. Okay. Just a related question. You talk about the permits and stuff like that. Do you see us taking the lead on all of that? Or is this going to be a county project that we fund? Or is this going to be a city project that they fund 60% of? If it um, yeah, the design is jointly funded by the city and the county. So there'll be a partner in, in the design efforts and um, and so it, it will be led uh, by both the city and the county. Um, hey, Dave, I know you mentioned the uh, the road, the Armored Corps of Engineers road on the dam. Uh, do you have any numbers of how much traffic is currently on there? And do you have any numbers of anticipated traffic if there isn't another road? Um, if that is the only road south besides Iowa? Yeah. Um, currently, um, the dam road carries at 1,500 vehicles per day, and um, North 1200 Road, which is County Road 458, is about 1,900 vehicles per day. Um, and so a little bit of history that, that I got from the county was uh, when 1200 Road was closed back in 2014, a lot of that traffic went to the dam road, and it was over 3,000 vehicles per day back in 2014 because... 1200 road was closed. So I would expect that some, you know, some traffic would get diverted to the dam road and that, and that volume would increase. Um, uh, like I said, 3000 vehicles, it would, they either need to use the dam road or the, or Iowa. And, you know, either, either way is, is Iowa's two and a half miles to the east and the dam roads a mile to the west. Um, Jeremy, um, I mean, there's a lot of things in gray here and I, I can pull a couple things out just off the top of my head that we thought we would fund last year or the year before, but they're not going to make it. Is that accurate? Jeremy Walnut, finance director. Yes, the um, items in gray are not on either uh, funding proposal. Um, predominantly, it's going to be based on the score and where they fall within the um, funding source. Mm. 
but it's perfectly within our purview to not fund something that we thought we might fund the year before, two years before, 40 years before. Is it not? Um, yes, absolutely. I think uh, this is a planning tool and, uh, you know, I think we may want to be careful, of, you know, without good rationale saying we funded it last year and now this year we don't want to. Um, but ultimately, you all are in charge. It's, it's your um, it's your tool. Um, so there, you know, I can envision uh, there being maybe an item in 2025, say, uh, that's scored a 15 or 16. And within the next two or three years, we may certainly have a project come in with a much higher score that could bump that out before we ever get there. Um, that's sort of the uh, political process that the CIP is going to go through on an annual basis is uh, based on what we have today, based on what we know today, these are the projects that uh, are recommended for funding. Especially as we get into the out year, we're far less um, singular focused. It's a much wider lens. And so uh, new projects or new priorities in, that come into focus may bump something that, that was uh, previously identified. I, if I could just add one more thing, sorry. Um, I think where we want to be very careful is if we've already started a project, you know, so we've put some money into design or we've put some money. Now, if it's a project that you no longer want to do, then that's just, you know, operating cost. But um, if we get into a place where we funded design and then we, we pull it out simply because the scores uh, no longer align, that's an area where I think more more discussion is needed. But uh, certainly items that are in the out years that have not had any uh, expenditure to date are within your purview to, to put above or below that line as you see fit. Um, Vice Mayor, I just, um, when I hear people say, oh, this was in the CIP or it was in this plan 20 years ago, I remember the many, many times that you yourself have said, we cannot make a future commission pay for something um, they're not obligated. Um, so I just wanted to remind you of that. If I had a nickel for every time you said that, <laughs> uh, as long as we're having this conversation, I just wanted to point that out. That's not um, a compelling uh, reason to me in the face of other information. Agreed. Mm -hmm. well. When we just start, um, we are at ten fifty one. Okay, we have our eleven o'clock rule. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we can keep talking about this. Mm -hmm. I just wanted us to be aware. Okay, yeah. ready? So go ahead and go. Okay, so here's my thoughts um, on on funding of this. Um, uh, option B is is what I feel compelled to support um, with the exception of, I would be very interested in including the affordable housing projects, both of them somehow in, in option B. Um, and uh, then I'm looking at this KDOT, this um, Wakarusa project. And actually it's, if you look at it, the, the part for the Wakarusa road is 4.1 million. The part for the Wakarusa from K10 to Clinton Parkway, which is within the city limits, is about $2.5 million. And I would be um, open to supporting that. The $4.1 million, I'm concerned the environmental aspect is obviously extremely important. The other part is that we're 
agreeing to pay for a road that isn't even in the city limits when we struggle to even pay for what we've got now. Um, not definitely not interested in that. Um, and I know Dave um, had indicated that we wouldn't be responsible for maintenance of it. And I would want to make sure that whatever happened, we would never have to pay for maintenance on the road. Um, so that's just on a over picture of, of, of kind of where I'm at with this, with this um, CIP that I'm looking at right now. So you started a long time ago talking about the fire station. Yeah, the fire station, but that's a. Okay. It's a. I I think. I mean, that's what I'm understanding is a. So that basically. I, I, yeah, I just I just wanted to say kind of what my yeah. concern in seeing that was that we've been shown it a couple times um, and we haven't really said anything. I just felt like uh, wherever it is, it warrants a broader conversation or commitment from us, which I don't feel like we've really given <laughs> yet, um, especially in light of wherever we may annex. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I didn't want to say, you know, I don't like it or I don't want to do it. I just feel like to have it on a CIP at all was somewhat perhaps premature and yeah in our, since we haven't really addressed it. Yeah, and I just think there's other questions. I talk about the, I continue to see it on project seats, but without the cost for, for it to actually operate it with staff um, once it's been built. And I think it's important that we at least see that number in front of us anytime we talk about this, that there's an ongoing cost that will require some level of, of funding, obviously. Um, regarding the fire station, I did have a question for Chief Fagan. Are you still on? Bless his heart if he is. Yeah. There he is. Yes, Our Chief Tom Fagan. Uh, hello, Chief. Thank, thanks for carrying on with us. Um, uh, regarding uh, potential stations number six and seven, do we have any ideas of the areas, uh, alluding to what uh, uh, Vice Mayor Larson said, uh, where, where they might be? Uh, you mean where they would be located? Yes. Yes, correct. Yes, uh, Station 6 uh, is tentatively propo proposed to be located in the northwest part of the city. Station se 7 would be south central part of the city. One of the things to keep in mind in regards to um, these station expansions and one of the reasons that another one of the reasons that we're looking at these is reliability and performance across the entire community. Um, the station optimization study we've identified there's about 18,000 people in a response gap area currently within the existing boundaries of the city limits that we don't have the capabilities of providing our target response times to. And with the increasing call volume with our existing station model uh, that was designed in the 90s, we aren't meeting any response targets in any planning zones of the city. And so this is a solution uh, that would not only provide uh, the capability of providing um, benchmark response performance uh, to a broader uh, range of the entire community, and while also elevating performance across the entire city. But the location, as your question, was to the northwest and the south central. But there are a total of three gaps. The third gap is north central, which would be the relocation of fire station number three. Gotcha. Thank you, Chief. Um, in that regard, I, I'm probably going to lean more towards uh, Plan A. Um, it has a lot of the, more of the things that, you know, I think 
uh, we need to head towards. Uh, although um, Mr. Flowers brought up a great point, it doesn't have to be entirely plan A and also Jeremy did as well. Um, there can be some things that can be interspersed, taken in or, or out, so. Um, I can jump in, I guess, a couple things. Uh, I, I would say, I mean, to me, it's a, um, the CIP is a mixture of a couple things. One is is projects we are going to fund and two, how we, how we are going to fund them, right? And so, first of all, I would say, and I'll circle back around to that, but I would say, generally, I like plan B better. Um, I do agree with Commissioner Lawson. I'd like to see affordable housing in there um and i would say for example i mean i think in the next five years we have to figure out how to build some fire stations but i'm not sure it has to be in this cip because we haven't identified a funding source that both allows us to um build those fire stations but as commissioner Lawson points out fund the firefighters to go in there. I think we need to come up with a plan for that. Um, but I think putting it in this CIP and without coming up with a funding plan is not the right solution. So, I, I mean, I like option B that doesn't have it in there, but that does not mean I don't support the funding of, you know, the fire stations. And, and I think, you know, that's going to be the next step moving forward is how do we, how do we fund that and how do we move that forward? Um, you know, is that a, uh, you know, a property tax increase? Is that something different? Is that removal of something? I don't know. But, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, to me, I like B, but it's not to say I don't think we will be sometime in the next five years building or planning to build some fire stations. I'd say the same thing as it relates to some of the work out West, you know, um, there's, you know, one of the unfunded items is, you know, expanding 15th Street West or expanding 6th Street West or putting, um, you know, some more um, water or wastewater out West. Um, by not putting that in the CIP, it doesn't mean I don't think in five years we might be working on some projects. But when we do that, I think the funding will be coming from benefit districts, coming from other sources of funding. And at that point, when we've identified those sources of funding, then you can put those in the CIP. Um, so again, not including them in this CIP, just like the fire stations, doesn't mean I don't think the level will be funded or that they shouldn't be funded at some point once we identify a funding source in cooperation with, with those folks. So, you know, um, you know, I, I think this CIP, I, I lean towards um, option B. I also think, um, Again, if you get some, um, if you get some of these grants, right? If you get some big grants, all of a sudden now you have money to do some of these other projects. But again, without that funding source identified, I think we lean towards B. If we get a large grant, there's some of these projects in A that I'd really like to do some of these new things. Um, but until we have a funding source, I, I'm a little less leery of that um, of putting it in there. So I. I, I um, I would say, so I, going back, I like B in general. I think we need to find a way to get affordable housing back in there. I really think we need to figure out a way, although it's a pretty small amount in these next couple of years, and maybe it's covered by MSO, but 
we have to start working on electric vehicle infrastructure, not only for us, but for the community. Um, and, you know, it's a very small thing, but I'd be interested in the downtown planter being moved up two years because it looks like we'd have the money in the in the transit guest tax and or the parking lot amenities. It looks like we put them all at the end when we've saved up the money. I'm not sure why, just something to look at. Um, and finally, I'd say on, you know, on, on Wakarusa, you know, what project 029 that we changed was to put 6.5 million into the Wakarusa, I mean, to the SLT expansion. Um, I think we have to keep the 6.5 million in there. That's our commitment. Mm -hmm. That does not mean for the same reason that we're committing to build that road um, south. Um, but I do think we, ha we have a commitment to KDOT for 6.5 million. So we leave that in the CIP. And, you know, again, lots and lots and lots of discussion and work has to be done before we decide necessarily to build that road as it exists. But um, for the purposes of the CIP and the purposes for tonight, I think we have to leave the 6.5 million in there because we're going to spend it one way or the other. And um, we need to get that to KDOT. Um, and so I'd leave that in the CIP, you know, for the purposes of the budget. And again, just like with the others, that doesn't necessarily si signal what we'll do with it. Um, but I think it has to be in there for the CIP. Finally, I, a couple smaller things. I think, uh, you know, I'd much rather finish the Lawrence Loop before I built a bridge over Iowa for the loop. I know there's a couple movements there about the different segments. I agree with Chris that if I'm focusing on this, I want to make sure we finish the loop first before we have the 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 bridge over Iowa for the loop. Again, not necessarily opposed to it per se, but not as important to me. And I do kind of like considering the skate park, but that's a future. I probably wouldn't put that in 2023, so I'm not going to die on that deal, but I do think it's something we wanted to consider going forward because I do think that could be a nice amenity at some point to improve long before 2027. I'd like to clarify a detail on that. Um, I know that uh, the group has raised a considerable amount of money, but was that for a different project that's already going forward, not this project? That was for something that to add. Okay. Wasn't I just wanted to make sure. Folks. I see. Sherry, do we need to extend time? Actually, smiling. Once this item's completed, okay. you guys can entertain a motion to extend the time. Well, Go ahead, Mark. And Mark Hecker, Assistant Director. Yeah, the, the project that the group had raised funds for is for a vert ramp, which is separate from these two projects. Thank you. Um, I would I just, can I just real quick follow just real quick. Um, I agree with you on several of those items, actually that electric infrastructure, for some reason I would thought it was in the B, but it's in A, you're right. So I'm definitely interested in, in potentially finding a way to fund that. And I do agree with you about the Lawrence loop um, to get that finished before we do something like across Iowa. I could support that. And then also um, the Wakarusa. Um, obviously you're right. We do need to fund that because we've got to spend the money regardless, but I would, 
ask that we consider the idea of taking out that it's going to be spent as a cost share with the county to do the Walker Russo Road south of K-10. All right, um, I'll try to be as succinct as possible. Um, since this being my first CIP, I will say in short that I am leaning more towards Perspective A. Um, there are some aspects of Perspective A that um, in items that are strictly funded or that are Perspective A funded only um, that I think we could look at reviewing um, indirect staff for um, alternatives. I will say with the, the affordable housing pieces crucially important to this um, in our conversations tonight and in previous conversations around driving policy on this we've talked about the what and the how and what that looks like and then i would add to that the value gap and it's come up in different iterations and conversations tonight about what do we have now what's available to us now how do we fund that and are there available opportunities for us to fund this in a later date and a later iteration and so all of this comes into play with these things whether they're items that are um, that are not funded right now, that are existing assets, um, items that are not funded right now, that are new assets. Um, this is a perfect storm for us with the Ferguson Group, how we're implementing the CIP plan and how are we and using the strategic plan to guide budgeting on this. Um, we have a process that's adding another dimension. This is not two-dimensional. This is not three-dimensional. This is multi-dimensional now, which to, to Jeremy's point, that will have to allow us, the further we look out, the broader the scope has to be. Are there things that we'll need to come back to and review? Is this, this gives, which then falls on the responsibility of us as commissioners to guide staff and direct staff to say, hey, this was one of those things that was under, are, are we looking at opportunities? Are our staff ensuring that they're engaging with the Ferguson group to ensure that those opportunities are available? And so just looking at things now and looking in what we have available in front of us, um, I am leaning more um, towards a um, specifically to the affordable housing piece and the opportunities there. And we talk about the value gap where there's things that there's monies that our affordable housing dollars can do, provide, provide, adding the additional money from the city into that while also looking for other state funding that could be available for that. This gives us that additional leverage um, in communicating with developers, with the private developers, working with our, our land trust groups, with the tenants, the homeowners, the housing authority and whatnot. And I said previously to be able to bring several pots of money together to braid and blend to get this work done. It's not linear. It's never going to be linear. And so um, not funding this um, puts us, I think, in a interesting economic development um, quandary as we look to want to drive um, commercial development and creating some sustainability around um, building out tech or whatever it is and bringing jobs here, you have to have something that value adds to that housing is that value add that, that equalizer and that um, in regards to the conversations around um, fire and medical, I do apologize to Chief Fagan's addendum wasn't added. So it did kind of, um, we we're not able to provide more context. I won't be able to provide more context to that discussion because I don't have all the information. So I don't want to begin to say that I don't want us to fund something because I don't have all the information in front of me. And since that piece wasn't, wasn't provided in um, this, in this memo, um, there's not too much. I want to speak on that until I can have all the information to share with it. Um, but I think there's an opportunity to not see this as a one or none. Um, 
if there's, um, we know that there are metrics and indicators within the strategic plan. Um, we know that there's op the optimization report that Chief Fagan talked about that deals with their certification. And so I want to ensure that whatever we decide to do, whether it's expansion of station three and Lewis six or seven, or we do six and not seven, um, what does that look like? I don't have all the data in front of me to do that, but I think that's something for me not to just say, push it aside. Um, to the point with back a little bit with affordable housing, but also to the point that I've made about other projects. Um, there are, and this could be for staff, because I know it is in the action for us to um, direct staff as appropriate. I know that there are opportunities within um, the bipartisan infrastructure, do the infrastructure dollars to help with housing. And so I think this is an opportunity for staff to really lean on the Ferguson group to look at where are some opportunities for those do for dollars, infrastructure dollars to be used that can help guide some of these projects that are potentially in a that we feel like um, would be new assets or things of that nature. So a little piece there for us um, to talk about a lot of discussion on the SLT, um, which predates me, but it's all about me. I think this is an opportunity in our future meeting with the county to truly have discussions about this because um, it seems like we this has blossomed into something and a little bit may be um, again about educating the, the community about this, but also educating our commissions on what is coming, what's moving forward on this and how do we navigate what this looks like in our CIP projects. And so I would um, just put that out there as a, as a pause point um, for consideration. Um, and then there was one piece in regards to um, the skate park. Again, this is a great example of um, utilizing community partners and how to bring them on board to see if there's funding opportunities. The Ferguson Group had in their report um, that there's foundational dollars available um, for such a project that could help leverage dollars, CIP dollars. And I wouldn't be opposed to removing um, a couple of projects um, from A um, or even B, um, specifically um, the South Park waiting pool renovations to uh, fund Centennial uh, Park with the skate park, simply because, again, it is an equitability tool. I was a little... Um, I was a little concerned that, you know, equity inclusion scored so low and then looking at the details for the skate park, um, the detail sheet, I was a little disappointed in the narrative on that. So I don't know if that staff or if that was outside, um, but the narrative didn't really ring true to what that project could bring to the community, whether it's equity and inclusion as far as access, um, opportunity, um, for um, entertainment, um, for leisure, um, a way to bring people in, opportunities for us to bring tournaments here. So there's an economic development piece that, that could potentially drive that um, project as well. And that just didn't come out um, in the details of that project. And so um, I would be willing to, to switch some things out to see us elevate um, that skate project, because again, not only is it a, um, a use for the community, but can, I can also generate funds, uh, be a, a fund, uh, generate fund uh, dollars for us as a community. So, um, and I know we still have our four policy questions to get through and I could go through that quickly, but in the, in the time I'll just go back to you, Mayor. Oh, I was gonna say, go ahead. If you've got your, <laughs> if you're ready, go for it. Uh, no, we can just round robin, go back to the beginning. 
Yeah, I gotta get back down to the bottom. Here. I mean, I did share unfunded project, um, other projects that should be delayed or reprioritized. Um, I don't have any at this um, moment to share. There's, again, my first CIP, so there's still some things I, I want to dig into um, that could be shared with staff about delayed or uh, reprioritization. Um, I did share that I, I, as far as the mill levy, keeping that flat, and then would I support increasing utility rates? I would say no at this time. We're in a space that really doesn't... Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm a little leery about utility rate increases right now, um, just with the, the economic climate that we're in and with inflation um, coming out of the endemic, there's a lot of things that are in play right now that I'm, and if we can, if we're funding this currently at our, at our rates, I don't want to play with that until we can reassess a year from now. Uh yeah, I've already said some projects I'd swap out, projects I'd delay, and I'm not really in. I'm certainly not in favor of increasing utility rates, and I don't. I'm not. I think we're already not funding some things we should be or want to be funding in now. CIP, so I'd not really be inclined to lower the general obligation debt in exchange for the general fund at this time. I agree. Yeah, um, there's not any, don't see any unfunded projects at this time that I would swap out. I don't see any projects just delay or re reprioritize at this time. Um, and I have the same position on the bottom two, three, and four that right now I'm of the mindset of Commissioner Finkel, Diane Larson, that uh, not really interested in increasing those rates at this time. Um, Sorry, I, Vice Mayor Larson. Yeah. <laughs> very late. Uh, we're getting there. Um, yeah, I, I I agree with all that. What I what I want to make sure that staff I feel like staff needs from us, a, uh, perhaps um, Jeremy stopped me a commitment of some kind about A versus B, and I have a, I think a list here of the things. Uh, unfortunately, I heard two A's and two B's. Um, so, uh, but I did also hear a list of projects everyone seemed to agree on um, the affordable housing, um, electric infrastructure, um, finishing the loop first um, before the Iowa Bridge, um, uh, South Park Weeding Pool and Skate Park. Um, on those, I, I guess I one of the reasons I didn't pick A or B yet is I felt like, okay, well, if I know that they're out there on the hustle with these grants all the time, and now I know that's true, then I know if they see something, they're going to come forward and pull it off and say, hey, we found this magic money. Um, then I feel like I have to commit a little less to either one because I know that Something. something's going to come <laughs> to me um, and and they're they're really on the job with that. So um, I'm not trying to be non-committal, um, but I was um, I, I became less um, concerned about um, certain projects that I saw were definitely going to be um, qualify for for all kinds of money. Um, so Jeremy, I want to make sure you have what you need from us. 
<laughs> Jeremy Willen, Finance Director. Yeah, I um, taken a lot of notes here, so I, I think we have a, a good uh, start to bring something back to you and, uh, with the budget. Because the next step is for you to present the city manager's budget with the CIP in it. So, right, that's the next step on the CIP. That's correct. Yep. So it won't be A or B. It'll be some combination of whatever the city manager recommends. Then we'll have a chance to actually vote on specific things. Um, I did want to follow up on uh, what Commissioner Seller said, which and. Um, uh, Vice Mayor, about the fire station. I don't want to leave that up in the air. Um, would having that information between now and then or be valuable um, or change your mind in any way? Or is that something that I was personally just expecting a broader conversation, you know, at another time? But if if you think seeing those numbers will change your mind, um, I want to make sure we account for that. I for my for myself, um, I I really liked um, Commissioner Finkelstein's idea. We I think this the fire stations need to be a much broader conversation when we have a, a, a ability or or the information that we can look at the project as a whole. And I and I think it actually is coupled with development west of K ten. So I think that whole conversation needs to be had before making any sort of decision on when that's going to be funded. And I agree, it's going to have to be at some point funded, but I just don't think this CIP for this coming year is the one to do it in. Well, I mean, I'm of the mindset that, okay, so I'm, I'm willing to give that we don't fund both of them, but I really do think, I mean, we already have people living in the Northwest part of the town in the Western part of the town that are, you know, having delayed service. So, I mean, it's, it's already occurring. So it, it definitely needs to be discussed more. So if we don't do both of them, I think at least one, and especially in that part of the town or, you know, maybe the South part of town, I'm not sure which one chief Fagan and probably, you know, extrapolate that down a little bit deeper, but I think that's probably a deeper conversation that probably needs to be had. <laughs> Again, yeah. Commissioner, I want to make sure that the information you want, you get at the time that you want it. I want it before I, get, I receive the city manager's recommendation. Since we had conversations about it tonight. Yeah, we have the memo. I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, we, we definitely need to get the memo. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess my, my, my thought process is, is that at some point there's going to be a recommendation that says we need this much in a CIP and we need this much to fund the, the, the firefighters. And that's going to cost X dollars. And, you know, are we going to put a pop property tax increase on the, on the ballot for people to make that decision? Are yeah. we going to do a sales tax increase yeah. or are we going to say we're going to fund it, but we're going to take it, you know, you know, piecemeal some other way. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's a larger conversation to, mm -hmm. to come back and say, you know, let's do all this, um, not try to, to piecemeal it through. So, I mean, yeah. again, um, Commissioner Lillard, I don't think we're disagreeing. I, I mean, I think we need them. I think we're going to build them. I think the only question is how. <laughs> and how to pay for it. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Feel good, Jeremy? You feel happy? Okay, good. Thank you again, everyone, for 
this incredible amount of work. I agree um, with the vice mayor. Um, I, of course, sit down and read all these and I enjoy them. And I, I enjoy reading words like appurtenances and wondering who threw appurtenances into my sheet. Um, so I, I really do appreciate all the work that goes into each one of these. Thank you all. Um, Sherry, in order just to end this, do I need to make a motion to add five minutes so we can carry on with the manager's report calendar and exact and uh, are you planning to do the executive session? oh the executive session saints we, preserve us can we move that to next tuesday at five i was I gonna say that we already don't have another executive session that day. <laughs> yeah i would be appreciative of that okay so you want to start at five next week to do this prior to to do the executive session prior to that meeting. Sounds like it. Yeah. Is everyone able to do that? I want to make sure some people have to get here from work. Is everyone able to get here? A whole special meeting on the 28th. I don't know why. I digress. Unfortunately. I don't have a good answer. Tonight. Is that going to work for folks? Why? Five o'clock. Five o'clock. For which our next meeting? Uh-huh. Yeah. Our emergency meeting? I should be able to do that. Well, we don't we don't want to do it tonight. So let's try to do it at five o'clock next week. If that doesn't work, we'll Casey, let's see you don't need to let us know. <laughs> yeah, I guess we will. Yeah. I apologize. I well no. Okay. It's not your fault. You didn't take the meeting until eleven o'clock. I didn't read past. I should have asked. <laughs> Uh, so Sherry, again, my question, do you need me to add, make a motion for five minutes or something so we can finish this and go away? Yes, you are going to have to extend the meeting if you want to finish the remaining items. Um, I move, I move to extend the meeting for five minutes to address remaining items. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 One opposed. Oh, sorry. One opposed. That passes. Um, four to one. Um, the next thing is commission items. Are there any commission items? No. I had some, but I'm forgetting. Yeah. Them. <laughs> next uh, that, uh, item on commission items. I know that we have on the we have on the um, future work agenda the July twelfth um, city county meeting. I was just curious to know: do we have an agenda set for that? Or when do we need to set the agenda for that? Five o'clock. What you saying? I have not seen one, okay. Commissioner. Um, if there are topics that you all, I heard kind of one mentioned tonight. So, <laughs> is there consensus on that? So maybe we need to communicate our topics to Craig or executive staff. We good. Um, any other commission items? Thank you for bringing that up. It's okay. Real quick, I'll add. I know it's late, but I mean, we might as well enjoy the ride. I know there was previous um, previous discussion on 988, um, and there was some misinformation around that. Um, that is a bill that was passed um, that appropriates $10 million um, for us to address mental health concerns. 988 is the 911 number for um, crisis calls. And there are three areas where the, um, there are three point of areas based on area code that numbers are routed to. And so anybody that has a 785 area code number will be routed to um, the Kansas Suicide uh, Prevention Headquarters here in Lawrence. And so um, I would just say share that. Um, that is something that um, some teams, folks that I work with, 
um, professionally have um, advocated for, and it is a great tool for us to have in our community as well as statewide. That goes live July 16th. Thank you. Uh, city manager's report. And the only thing I was going to do is recommend you all that or remind you all that you had a special meeting uh, on the 28th. <laughs> this is a public um, comment item. Any public comment on this item? Just one really quick oh, you're bringing me down. flowers. I saw that in the public comments, uh, someone sent you in written um, the written remarks, I think it kind of uh, pertains to the municipal thing about uh, doing public engagement before the city manager appoints a judge for the retiring one. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, new discussion? No, oh, cool. Uh, calendar items? Nope. Nope. None. Um, I guess that. Move to adjourn. <laughs> Do you have a second? Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you. Go to bed.